Hello again, friends. And you are my friends. And welcome to another edition of the 605 Super Podcast. The Mothership! The best wrestling podcast on the planet. The only wrestling podcast that matters. Call somebody. I am your host, the great Brian Last. It's me! The hardest working man in wrestling podcasts. Yeah! Baby, baby. What are you trying to prove? You are nothing but a bottom of the card jobber. And I'm very happy to welcome back to the co-host chair, a very, very popular man here in the world of the 605 Super Podcast. You know him as the wrestling humorist, the noted humorist. And that, of course, is Scott Cornish. Scott, welcome back to the show. Oh, shucks. My gosh, it's been a while, hasn't it? Uh, I'm glad to be back with you, though. I know there's been a great clamoring for my return. There has been some clamoring, hasn't there? That's the first aw shucks, I think, in super podcast history. (laughs) Well, listen, it's great to have you here, and we got a packed show. We got a really packed show. There's a lot of really interesting segments on here, but I wanted to talk to you for a few minutes here at the top of the show about a couple of things. Real quick, I want to thank a few people, a few awesome people. One, Frank the Collector. Thanks are not necessary. You thank me enough. I want to thank Frank the Collector. He has sent me several things in the past, maybe most notably a single of the Junkyard Dog and Vicky Sue Robinson grab them cakes that the post office snapped in half before they delivered it to me. But he has sent me so many cool things without any solicitation. He hears the show. He hears something I talk about. He thinks Brian will like this, and he sends it in. That's a mensch, if there ever was one. And he just sent me, based on the last episode, the conversation we had about the Dory Funk Jr. Wrestling All-Stars card that was defaced by Marty Funk, and I mentioned my collecting of these Wrestling All-Stars cards, he sent me an autographed Bruno San Martino Wrestling All-Stars card, and I really, really appreciate that. Thank you so much, Frank. If uh, there's ever a time you actually need something for you, let me know. But I really appreciate all the nice things you've sent in. I also want to thank, on the topic of Wrestling All-Stars cards, Adam Luce, a longtime listener of the show, And he sent me a Vern Gagne Wrestling All-Stars card, as well as an autographed Nick Bockwinkle card, not Wrestling All-Stars, some other card that I don't know of, but an autographed Nick Bockwinkle card, and also a couple of back issues of The Wrestler from 1969. And uh, let's look at these headlines here, Scott. Tell me which magazine you would pick, all right? April 69, the biggest wrestling magazine, The Wrestler, still 50 cents, the match of the century. The great battle is almost signed. Details and a prediction of who will win on page 14. Bruno Sammartino versus Gene Kaniski for the undisputed championship of the world. Evelyn Stevens revealing story, sex, and the girl wrestler. Blassie's blood vow. Death to Buddy Austin. (laughs) Rocca tells about his new career. Quote, I finally got smart. Other exciting features on Dory Funk, Red Raider, Johnny Valentine, Eddie Graham, Cora Combs, Tex McKenzie, Bruiser, Ganya, Penny Banner, Midgets, etc. So wow. That's, that's the April edition. And then the June edition, big news in the world of wrestling, special issue salutes the new champion, still 50 cents. From a lonely Texas ranch to national fame and fortune, Dory Funk Jr.'s own story, quote, The odds were against me from the day I was born by Dory Funk Jr., world's heavyweight champion. And then there is exclusive coverage of how Dory wrestled the title from Gene Kaniski, as well as an article from Gene Kaniski. Ex-champ Gene Kaniski insists, Funk didn't beat me. Bobo Brazil is the guy who did it. So there's some stuff there. Controversial. Controversial, but um, we'll have more about Dory Funk Jr. and uh, Wrestling All-Stars card later on in the show with Roman Gomez. Actually, just in a little bit, that'll be our first segment here 
coming out of this opening. I'm going to go with the uh, I'm going to go with the first one as my choice. The first uh, issue that you uh, talked about uh, because it has uh, it has Blassie, it has sex involving Evelyn uh, Stevens and midgets, and I I think you can't go wrong. Notwithstanding Kaniski and San Martino, I don't think you can go wrong with it. Combination of sex, midgets, and blasted. Sex and the Girl Wrestler, page 34. Is this as scandalous as it sounds? Well, here's a picture of her showing off her ass. Oh, dear. I don't have a clear idea in my mind of Evelyn Stevens. Was she a looker? Not my type, but, you know, to each their own. Every time I walk down the street, some wide-eyed girl is sure to stop me and ask, what's it like to be a girl wrestler? Other questions will follow. But they all add up to the same thing. Those girls dream of sharing in the excitement that goes with being a wrestler. Or, to put it more correctly, they dream about sharing in what they think is the excitement that goes with being a girl wrestler. Kids grow up fast these days. Boys are girl crazy. Girls are boy crazy. So every time a girl asks me about the life of a girl wrestler, what she really wants to know is how many boyfriends do I have? Most people have the idea that girl wrestlers have to fight men off with clubs. To tell you the truth, they aren't far wrong. But too often, the boys are bald, fat, and over 50 years old, and they have fat wives waiting for them at home. What makes these old guys feel like boys again, I suppose, is the sight of two shapely young women dressed in scanty bathing suits, clawing each other and being forced into rather suggestive positions. Oftentimes, these positions can be downright embarrassing, but we can't help that. When your opponent catches you just right and pulls your legs apart, there isn't much you can do about it. How true. <laughs> but you can never convince that old man in the front row of that. He has the idea, as he stares up at the ring with eyeballs popping, that the girls are trying to stir him up. I recall a match in Georgia some years ago. I cannot remember the name of the town, but I do know that Rita Cortez was my opponent. Rita is a very powerful girl. Her favorite hold is the leg split. She does it very well. I wonder if did she write this or did Moolah write this? <laughs> While holding one of her victim's legs flat on the mat with her foot, she applies pressure to the other leg, spreading it as far as it will go. The pain is unbearable, and more often than not, the victim gives up. Rita had me in that, continued, position. <laughs> I twisted in agony as I tried desperately to break free. As I twisted to one side, I noticed this bald-headed man gaping at me from a ringside seat. He was nervously chewing his fingernails as he stared at me. I tried to cover my private parts with my hands, forgetting for a moment the terrible pain. But he seemed to be looking right through my hands. <laughs> I was so furious that I suddenly found the strength to grab Rita's leg and throw her off me. I leaped to my feet and ran over to the side of the ring where the man was sitting. I waved my fist at him and spit in the direction of his face. You dirty-minded old slob, I screamed. What the devil are you staring at? My words had no effect on him. He just kept looking at me with that stupid look on his face. I got the impression that in his twisted mind, he envisioned himself as my husband, or my boyfriend, and that he had mentally conditioned himself to believe that he was completely familiar with my body. Well, there's a small sampling of this article. Sex and the Girl Wrestler by Evelyn Stevens. Wow. And by the way, on the cover is a picture of her with her legs spread. To the tone of the article, there it is. I was just envisioning that whole thing, but read by Fred Schneider from the B-52s. It's funny, I was envisioning it read by Sue the Shooter. <laughs> this man was looking at me, chewing his fingernails. 
<laughs> but once again, thank you to Frank the Collector and thank you to Adam Luce. I really do appreciate you guys sending stuff in and uh, both officially friends of the show, of course. Also want to make mention a new show on the Arcadia Vanguard Podcast Network. It just debuted. We are really excited about it. It has been a ton of fun to work on. John Arezzi's Pro Wrestling Spotlight, then and now, where John and myself go through his archives week by week in chronological order, go through the old Pro Wrestling Spotlight shows, which began in 1989, or at least this iteration of it began in 1989, and we listen to various clips. We play them on the show. We discuss the backstory. We hear backstory about the radio station, about the wrestlers, so much stuff. It has really, really been a lot of fun to work on this show with John, and I encourage everyone to check it out. Wherever you find your favorite podcast, search for John Arezzi's Pro Wrestling Spotlight then and now, or simply search for Arcadian Vanguard, and it should pop right up. And on that topic, I do want to also make mention, all Arcadian Vanguard shows are now available on Spotify. So I've heard from many people throughout the years saying, why aren't you on Spotify? Why aren't you on Spotify? It's because I'm not a big Spotify fan, but now we're on Spotify, so everyone can shut up. And also, I want to make mention that if you enjoy John Rezzi's Pro Wrestling Spotlight, there's a Patreon for the show where we play each and every week after you listen to John and I review the show with some clips. You get to hear the entire unedited original broadcast, and that is patreon.com slash So check that out if you get some time and if you're interested in good content and wrestling history. Uh, Scott, have you had a chance to listen to the debut episode of Pro Wrestling Spotlight? Yeah, I heard the first episode. I really enjoyed it. It's off to a... Off to a good start. I liked hearing all the crazy early radio stories almost as much as the crazy early wrestling stories. Those stories were pretty nuts. And, um, really? you know, I've heard from some people who are wrestling fans but work in radio. We have a lot of listeners, actually, that work in radio, believe it or not. And they actually liked that the best on the show. They really loved the radio stories, and they all had something they could relate to. I got a few emails like, oh, you wouldn't believe this one person in Pittsburgh. And there's the whole story. Once again, John Arezzi's Pro Wrestling Spotlight, now here on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, so check that out. Very cool. I also want to make mention of something we talked about briefly last time on the show, and that is, you know, there's a guy out there. I don't know if you've heard of this guy, Scott. His name is Hannibal. That's his wrestler name. <laughs> and I believe his real name is Devin Nicholson, and he does these shoot interviews. And a little bit of his backstory, because I know a lot, not everyone out there knows who he is. He was a wrestler. I believe he had an actual collegiate wrestling background or maybe if it's not collegiate at least an amateur wrestling background and Hannibal was up for a WWE contract at one point and the story is that he caught hepatitis from a hardcore match with Abdullah the Butcher and that ruined his deal and he has not really done much in the world of wrestling since then on a national stage uh, well, he's from canada but on a national stage in america or i guess even in canada but he runs independent shows and he also has these shoot interviews that he does and that's kind of where the story really got going because these shoot interviews are dog shit they're awful <laughs> he has no institutional knowledge of wrestling so he asks really bad questions or really just loose generic questions like you know tell me your favorite memory whenever someone does the tell me your favorite memory whenever it's that without any precursor without any information there it's usually bullshit, but he does these really, really bad shoot interviews or really not even the audio, the audio is not even good on these interviews. And he's been doing these interviews and we talked about it because I hear from a lot of people. I hear from people who he's interviewed. I hear from wrestlers. I hear from people around the business and I hear, of course, from the many, many, many super podcast listeners, the tens of thousands of people listen to this show who say, God, I really don't like that interview. But, you know, what, what other choice do I have? If I want to hear a shoot interview with whoever it may be. 
that may be the only opportunity I get to check it out on YouTube. So we talked about that. We talked about the fact that he isn't welcome at the championship wrestling from Florida Fan Fest. That very much upset him. He threatened to sue me for saying that, to which uh, I respond, go ahead and sue me. I happen to know one of the organizers of the championship wrestling from Florida Fan Fest. He hosts a show on my network. I stand by my story. So that's a little message right there to this Hannibal character. So this Hannibal put out this video after the last Super Podcast episode, and after, I believe, almost 700 people on Twitter gave me a like when they said they want an Arcadian Vanguard shoot interview series. They want someone to do shoot interviews the right way. Good quality, good audio quality, good questions, institutional knowledge, no crutches like, what are your, what are your memories of? None of that shit. And enough people said they want to hear it that we are actively right now looking into it and we are actually already talking with some wrestlers. We heard from some wrestlers who actually said they want to be a part of it. So that's really cool when they're actually reaching out to me instead of me saying, hey, how much money do I have to give you to sit down with me? That's really cool. The fact that so many people have reached out to me already. And he put out this video, this Hannibal, and first of all, he puts a clip of Brian Blair defending Cauliflower Alley. Because remember, Hannibal tried to get Brian Blair to go off on me about Cauliflower Alley. Brian Blair pretty much didn't take the bait, but that was the intention. And I mentioned that last time. So he plays that clip. And then he puts in this video, it's just his voice, which is creepy enough as it is. And it's a shirtless photo of Hannibal doing the double bicep pose while he's wearing boxing gloves and headgear. And in this very, very sad and, again, creepy video, he talks about me. You know, he won't say my name. And then he says Jim Cornette's co-host. But as everyone knows, that's Mr. Co-host to you. And he challenges me to a fight. I guess I would say challenge. Would you say challenge or is that not fair now that I think about the way he said it? I don't know. Yeah, because he's all over the place. He's suggesting that uh, you go outside, uh, go to uh, in the parking lot, did he say? And, and right. settle well, he, he said and, we, we can meet in a parking lot and settle this like men, to which uh, my question is, which parking ah. lot are you speaking of? You speaking about one of the ones I own a piece of? You're talking about the Bronx or Midtown? I don't know. We'll, we'll ah. have to find out about that. But he challenged yeah. me to meet him in a parking lot for, uh, you know, I, I assume he wants to fight. I don't know. With him, you never know. And then he also said that if I talk about any of this ever again, he will have to get his lawyers involved and he'll have to sue me. To which I laugh because clearly he does not understand how the legal system works at all. So I have to only laugh at that. And by the way, just to make sure we are safe, I did check with Stephen P. New, the esteemed attorney who many of you know, and he said that we are fine. We have nothing to worry about. Brian. <laughs> Hello? When you're talking about shoot interviews, <laughs> please speak directly into my giant, weird-looking microphone. Is this your Hannibal? Are you doing a Hannibal right now? Brian, don't be distracted by my great big cowboy hat. <laughs> you see, I mean, you have the idea right, but I don't know if you have the voice down. It's more... It's uh, more, uh, Tell me about... Do you know Abdullah the Butcher? He cost me thousands and thousands and thousands, thousands and thousands of dollars. I lost my WWE contract. It's more that. You have to slow it down, I think. I think you're, you're picking a up too much fan, speed. A fan wanted me to ask you if I sound like Floyd the Barber <laughs> on goofballs. <laughs> That's kind of an old reference. Meet me in a parking lot 
Perhaps we could fight like men, or maybe just hug. If you can't do a parking lot, maybe a drive-in. Who are you again? (laughs) I only ask fan questions because I love my fans, not because I don't actually know anything at all. I loves me some shoot angles. (laughs) Did you see? I saw an interview he did in blackface. Did you see that? Yes. In blackface. Yeah, two, he did it a year ago, and then the match with Haku. <laughs> Haku picking up a lot of main event bookings from Hannibal these days. And uh, I, I think that they're, uh, it's been rescheduled for August, somewhere up there in the, uh, in the northern uh, territories. The weather's nice here in August. I like to go outside without my shirt on, wearing headgear, so I don't <laughs> bump into the wall. Abdullah the Butcher hit me. With a bowl of hot poutine. <laughs> I I didn't have I didn't want to go to the championship wrestling from Florida Fan Fest because the weather is so nice up here and the paint chips are fresh usually in the summer. I <laughs> get to eat them by the bowlful. Have you ever had poutine? <laughs> what? Poutine. <laughs> Yes, it's cheese curds, French fries, or as we call them up here, palm frites, brown gravy, and hep C. Oh, Jesus. Oh, man. It's an acquired taste. You can't talk about me or I will sue you. Don't even mention my name. Forget I exist. As if you were so lucky. I'm doing a three-hour <laughs> career shoot interview with Rapido Rodriguez. Rapido, tell me, what are your favorite matches from Mexico? He made his career as the Spanish announcer on Southwest Championship Wrestling. You stood slightly off camera next to Steve Stack. You see, you're losing your Hannibal voice. You're losing your Hannibal. <laughs> if we put him in the top 10, we got to come up with a name. We can't call him Hannibal. We need to come up with a name for a top 10 character based on this moron. All right. In the great Northwest. <laughs> Just another thing I, I recently saw someone uh, mention to me. So he does these bad, bad videos. They're just awful. And a lot of them are just like clickbait. It's just he's desperate to get clicks. And in fact, someone, t- I shouldn't say this because it will expose something, but he's desperate to get clicks. And someone told me he now refers to himself as the lead reporter. Yes. For Hannibal TV. <laughs> and <laughs> he's the lead reporter. Are there other reporters for Hannibal TV? I have a whole street team. All right. Well, that's a work in progress then. Hannibal voice. Yours is good. Come kiss me in a parking lot. And if you don't want to come send your lawyer, I'll sue you in a parking lot. What should I go with today? Boxing headgear, blackface, or big big cowboy hat? (laughs) The blackface thing. Is fucking incredible. Like, by the time half your face is painted, you have to look in the mirror and go, you know, this may not be a good idea. This may be a really, really poor idea. He says it's camouflage paint. Oh! Is, <laughs> is that his gimmick? Is I actually legitimately am asking this question because I don't know. I've seen clips of his stuff. 
but I've never actually seen like a Hannibal match or a series of matches. Is that his gimmick? Is he like a military guy? No, no, it's just, it, it varies depending on his mood. I, I think <laughs> I'm revealing. I've watched a little too much Hannibal as I, as I say that meet me in the parking lot, get me in the mood. <laughs> Watch what happens. All right. Jeez. Well, anyway, in case you haven't learned yet, don't fuck with the super podcast. Uh, <laughs> but with that said, let's move on to our next segment. And this segment, as well as this episode of the Super Podcast, is brought to you by our friends, the wrestling fans over at Ramsor Records. Let's get some music in the background while we talk about Ramsor Records. Now that's nice. That sounds really good. And what you're hearing right now are the sounds of the National Reserve. You may remember we talked about them a long while back on the show right when Dolph Ramsor first signed them. Well, they are on the road. Let me tell you, first of all, this fall they're going to be supporting Brent Cobb on a big East Coast tour. 15 dates they're doing with Brent. you got to make sure you check that out, but let's talk about something more immediate. It is June, and in the month of June, they are going to be in the Pacific Northwest. So, hey, Jim Valley, you better go check out the National Reserve on tour, and they're playing a bunch of big festivals this summer. The Nelsonville Music Festival, Mountain Jam, the Levitate Music and Arts Festival, the Roots and Blues and Barbecue Festival. Now that sounds delicious. Harvest Jazz and Blues Festival and much, much more. Check out the National Reserve. They have new music that's going to be coming at you very, very soon. And I think everyone's going to get a big kick, a big kick out of it. I can't speak. A big kick out of it because I know I do. It's a band that I really, really like. I don't just say it because Ramsar Records is a sponsor of the show. I dig this band and I dig their music. And real quick before we wrap things up, I got to make sure I mention we talked about the fact that Samantha Crane another Ramsar Records artist was recently up for an Indigenous Music Award for Best Rock Album. Well, guess what? She won! Congratulations to Samantha Crane and all of the people over at Ramsar Records and, of course, our good friend Dolph Ramsar. Samantha Crane won the Indigenous Music Award for Best Rock Album for You Had Me at Goodbye. Those awards were held on May 17th, so it's pretty recent. Congratulations, Samantha, and everyone over at Ramsar Records. And once again, the National Reserve. You can get more information about them at thenationalreserve.com slash tour to find out about all the upcoming dates. And, man, this music's really good. This is going to be tough to shut it off. I guess I'll do the intro while this music's playing because I'm actually enjoying it. The next segment is something we've talked about for a while. Roman Gomez. We talked about the story of a fan having his card autographed and then defaced by Dory Funk and then Marty Funk last time on the show. Well, Roman Gomez is that fan, a lifelong wrestling fan and someone who has supported many wrestling activities, whether it's a show or a convention or a reunion in Las Vegas. Let's go to this conversation I had with Roman Gomez. Let's hear a few more moments of the wonderful sounds of the National Reserve. I am very happy to welcome today to the Super Podcast, Roman Gomez. Roman, welcome to the Super Podcast. Thank you. 
Thank you very much. I want to talk about this incident that you were recently involved in, but let's give a little bit of your backstory. When did you first start watching wrestling, and what are your earliest memories? Okay, um, I got cable in 1982, and the Superstation was on, and uh, got hooked on Georgia Championship Wrestling. was a big fan of Ivan Koloff and Michael Hayes, and, and it just started growing from there. So you get cable television. Where were you living? Uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. So Las Vegas, you got cable in 1982. Yes, I was, I'm a big baseball fan, so it probably came on after one of the Braves games or something, and I just started watching it, and I, I've been hooked ever since 1982. So being a big baseball fan and watching the Atlanta Braves, do you get bothered by the preemptions or by wrestling being delayed because of extra innings, or do you say, ah, this is like a perfect storm for me. I love baseball, and I love wrestling. Well, it would, in a perfect world, it'd be nice to see both of them. But what really bothered me is when wrestling was preempted by like the Andy Griffith show or something. That's, <laughs> that's what it really bothered me. Cause it was like, I want my, I want my wrestling. So in 82, you're watching Georgia championship wrestling in 1983. Do you have USA network? Are you watching Southwest and later the world wrestling federation? Yes. Sunday mornings. We used to get Southwest championship wrestling with Tully Blanchard and Ricky Morton. And uh, I used to watch that every Sunday morning when it came on. At this period of time, 1982, was there any wrestling airing locally on TV in Las Vegas? Was the AWA on TV in Vegas? No, the, the only thing that was just uh, cable wrestling. And then uh, we got WWOR, so we started watching WWF later on, you know, 83, 84 area. You know, it used to come on Saturday nights kind of late here, so when I was up late, I, I would watch that. But 6.05 was always my time on Saturdays where I, I made sure I was home to to watch Georgia championship wrestling. So there was no wrestling actually airing on local TV. It was just when cable got there in 1982. So had you seen any wrestling at all before that point? No, no, not at all. So what did you think when you start seeing these different companies from different parts of the country? Most people start seeing wrestling on cable and you hear them say, Oh, well, you know, it was so different than what we had here locally. You didn't have that. You didn't have local wrestling. So what was it like? to be exposed to wrestling from New York, wrestling from Georgia, wrestling from San Antonio, et cetera. Well, it was fun. You know, I, I'd see these guys and then I'm like, gosh, I wish wrestling would come here so I could see them in person. And then uh, I finally got word that the AWA would come to the showboat. So like in 1984 was the first card I saw in person. And then AWA started airing here on local TV. So it was kind of cool to go to the matches and actually see the people that you've seen on TV. When did the AWA start airing in Las Vegas? And of course, we know about those shows that would air on ESPN at the showboat. When did you first start attending shows? The first show I went to in the AWA was 84. And I remember them being on TV in 84. Uh, the Fabulous Ones, Ventura, Saito, etc. I remember they were all on TV in 84. And then uh, they would set up the matches for the showboat that would come once a month and sometimes once every three weeks. What did you think of someone who was very popular here on this show? We actually call him Orgasmic Larry Nelson, based on some of his reactions to the wrestlers. What did you think of Larry Nelson? Well, he, he wasn't my favorite announcer, <laughs> but, you know, he, he definitely had enthusiasm, and, you know, he had a passion, so I, I do respect that. But he was not, uh, not, not like Gordon Soley, the Walter Cronkite of professional wrestling, that's for sure. When you're attending AWA shows during those years, uh, you know, starting in 84 on, 84 is still pretty good, 85 is all right, 86 is kind of where things start going downhill after a certain point. Do you feel that? Or when you're attending those shows, are you just happy to attend and it feels like you're attending a successful wrestling company? Do you feel when things start going bad, do you start picking up on that being in the crowd? 
Yes, definitely. Um, in 86, it was the Rockers versus Playboy and Pretty Boy. And that was the main thing. But some of those squash matches for, for the TV tapings were pretty hard to sit through, to be honest with you. But, you know, you, you knew you were going to get a good main event if the Rockers or Playboy and Pretty Boy were involved. What were those shows like? What was the makeup of the crowd, typically? Were there a lot of families? Was it a lot of people from the casino? Was it old people? When you were in those crowds for the AWA shows, what was the makeup like? Well, at, at that time, I was younger, and I wasn't aware of how, like many comps, the casinos would give out and everything. But I, I can tell you that there were friends of mine from junior high or whatever, high school that would go there. There were a lot of wrestling fans, but I'm sure there were a lot of comps, too, from the casinos handing out tickets but the, the action was great the the crowds were into it um back before they started taping for tv there there would only be like five matches so every match would go minimum of 20 minutes you know the curtain jerker would be like a 20 minute draw so today's standards it, you know the crowd might not be into it as much because you know for tv they like to do a lot of three minute squash matches or whatever or run-ins but there they actually try to tell a story and have a 15 20 minute match when did competition first come in? When did the World Wrestling Federation or the National Wrestling Alliance first come in after this period of time where you're watching? I remember the WWF coming here about a week before WrestleMania three. That was the first time I remember them coming here uh, off my recollection. NWA came to Vegas a couple times uh, right before Ric Flair lost the belt to Ronnie Garvin. They had a brutal physical match here. NWA only came here a handful of times. It was mainly AWA, and the WWF started coming like once every three or four months. What was it like when the AWA stopped coming to Las Vegas? Well, it, it was kind of time. I mean, once, once like, 88 came, I, I pretty much stopped going. Just all the talent had left, and it just it just wasn't a, a fun time at the matches like it, like it used to be. You know, 85 had a lot of stars. 84 had a lot of stars. And 88 passed. Was just, it just wasn't even worth going to see the AWA anymore. To fast forward a few years, I remember in New York in 1993, struggling to get a radio station out of upstate New York so I could hear the Wrestling Insiders radio show, which, of course, was broadcast from Las Vegas. Were you a listener of that show? What do you remember about that show? Oh, big time. Uh, Mike Tenay and Rod Williamstall. And I remember that the Barrio sex scandal was mentioned on that show first. And then before you know it, it was on the Phil Donahue show, Geraldo Rivera, now it can be told. But I remember listening to that when Barrio just kind of casually broke the story and Tenay and Williamstall's reaction, they did not know he was going to say that. You know, it just kind of came out and it unleashed all kinds of things after that. When did the show air locally? It was on Saturday night because they used to always play that Elton John song, Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it was a two-hour block, and they used to say it was the fastest two hours in radio, and let me tell you, it was. It flew by, but it was so entertaining. And finally, I got to meet Tanae years later, and great guy, still remembers me, and just, it was good times listening to that radio show. So you're in Vegas. Do you attend wrestling shows throughout the 90s when they're there? I know that, obviously, WCW would come there and do some stuff. WWF would come into town, obviously. I remember there was an indie group in the mid-90s. I want to say NWF, but I don't think that's right. I forget the name of it. I have tapes of it somewhere where you had Jim Neidhart as a Klansman. Yeah, NWC, the National Wrestling Conference. Yeah, Cactus Jack and Sabu, Rob Van Dam. Yes, they were... They would have a, a good main event, but then the undercard was 
pretty hard to sit through. <laughs> they had one guy, I forget his name now. I have it on tape somewhere. He was like their wannabe Ric Flair, except he had no charisma and he just did racist interviews. I forget what his name was. Yes, yes. And he came out with a female manager, yes. Don Juan. I yeah. believe the guy you're thinking of. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yes. Don Juan. Huh? Where is he? Does he show up? At no CBC? idea. <laughs> no idea. But it's funny. One of the guys from that promotion I bumped into, I'm in the convention industry and he's actually working with the clothing company going, doing conventions. And I actually bumped into him and recognized him from the NWC. Typically, how would you classify Vegas as a wrestling town? Is it a hard town for a promotion to draw in? Is it an easy town? How would you classify it? Uh, well, the the bigger name companies don't come as often as they used to. I mean, you, it, back in the day, you, you knew you were going to see the AWA every month. If WWE or NXT comes here, it's once every couple months. They may have a pay-per-view. Um, there's a local league here that's doing well. It's been around for about 11 years. But yeah, it's not, I couldn't say it's really like a super hotbed like you would think Vegas being the entertainment capital, and that might be part of the problem. There's so much other stuff going on in Vegas, you know, besides wrestling, obviously. One of the things that wrestling fans think about when they think of Vegas would be Cauliflower Alley Club, which has been holding its convention in Las Vegas for a number of years. You know, it used to be in Studio City, California. Then they did some stuff here on the East Coast. And it's been in Las Vegas pretty regularly for a good period of time now. Have you been attending those? Yes, I've been going since 2003. I have not missed one since 2003. Is it different now than it was in 2003? What is the evolution of Cauliflower Alley in those years in Vegas? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit different. Uh, sadly, people pass away. Um, it's kind of weird to be at Cauliflower Alley without seeing Nick Bockwinkle there. He was always a staple. Um, it's it's kind of fun in the sense that you don't always know who's going to be there. They'll announce certain people getting awards or that might be in the memorabilia room, and you could walk around the casino and bump into somebody didn't know was going to be there. So it's, it's kind of fun in that regard. Before we talk about this year's Cauliflower Alley, tell me some of your favorite memories or moments from previous ones. And which guys did you really enjoy beyond Nick Bockwinkle talking to and getting a chance to reminisce with? Ivan Koloff. Uh, like I alluded to earlier, 1982, when I got cable, Ivan Koloff was one of the first wrestlers that I liked. And he was such a nice gentleman. I gave him some of his DVDs of his matches and I asked him and I felt kind of weird asking, but I was hoping he would do it. I said, can you cut a promo on me as the Russian bear? And he asked for my name and he went right into character as the Russian bear and cut a promo on me. And I got it on tape. And <laughs> that is something I'll always remember. Um, talking to Mr. Wrestling too. He was somebody that was there when I first started getting into wrestling. Uh, he's come a couple times and he sat down and talked to me for about 30 minutes, and I just thought that was so cool. One of the guys that I first got into wrestling sat and talked to me and answered any question. It was just a very nice gentleman. So you do have some very good encounters like that, which makes it a lot of fun. Well, I guess that's kind of one of the big things, the big draws for Cauliflower Alley for a lot of people is you get a chance to go there and see wrestlers and talk to wrestlers that you've never met before, that you grew up watching. I said it last time on the show. It's wrestling social club, for lack of a better term, where you can go there and really just almost feel like you're one of the boys, even if you're not, because you're treated that way. Would, would you say that's a fair assessment? Yeah, yes. Uh, a lot of wrestlers, they love to talk about the old days and reminisce, and uh, which makes it, a, makes it for a, a fun time. You know, I've had a lot of good memories of 
meeting people, meeting fans, you know, from across the country and everything. And it's just, uh, it's neat to be around people that have a passion for something like you have a passion for. So let's talk a little bit about this year's event. Obviously, it was a big one. People were still talking about Dr. D. David Schultz's speech, and they probably will for a very long time. But you're there. Before the incident that we're about to discuss, were you having a good time? Was it already a good trip? Well, not trip. You live in Las Vegas. Was it already a good time that you were having? Tell me about this year's Cauliflower Alley before things went south. Yeah, it was fun. You know, you you go there, um, got to see Hollywood from the Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. I've met her several times. She's a real sweetheart. Uh, you know, just meeting the people, meeting the fans, hanging out. And it's just, it's hard to be like in a bad mood there, you know, because you go there to have fun. And, and uh, that's that's what I do when I go there. I have a good time. I hope Hollywood from Glow realizes that every single male guest we've had on the show to talk about CAC for the last few years has mentioned Hollywood from Glow. She's gotten more mentions from people from CAC in the last few years than she did during her entire career in Glow. She is amazing. Um, I mean, besides being beautiful, she's an absolute sweetheart. I mean, what she is such a nice lady, always good to the fans. Um, I can't say anything bad to bad about her. I saw her back in her glow days, her original glow days, and, you know, I had a crush on her like everybody else. And when I met her, I was like, what a down-to-earth sweet lady. You know, we didn't even talk about that, but did you ever attend any glow shows in Las Vegas? No, that's what's weird. Um, I talked to buddies about it, too, and they don't ever remember them announcing, come see Glow Wrestling on the 12th. or not. There was never, ever anything announced during any of the blocks. On Sunday, there used to be a block of wrestling here in the 80s where you'd get world-class, AWA, and there was never, ever any commercials about come see Glow Wrestling because me and my buddies in high school, we definitely would have went. Were there any commercials in the 90s for come see the UWF's Blackjack Brawl? Uh, <laughs> I I actually was in attendance for that and made a real brief cameo during the Cactus Snooker match, but I'm trying to remember how I heard it. I might have heard about it only on the radio. I don't actually remember there being a TV spot for it. Tell me about any memories you have of that night, specifically the urban legend, and I say that because there's no footage of it as of right now, and we have people looking for it, of Herb Abrams getting on the mic and saying, let's hear it for the Jews. Do you remember that happening? Oh, I I don't, but he was pretty wasted that night, so there's a good possibility. It was uh, two th- a few things I remember. Like I said, I was just having a brief uh, cameo on TV during the Cactus Snooker match when they went up in the crowd and almost falling asleep by the time the show was over. Uh, I went with my brother. The MGM holds about 18,000 people, and I would be shocked if there was 800 people there in attendance. And it was long show. From what I remember, that Cactus Snooker match was a big deal to Cactus because obviously Jimmy Snooker was his favorite wrestler when he was a kid, and I think that was the very first time they worked against each other. Yes, I believe he mentions that in his book. And uh, ah. my brother and I, were, my brother and I, were kind of looking at each other. We're like, we got a lumberjack match here that ended in a countout. I thought that was a very <laughs> peculiar finish, but that's how they decided to go that night. That's very Herb Abrams. Every match was for a title, yes. and the stipulations didn't make any sense. <laughs> yes, the prestigious MGM Heavyweight Championship was on the line that night, so I'll always remember that, too. So was the UWF Midget Championship, I remember that night. Yes, yes. Various other titles and, that I never heard of before. Can I tell you a little bit of useless trivia? Please. That you may or may not know. The Tyler Maine was the MGM Heavyweight Champion, and he later would go on to be Michael Myers in one of the Rob Zombie Halloween movies. 
obviously much more successful as a actor than he was as a wrestler. <laughs> <laughs> Even with just one limited role. <laughs> but you obviously you've been a longtime wrestling fan. You've attended lots of different wrestling events, different promotions. You've watched lots of different stuff and you've been attending Cauliflower Alley Club regularly since 2003. So you've seen a lot of stuff. You've met a lot of people. You know, it's not like it's something new to you. So when you're going into this year's Cauliflower Alley Club and the incident, the occurrence, the confrontation that happened, you're not expecting anything like this to happen, correct? No, no, not at all. I, I've i never met Dory Funk, and I just pictured him to be a nice guy, and, you know, I figured I'd make some DVDs of some of his matches, and he was a nice guy. But there was somebody else involved that wasn't so nice. Well, let's go to the story. Last time on the show, and I know you've heard this, I did a segment where I talked about, and of course, for those of you who haven't figured it out yet, Roman was the fan who had his autographed Dory Funk Jr. card defaced by Marty Funk. And I know you heard the segment where I talked about it. I tried to relay the information that I got from multiple sources. I heard from at least five different people within a few minutes of it happening. That was what I heard. You were there. It actually happened to you. Can you please tell your story, explain what happened, and if there's anything I got wrong, can you please correct it? Yes. Um, I waited for Dory all day Monday in the memorabilia room, and he wasn't there. So when I saw him Tuesday, I was like, cool, now I can finally give him three DVDs that I made, very rare matches of his from Japan and everything, labeled them. I approached the, the uh, table. And his wife's there selling shirts and pictures, and the pictures were already autographed. And I'm one of those people that unless I get the autograph myself, I don't consider it legit. So I had brought a Dory Funk card. I go up to Dory, told him about the DVDs, the match listings, very grateful, very nice gentleman, shook my hand, thanked me. I says, would you mind signing this card? And he goes, sure, no problem. Never once was a monetary number mentioned or, hey, it's 10 bucks for an autograph, nothing like that. There were no signs on the table that said cost for autograph is 10 bucks, 20 bucks, anything like that. And when I saw those pictures that were there that were already pre-autographed, I was not going to get those. I said, hey, I'll have them sign my own personal card. He said, yes, signed it. His wife turns around, grabs him on the wrist and says, don't do that. And scolds him in front of everybody as she's got his hand on the wrist, grabs the card out of his hand, and then says, it's my card now. I look at her, and I tell her, I says, no, that's my card. I brought it from the house. She goes, it's mine. And I pointed to the bag that had the three DVDs in there with the match listings. I says, I just gave Dory these. I asked for an autograph. He never said there was a charge or anything like that. So he signed it. She goes, it's mine now. And now I'm starting to get a little hot. And uh, it just kind of went back and forth. And she goes, you can pay me for the card. And I go, it was from my collection. I've had that since 1984. You know, and I says, I gave him those DVDs. And he said he would sign the autograph. So she takes the Sharpie, scratches it out, hands it right back to me. Before that, she had mentioned that she was selling shirts. And I told her, well, yeah, I'm not interested in a shirt. And then she was trying to sell me the card that was mine, scratches it out, hands it back to me, and then was going to keep my Sharpie. So I tell her, I said, hey, that's my Sharpie, you know, and she gives it back to me. And I told her, I said, you could have been a whole lot nicer about this. And she raises her voice 
goes, I am being nice. And I was just blown away by it because the whole thing, we went back and forth for a couple minutes because she was holding my card hostage. And I'm thinking, like, should I take my DVDs back? And then I'm like, well, it's not fair to Dory, you know, because I made those for Dory. I thought he'd enjoy them. And, and she proceeded to scratch out the card and hand it back to me. And I was just blown away. I've never had she said, hey, you know, we're trying to sell autographs here. It's 10 bucks. Whatever. I would have paid for it. But when he said it, signed it for free, didn't say there was a price, and then she she scolded him a few times and grabbed his wrist, and I just couldn't believe that a wife would treat her husband that way, and then defaced the card, which, as you know, being a wrestling fan, it's not a card that you can just go down to any shop and, and buy right now. That was from 1984. That's right. 84 is when I got it. The card might actually be from 83, but I, anyway, you get my point. It's It's a rare card few questions coming right out of this. First of all, when this happens, when it actually transpires, I understand getting hot. I don't know how you didn't get hotter, quite frankly. I think you deserve an award next year at CAC for restraining yourself, considering the situation. But it must feel like a surreal moment as it's happening. Yes, I had nine billion things going through my mind. And I was, I was wondering, like, how could she be so mean when I just gave her husband something and was nice about it? And I had a couple people that know me go, it's a good thing it happened to you because somebody else might have went nuts and started cussing and flipping over a table or something, you know. And I try to be a calm person or whatever, but I'm not going to lie. It it pissed me off because it was very disrespectful. And, you know, and I, I look back now, like she basically reached into my wallet and ripped money up because that card had value. And I just, I was blown away that she did that to scratch the autograph and then just hatefully give it back to me the way she did. Her tone and everything was just so rude. I've heard from several people who were within distance or close by when this happened. So I have several different versions of the story. Almost every version is the same. When I say several different versions, I don't mean there are different versions. I mean, everyone's story matches up verbatim to the point where her quotes are the same from every single person. The one thing I heard from people was that they were disturbed by the manner at which she was speaking to Dory and the manner in which she, for lack of a better term, put her hands on Dory. If you don't mind, can you speak to that from what you saw? How aggressive, how physical was it? Yes, it wasn't passive at all. It was not lovingly or anything. She had a firm hold on his wrist. And the way she admonished and scolded him repeatedly was like if a four-year-old stuck a fork in a light socket or something and the parent was like, no, you know, like she was raising her voice. She was very forceful, and he just kind of had a confused look, like, what did I do wrong? You know, like, this guy gives me DVDs, I signed it, and then he's getting chewed out by his wife as she's grabbing his wrist. You have been attending Cauliflower Alley Club conventions and reunions for 15 years, for over 15 years, actually. So you're someone who's a regular there, you're someone who, I got to think you're the ideal person. For Cauliflower Alley Club, you come there, you're respectful, you care about the history, you want to talk to the guys, and you return the next year. That's exactly what they want. Did anyone from the Cauliflower Alley Club approach you or talk to you as this was happening or right after it happened? Yes, I can say that everybody on the Cauliflower Alley staff was absolutely amazing. Scott Teal, Roy Lucier, I I talked to several people. People were coming up to me and apologizing. We're sorry about the behavior. We're sorry. We hope this doesn't stop you from coming back. And 
I'm going to keep coming back. I'm not going to let one bad apple ruin the experience. I've had many great experiences there. Met many people, fans. It, it is a wrestling, almost like paradise or whatever, if you want to call it that. It's just so much fun to be there. So I'm not going to let one negative stop me from going there. But yes, the Cauliflower Alley staff was great. They were embarrassed by the behavior. They felt bad. Uh, people were going up and telling them what had happened. Uh, it was like I didn't even have to tell people what happened. People were going to Cauliflower Alley and letting letting people know how rude Dory's wife was. You certainly weren't the only person, you know, it wasn't an isolated incident. It's not the first and the, certainly won't be the last Marty Funk incident. And it wasn't the only incident at Cauliflower Alley Club this year with Marty Funk. At any point after this, did you run into her or have any words or did she apologize to you? Anything? No, she, she never apologized to me. Um, I saw her the next day in the memorabilia room and I saw her at the awards thing. And, you know, I would have loved to have gotten a picture with Dory, but to me, it wasn't worth the headache because I know I would have had to deal with her. And she was just, she was just obnoxious and rude to several people. People were running up to me telling me their horror stories and just, I just didn't want to deal with it. And it was just one of those things like it was not Dory's fault. I cannot emphasize this enough. Dory was a very nice guy, very respectful in the brief encounter we had, but I just didn't want to deal with her if it meant getting a picture with him. Are you currently in possession? of the card no i I don't have it um i gave it to somebody from cauliflower alley they wanted it as uh you know kind of like proof of what happened or evidence if you want to call it that and uh, they said i would get it back i would like to have it back i mean it is a memory although it's not the best memory i've ever had at cauliflower alley but it's definitely one of the most memorable ones i I would like to get the card back yes as you know because you heard it on the show i collect those wrestling all-star cards so i appreciate how hard it is to come by any of the premium ones, which are, you know, Hogan yep. and Flair or the Funks, Junkyard Dog, the Von Erics, Lawler. Those are hard to come by. Those could be expensive. If they're in mint condition, they could be damn expensive. So that's where it becomes bullshit. But on the bright side of it, you now have a very unique wrestling curiosity. You now have a one-of-a-kind piece of wrestling memorabilia. If you ever decide you want to <laughs> move it, call me up. I'll make you an offer. <laughs> you have something right now that is very unique. It is a Dory Funk Jr. autograph destroyed by his wife. So <laughs> if there's anything about the story to look at and think that's a positive, there's your positive. You now have a one-of-a-kind, unique wrestling relic. It, it's definitely unique. It definitely uh, stands out from all the baseball cards or wrestling pictures I have that are autographed, that's for sure. In closing, as we wrap things up, and once again, Roman, I really want to thank you for being on the show here today, and I guarantee the 605ers in attendance next year at Cauliflower Alley are going to treat you like a superstar. They're going to really wrap their arms around you now. (laughs) But any closing words, any closing thoughts about this year's Cauliflower Alley or anything else? No, I just wanted to, you know, reiterate, uh, the Cauliflower Alley staff was great. They were very uh, compassionate and everything, and Hopefully this doesn't deter anybody out there that's listening from going to Cauliflower Alley because it really is a fun time. I've been going there since 2003, and that's the one negative. So one negative and incident in 16 years is, is not bad. I mean, granted, it was a little extreme, but it, it, is, it is fun for a wrestling fan to go there. So if anybody wants to go to Cauliflower Alley, I would highly recommend it. And like I said, you never know who you're going to bump into. Certain people are announced, and then others just show up unannounced and are walking around. So it's a lot of fun to go to.
There he is, Roman Gomez. I want to thank him for coming on the show. Officially, a friend of the show here on The Mothership. And from there, let's go to our next segment. Let's stay on the theme of talking a little bit about Cauliflower Alley, but even more so, let's talk about something that has been a very popular annual segment here on the show, the state of Crowbar Press, where Scott Teal, the noted wrestling historian and the publisher of the best wrestling books out there, comes on, talks about his docket, what's coming out right now, what has currently been released, and what's about to come out. Let's go to this conversation right now with Scott Teal. I am very happy to welcome back to the Super Podcast a man who is a great friend of the show, and he's also the premier publisher of classic wrestling books, and he has a whole bunch of new ones that we got to talk about today. That's right. It is time for our annual State of Crowbar Press segment with none other than Scott Teal. Scott, welcome back to the show. Man, has it been a year already? I can't <laughs> hardly believe it. I mean, time is flying, and since I retired, it's, I mean, it just goes by so fast. Every day I get up four o'clock in the morning, get busy on stuff before I know it, it's like five or six. Uh, just it's hard to believe. It's gone by quick because you are a very busy man. I'm a busy man. So I could recognize another busy man. You are a very, very busy man. Of course, you have Crowbar Press that we're going to talk all about the fine publications you have out now and are coming out for the rest of the year. But also, and I think this was a breath of fresh air. This was something really needed. You joined the board of directors of Cauliflower Alley. You became an executive of Cauliflower Alley. And I have to tell you, from everything I heard from the 605ers, from everything I heard from people that weren't necessarily at our tables, everyone has been raving about the job you did, that you really went above and beyond, and in a lot of ways brought the Cauliflower Alley Club into the modern era. Not that it was, you know, all old and everything, but you did a lot of things, big and small that modernized Cauliflower Alley. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved at this level and what this year was like for you. Well, we had our reunion here at our house last September, and Brian Blair came to the reunion. And about a year or so ago, Dean Silverstone had asked me if I'd like to be on the executive board, and I politely said no. I just didn't want to be involved on it, in it. I'd been involved on the board before and just wasn't a good – I just didn't enjoy it. <laughs> so – I told Dean no, and then they both were at the reunion in September, and both of them hit me up and explained, you know, what they wanted to do and what they'd like for me to do, and I told them to give me, you know, a week or so and talked with my wife about it and decided to come on board as the executive vice president. Had no idea what my duties would be, had no idea what I was, you know, like at the banquet, you know, the vice president's in charge of this, that, and the other. And I had no idea how to do all those things. And Brian said, don't worry about it. We'll walk you through it. And as it turned out, I pretty much just learned it myself on the fly. And I, more than just the vice president's job of the things that the vice president does during the year, I took on the revamping the entire website. Uh, I wanted to be more it's not modern. I had one person say, I've gone back to the old GeoCities day, <laughs> which is the old, it's, it's the old, old style look of, of websites. And, and granted, that somewhat is true. However, it is so easy to find things on there now. I, I mean, you just go to the drop-down boxes. I've got banners everywhere. I mean, every page at the top and bottom, there's a banner that says, Come to the, join us for the annual CAC reunion. All people have to do is click on that banner if they want to find out more about the reunion and buy a ticket. Uh, there's a banner at the top of every page, become a member of CAC. I just wanted something that people could find what it was they wanted real easily 
without having to scroll back through 50 pages to find, you know, one something in particular. And it, it's worked out. It's really worked out well. Uh, besides the website, I uh, wrote, uh, we never, we had bylaws for the CAC, but they were very simple. And we had some problems with various parts of the CAC uh, events and board members, members, uh, just different things. And uh, my thought was we need to have bylaws with all that stuff written up, what we can do, what we can't do, what's allowed, what's not allowed. And that way we avoid all those problems. If somebody does something that they shouldn't be doing, they can't argue, well, you know, we've always done it this way. No, it's in the bylaws. And so that's, that was one of my really strong ideas that I wanted to do. I wanted to have something set up. Uh, the vendor room, I set up all new rules. And in fact, we have a lot, had a lot of new rules as far as who could be behind the tables. But at the same time, we lowered the prices, I mean, by a bunch. And uh, as a result, we sold the, the uh, vendor room out for the first time ever and uh, created all new forms for registration. I developed a brand new registration process to make it easy for people to get in there. Because last year, from what I hear, they, well, I was there. They didn't open until noon and we're supposed to be open at 10 o'clock. And they were having to find people's name tags. This year, we had everything in an envelope, all the schedule, the uh, banquet program. We didn't. In past years, they put the uh, banquet program on the uh, tables at the banquet, but that wasn't until Wednesday night. So here you have people being honored on Tuesday night, and nobody had any information about them. So it really wasn't fair to them. And when I asked about it, I said, why don't we just make an envelope, and we put all the registration material in there along with the name badges. And what I found out was the only reason they waited until Wednesday night was they used to do it at registration. But what was what had happened is one year the banquet programs got there late. Uh, I guess they didn't get there till Wednesday morning, so they just put them out on the tables. And for whatever reason, they decided to continue doing that. So we changed that this year. Put the program in with the with the on in the envelope along with the welcome letter. We had a suggestion form in there. Just pretty much revamped everything. I was just wanting to modernize the Coffee Alley Club a little bit. I have uh, 48 posters I created myself with 32 pictures on each poster and has all the names of the wrestlers on them. So I think it was a total of 1,530 pictures, I believe, for people to look at. And they used to have some old photo boards, which are really cool, you know, for the time, but they were really starting to look ragged. And I did have some, almost everybody loves the new poster boards as opposed to the old photo boards. But I had a couple of people wrote, and they said they liked the nostalgic feel of the old ones, and I can understand that. But they they were for mo the most part, they would take photo eight by ten photos, five by seven photos, spray the back with an adhesive, and just slap it on this big thing of cardboard. So those big photo boards were pretty much just cardboard, and it just wasn't what I would say you know was something looked professional. I wanted, you know, wanted a more professional look, more 21st century to the Cauliflower Alley Club. And I think, you know, I think things turned out rather well. Like I said to you before, I've heard nothing but rave reviews of the job you did this year. And I have to say, personally, knowing you're involved, knowing that you have your hands in so many different areas of CAC gives me a lot of faith in the future of CAC. There's a lot of things that CAC can be doing, a lot of things that CAC should be doing, knowing you're there and knowing you're on the board gives me a lot of faith knowing that good things can really happen for CAC in the future. Well, that, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because that, that was my goal in coming on board. And if I quit tomorrow, 
hopefully I've put into place a plan where they can just continue to move forward, move ahead. Uh, That was my main thing was coming in and just setting things up so that we have a plan. So every year we go back to that plan. This year was a killer for me. I was working eight to 10 hours a day the past two months, creating all forms, signs, banners. You know, I was doing promotion things, uh, the website. Next year won't be anything like that. I'm talking about before the reunion because all this stuff is in place. You know, like the, I just created all the new banners for the website. And I've got pictures on all the banners of a lot of the people that were at the reunion this year. Everybody likes to see their pictures. So I made uh, 25 banners that says, uh, join us for the 55th annual CAC reunion and the date with everybody's, uh, not, you know, as many people as I could get their pictures on it. But all I had to do, though, was change the date. I had to change the pictures, but on all the forms, all the other things that we give out, the schedule, it's pretty much going out and changing the date and the day. Uh, It isn't like reinventing the wheel like I had to do this year. Scott, you're one of the people that I know who has retired and somehow gotten busier than you've ever been before in your life. CAC aside, of course, as we mentioned before, you are the publisher of Crowbar Press, I am such a fan of your work, and I have been for so many years. The Ole Anderson book, the J.J. Dillon book, there's just nonstop great reading material for fans of wrestling history. And let's talk about what's currently on the docket. Let's talk about what you're currently putting out and what you're currently working on. And specifically, let's start with two books that I just got. The first one, it's kind of been in the news, and we'll talk about that. You just put out a brand new version of The Fall Guys, The Barnum's Abounce. When I say a new version, it's not like you went and rewrote the famous book, but you and wrestling historian Steve Yohe have put out an annotated edition of this book. Let's talk a little bit about that process. At what point did you decide this was a project you wanted to do, and how long did it take you guys to do this? Talk a little bit about the reissue project for the Fall Guys. Well, this project goes back, uh, oh boy, I guess it was around 2007. It's been at least 12 years. I found a copy of The Fall Guys in the library in Tampa, Florida, when I was just learning how to do research wrestling on microfilm. And to me, it was like finding a gold mine. It was the most awesome book I had because I, I, I was just a fan. I knew nothing about what went on behind the scenes. I knew something was going on behind the scenes because I always heard everybody say, oh, that's fake, blah, blah, blah. But I didn't know exactly what it was how they did things. And The Fall Guys was really the first book ever written that explained a lot of the things that went on behind the scenes. I was absolutely transfixed by it. And to me, The Fall Guys was the Bible of professional wrestling. However, about seven, eight years later, when I began, well, no, it wasn't that long, four or five years later, When I began to get more into research and I started working for the promoter here in Nashville, I began to realize that there's a lot of stuff in the Fall Guys that didn't exactly ring true because I researched some things and found facts that weren't correct. And later on, I learned that a lot of the things that Griffin wrote, Marcus Griffin, the author, uh, it it was biased. He worked for Tootsmont, one of the promoters up in New York. And so as Working for Toots, everything he wrote was pro Tootsmont, and everything about Jimmy Londis was sort of painted in a negative light. And in 2007, I had the idea, I thought, you know what, we should do an annotated version. About, oh, I'd say in the 90s, I read a book called The Annotated Tarzan of the Apes. 
and it was uh, it talked about Tarzan of the Apes and Edgar Rice Burroughs, and it was the coolest thing because it went behind the scenes of the writing of Tarzan of the Apes, and something just in the back of my mind said, I ought to do that with Fall Guys, and we can really pick this thing apart, explain the falsehoods, explain the lies, the uh, uh, wrong dates, all the stuff that, you know, that you've read in Fall Guys that isn't true. And I contacted about eight historians and said, I'd like to do this as a team. So I sent out the book in digital format and said, go through it and just write everything you can think between the paragraphs, what you like about, you know, what you think or what's not true, what your thoughts on it. And I only got submissions really from two people. And Steve Yoey was one of them. And he wrote the most. Steve is just absolute uh, a monster when it comes to writing. He digs out more stuff than, you know, I'd ever, ever think about finding. Uh, he has, I don't know if, he, well, he spends a lot of time in the library and he's got tons and tons of papers in his, in his house. And But anyway, that has been on the burner since 2007. I'd throw it aside, then I'd go back to it, throw it aside, go back to it. Steve and I would talk about it. And Steve finally got to a point where he was tired of talking about it. He said, you know what? I've posted stuff over and over online about Fall Guys. He says, and I think people are getting sick of it. I really don't want to do anything else with it. Well, about eight months ago or six, seven months ago, I said, Steve, give it one more time. Give it some thought and let you and I really dig into this thing and see what we can come up with. I got him turned around. He got excited about it. He still thinks nobody will read it, but I mean, it's done really well so far, and everybody that's got it is, is really in, seems to be enjoying it. But then we dug into it, and he sent me so much stuff you just would not believe. And of course, my strength is not necessarily writing, but it's taking what other people write or research stuff I find and molding it all together into a format, you know, to, into something that flows and, and is explained well. And so he gave me so much stuff to work with. And by the time I got through editing through all his stuff and uh, working through it all, we wound up with what is known as the Annotated Fall Guys. And I, I think I'm probably as excited about this book as any other book I've published. Because like I said, to me, the book was the Bible of professional wrestling. Uh, I found out since because of all the falsehoods in it that it's not, but it's the only book we've got that was written and really ta uh, explains a lot of the behind the scenes goings on from that, that era. And by doing what we've done, to me right now, it, it is probably one of the most important books from that era because it, everything that is, well, not everything, but I'm sure as much as we could find uh, that was wrong or untrue, we, we have fixed and, and, and have noted in, in that book. Right after I received this book, I was on the phone with Jim Cornette. And I told him, I said, Jimmy, you're not going to believe what I just got from Scott Teal, the annotated Fall Guys. And he said, oh, my God. So I'm pretty sure he'll be ordering one right away. But he was excited about this because you and the Fall Guys has been something that is a topic that we have talked about recently on Jim's shows because we just did a series of segments about the Montreal Double Cross. Of course, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, 1997 in Montreal. Everyone knows the story and everyone is sick of the story. But Jim <laughs> revealed that it was his finish. He came up with the idea for the finish and he gave it to Vince McMahon. And what caused him to come up with the idea for that finish was reading a previous version of the fall guys that you had issued in the late 1990s. So he said, jokingly, 
You can blame Scott Teal for the Montreal double cross. It's not me. It's him. So I'm just curious because I don't know if you've heard that. What are your thoughts on all this? I heard that. Somebody wrote and told me they said, Jim Cornette is blaming you for the Montreal screw job. And I said, What? I said, I had nothing I said, I'm I had nothing to do with the business today or even back in, you know, since nineteen eighty, in fact. You know, I had nothing to do with the business. I said, Why would why would he say that? I knew I knew, you know, that he, he must have been joking about it, but I just couldn't figure out what Jimmy's angle was. I think, you know, why would he say that I was responsible? But now that you say that, you're the first person that I've talked to that has explained it in such a way I understand where you're coming from now. Nobody ever mentioned the fall guys and all that. So I love it. <laughs> I love it. I'm all, I'm going to have to add that to my, uh, <laughs> that little, that little signature at the end of my emails. Sincerely, you're Scott Teal responsible, who is responsible <laughs> for the Montreal screw job. I don't think anyone <laughs> had you on the list of all the people they could blame for Montreal. No one said, you know what? Wrestling historian, Scott Teal. That's the man to point the <laughs> finger at. <laughs> I love it. I love it now that you explain what it is. Well, I, I thought it was funny anyway, even though I didn't understand it. But now that you've explained it, oh, I think that's just hilarious. Just absolutely. Well, that's why it's such funny. great timing that you've issued this book right now, that you've published this book at this present moment. Before we move on to your next publication, I'm curious, was Steve Yohe happy with the finished product? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he likes it. He, he's very happy with it. Now. He's more, um, I guess, let me see how, how to say this. He's more concerned that we're going to get beat up and people are going to hate what we did with it, uh, which I don't think that's going to be, I keep telling him that's not going to be the case. But uh, he's afraid we're going to get uh, a lot of uh, background heat from people on it. And I said, you know what? We may even have some things wrong. You know, Griffin had tons of stuff wrong, but his was blatant lies. Whereas we, if we, we get something wrong, it's not because we, we did it on purpose. It's because we either didn't, you know, couldn't find enough research to ver- uh, qualify what we said or, uh, you know, there's, there's a reason for if, if we did make a mistake. You know, we just didn't catch something. But well, anyway, well, your work uh, is based on research. It's not like you can go back and speak to anyone who was actually involved in anything at that time. No one's around. So everything you guys do for this is either based on any recollections anyone had before they passed away or purely research yes absolutely that's exactly right and there's a lot of stuff that's just not available there's no way uh, the only way to get a lot of that information is from the people who are actually there and they're all gone i mean they're they're dead so another book you just put out and i have this one here and i did not expect it to be as thick as it is so i can't wait to dive into this you mentioned it last year when you were on the show that you're going to be putting out a book by former manager Nikita Brezhnikov. If you are a fan in the Northeast and maybe you saw Nikolai Volkov on an independent show at some point in the 90s, you probably saw him with Nikita Brezhnikov. That was his flag-waving manager. So this book came out, and this is really in-depth, the history of the WWWF in the 1970s, from 1970 to 1979. Scott, talk a little bit about this book. How much work did Nikita Brezhnikov put into this book? Oh, I mean, a ton of work. He he went... Everything we talk about in there, and you've got 10 years. Now, I mean, we don't, he doesn't cover every single television show from 70 to 79, but he covers a lot of them. And he watched the videos. Uh, he, he either watched the videos uh, that are available now of every one of the shows he talks about, or he was at those shows and he made notes, you know. So a lot of like the Baltimore cards, you know, he, he always went to Baltimore. And Landover uh, Civic Center, I guess. He always went to those shows. 
and he made notes of, of the matches and some, he also has a lot of memories uh, in there of, you know, his interaction as a fan uh, with, you know, people like Chief J. Strongbow and uh, Peter Maivia. I find it fascinating that, you know, Nikita's been in the business, but he is still such a fan of that era. I mean, and you can find, you see that in his writing. Uh, He comes across as someone who absolutely loved the product. He loved Jay Strongbow and he became friends with Strongbow later on in life, but he would just over the moon about him and he had some interaction with uh, strongbow you know when nikita was still a young really a young man you know 15 16 years old and it makes fascinating stories but he weaves his story and there's not a lot of uh, nikita Bresnikov uh, story in there but he's got specific stories about himself during that time that he weaves into the stories about the matches and the shows in the in the different arenas that he went to so, uh, oh, he did a tremendous amount of writing, and I, I, again, he gave me so much material to work with uh, that as I went through and did my edit, it gave me a lot of stuff, you know, to, to work with. And, of course, I sent him, a, like I do all the authors that I work with, I sent him a ton of questions, and I, what about this, what about that, why did you say this, you know, and we weave it all together, and by the time we finish, we, you know, we wind up with the thick book that we've got, so... Yeah, and not only is he a really great author and wrestling historian, but Nikita is one of the nicest people that you'll ever meet. You know, I always find it funny. It's like Ivan Koloff. Everybody hated Ivan Koloff. I don't know many wrestlers that had as much heat as he did when he was wrestling, but he was one of the most gentle, nice, kind, loving men you would ever meet in your life. And I find it, it's really funny how people like, you know, people that we hated so much later in life, you learn that they were just absolutely different, totally different from their ring persona. But they, when they were in the ring or in an arena, buddy, you'd, you'd believe they were, they were the dastardly mean old heels, you know, but away from the arenas, uh, they're just the nicest people. And Nikita's the same way. There's a great picture on Facebook of Nikita. It's a side profile. He's looking at the ring and he's got this look on his face. And you can just see the hate in his eyes when he's looking, you know, it's evidently he's looking at the uh, wrestler who is wrestling the guy he's managing. But he looks, you can just see the hate coming out of his eyes and this rush, this mean, hate-filled Russian, you know, and it's so cool. But on the other hand, when you get him off to the side, he's just smiling all the time, friendly, just, just nice as can be. Well, they always say that the heels are the nice guys and the baby faces are the jerks. Yep. <laughs> yep. That's exactly right. A lot of, a lot of, I mean, there, there's exceptions, but yes, in a lot of cases, when I used, I used to travel with the guys, a lot of the guys I traveled with were the heels because they were always, they always had more fun and they were always, they didn't believe their own press. They weren't all caught up in themselves. Of course, I want to mention the name of the book because we didn't do that before. It's When It Was Real by Nikita Brezhnikov. And that book, like all of your other books, is available at crowbarpress.com. We encourage you to go there and check it out. If there's something that interests you, buy it right away. You will enjoy it. I promise you that. But, Scott, before we get to the books that you're working on now, the books that you'll be releasing for the rest of the year, what are the other books that you currently have published, the most recent books that you have just put out? Um, the other one is pain. Tor- one of the other ones is Pain, Torture, and Agony by Ron Hutchison. 
uh, it's just a, a wonderful story uh, about the guy that uh, he wanted to be a wrestler really bad, and he was. And but uh, his claim to fame really is training some of the real superstars of pro wrestling, the modern superstar Trish Stratus, Gail Kim, uh, Christian and Edge, Beth Phoenix, several others. He but he talks a lot about what how they got started, how they uh, came into the gym, how they discovered him. Uh, the things he went through to uh, to become a trainer. Uh, he, he actually started with Johnny Powers and Sweet Daddy Seeky, and he wound up actually being the uh, only trainer in Sully's gym. And Sully, Sully, I don't know if you're familiar with Sully. Um, he was a man who had a gym, a boxing gym in Toronto. And of course, he they also trained wrestlers there. Boxers would train earlier in the afternoon or in the evening. And then when the boxers left, the wrestlers would take over the gym. But I, I wish somebody would, I, maybe they have, I, I just haven't looked for it, but uh, wish somebody would write a book about Sully. He was, seems to be a real character, but he did a lot of great things for the, uh, the youth in Toronto. Uh, you know, he, uh, I guess he had a lot of kids uh, that would come into the gym and he, he'd help keep them on the right path, keep them off the streets. And he did a lot of things for charities, and I'd like to see Greg Oliver probably be, probably be the best to write a book about Earl Sullivan. But uh, yeah, that's one of them, Pain, Torture, and Agony, and that comes from Ron's uh, method of training. That's what they call it, PTA, Pain, Torture, and Agony, or Pain, Torture, Agony. And Ron had a career as the Masked Thunderbolt up in uh, Nova Scotia, and we've got a lot of pictures of him and uh in the train, you know, a, a lot of the superstars that he trained, Christian Edge and all them, we get a lot of pictures of them training during those training days at Sully's. Uh, the other book is uh, one that I just absolutely love. It's more of a historical book because there are a lot of people they prefer the books on, uh, you know, the biographies. But Jason Presley is relatively new to um, wrestling research, but I don't know. I'm not sure when he started getting into wrestling and writing about wrestling, I'd probably say about the past six, seven years. I could be wrong on that, but he has been, I dare say, probably to every single library in the state of Alabama. Wow. Big or small towns. I'm talking about little towns and researched every single card he can find on microfilm for all those little towns. And the first book, which is, um, Alabama, 1931 to 1935. Uh, he covers how uh, wrestling really took off in Alabama during the during that time. It, it, you know, it was during the Depression, and people didn't have a lot of entertainment, couldn't afford a lot, but they could afford a wrestling ticket. And we have in that book, we have all the results from that he could find in Alabama, all the major, uh, well, not all the major, all the towns. You know, Gadsden, Alabama, Montgomery. Birmingham, uh, Sheffield, Anniston, uh, even tiny little towns, you know, like Andalusia or Troy, Alabama. And we, uh, I enhance all those results with newspaper ads from the, from that era. And we, we had a little trouble finding a lot of pictures uh, of the guys then because there's just not a lot uh, available for stuff from 1935 back. Well, I mean, if, if, if we were looking up New York, yeah, we could find a lot of stuff, but Alabama, there's just, you know, it just wasn't like, you know, that much on the, you know, we, we just can't, couldn't find that much. But uh, Jason's plans are to do 1936 on up, every, everything he can find. So this is uh, really just the first volume of the Alabama series. 
And this first volume, I mean, this is covering a period of time, just so the listeners understand it. This is before Nick Goulas and Roy Welch took over Alabama, correct? Oh, yeah. Uh, 1931 to 35, Nick Goulas didn't come into uh, Alabama. Well, he didn't come into Tennessee, I should say. Uh, you know what? That's a good question. I like, I'm, I had to look that up. I don't know when Nick started working for Chris Jordan, but Chris Jordan is the guy really, he was the man in Alabama in 1931 to 35 and on up. Uh, Nick came in and took over Tennessee in 1940, Nick and Roy. And, uh, so this was a good five years before Nick went into Tennessee and, uh, actually became a promoter of it in his own right. Back in 31 to 35, he may have been working for Chris Jordan then. I don't think so, though. I, I would say it would be 36, between 36 and 37, somewhere in there. Uh, he, he was just a gopher working. He sold tickets, you know, worked in the office, did whatever he could do at the time. Who were the big stars locally at that period of time? They were different in all the... Um, the towns, you know, in the in the very early years, they had guys you, you've probably never heard. Of. Well, I did. Yeah, I've heard of them. There's uh, Matty Matsuda, uh, Young Zabisco, Ed Strangler Lewis came in and out. Jim Londos came in and out. But but, but then they did have their um, their their guys there that uh, were pretty much regulars. You know, the ones that stick out in my mind is a guy named Freddie Nickel. And I don't know a lot about these guys. There's some some information in the books, but uh, Jason could tell you all kinds of stuff. Uh, Joe Gunther, Gus Callio, uh, Joe Dillman. Uh, those are probably the biggest uh, names in those areas at the time, and they were there forever. Uh, you know, Joe Gunther, he ended up promoting uh, in that area. Uh, Johnny Carlin was in there for a while, Joe Dillman. Freddie Nickel, he, he was uh, a wrestler in the early 30s, and I believe he later started doing a lot of uh, refereeing down in Mo- – I know he refereed in Mobile, Alabama for a time. But anyway, to be honest, a lot of the names in there at the time, you've probably, or you probably have, but a lot of people have probably never heard of. Well, this is the latest edition, the latest volume in your great pro wrestling venue series. And I guess this is a good opportunity. I want to plug a couple of the other ones you did because they are essential to anyone who cares about wrestling history. Of course, you did a book about the history of Madison Square Garden, as well as wrestling in Nashville. Is that correct? Yes, sure is. Volume one, uh, wrestling in Nashville goes up to 1960. And I stopped there. I'll be doing volume two eventually, but I just haven't, uh, haven't had the time. <laughs> the big issue is going to be where does volume two stop? What year are you going to end there? Yeah, I'm really um, pulled on that one. I'm really not sure whether I'm going to stop when Jarrett takes over, which is when I, you know, when Nick sold his promotion to Jarrett in 1980, and I, I just got out of the business quote unquote forever and would never have anything to do with the business again <laughs> to, to see how that went yeah uh but yeah that's uh, i'm i'm not sure if i'm just going to take it to there or go ahead through the jarrett years the jarrett years yes they had regular wrestling cards in nashville but nashville was not the center you know, I'd be to do, yeah, yeah, I guess I could print the results at least for Nashville. I mean, that may be what I do, but there won't be a lot of behind the scenes stuff like I have all throughout the other books because most of that takes place in Memphis, you know, and the book's going to be about Nashville. So, you know, it, I just wouldn't want to spend a lot of time dealing with the behind the scenes manipulations in Memphis. So, yeah, if I do the result, it would just be strictly the, uh, if I do after 1980, it would strictly be the results. There probably wouldn't be a whole lot of other things uh, behind the scenes to talk about. 
Well, Scott, those are the books you currently have out, your latest publications. And of course, once again, crowbarpress.com. But what else is on the docket for the remainder of 2019? What are you working on? (laughs) Oh, boy. Jason Presley was at Colorful Alley, and somebody came up to the table and asked me that. And Jason jumped in before I could say anything. He says, just save your breath, Scott. He says, I can't remember who asked the question, but he says, Look, at here's, he says, here's the book I just wrote. And he picked up the Alabama book. And it's the only book I have where I did this. But in the very back, the last page of the book, I have a page that, that uh, at the top, it reads, In the Works from Crowbar Press. And I list the, the first four books that I just talked about. Uh, but then I have all the books that I have coming out throughout the rest of this year. And uh, just getting a rough count here. There's about 10, maybe 11 that I'll have done by the end of the year. Wow. Uh, A lot lot of them are already pretty close to being finished, either written. um, One of them is already in the layout stage. Another one I'll be finishing up. Uh, The first book that will be out uh, will be June this year, Bowdrin the Booker. Uh, Jeff Bowdrin and I, or Jeff Bowdrin sent me all the old Jeff uh, Bowdrin the Booker uh, articles that used to appear in the Wrestling Observer newsletter. Yeah. And we're going to publish those in a book format. And he's also going to have notes at the end of most of the chapters. Uh, or, you know, a chapter is, in other words, uh, Observer, December 15th, 1990. That, he has the article, Bowdrin the Booker, that appeared on that date in the Observer. And at the end of that chapter, he's he's got notes, you know, like a couple paragraphs of what, you know, things that he's thought about since then relating to that chapter. So it's a pretty cool look back at a... It was really pretty much a cult classic uh, back then, and it's, he was the only person to write a regular feature, at least for any length of time, in, in the Wrestling Observer, and it was called yeah. Bowdrin the Booker. I know a lot of my listeners have been dying for that book. Of course, Jeff is one of the stars here on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, the host of the very popular Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. And of course, Breaking Kayfabe is the name of his previous book that he put out on Crowbar Press with the various interviews that he conducted having dinner with the wrestlers. But Bowdrin the Booker, like you said, had a cult following. I know a lot of people really want to see that book, Scott. What else are you working on? Yeah. Well, the next, uh, after that, or right along with it, is my great wrestling venues. uh, It'll be the fourth, and it's Japan, Volume 1. 1951 to 1963, the Ricky Dozan era. Uh, it was the results were compiled by Haruo Yamaguchi, and then Ko- Koji Miyamoto and myself. We added a ton of stuff to it, uh, background material, but it's it's unbelievable look at how wrestling really got started in Japan back in 1951. It actually was a sort of an offshoot that came from Hawaii and how it took off. There's a lot of information about Ricky Dozan in there, his life as a promoter, how he got, how he got power. Uh, it's, it's a pretty cool book. And, uh, but that's, that's the first volume of what will be a whole series of books uh, in the Great Wrestling Venue series on Japan. Uh, Koji probably, I don't think Haruo's going to be doing a whole lot on the others, if I remember right anyways, but Koji and I will be working on the rest of them. And, uh, so it, I don't know where we'll stop with that either. You mentioned that about Nashville. You know, where do we stop with Japan? Do we stop in, you know, 1989, 1990 when Baba dies? Or, you know, we may just keep going until everybody gets tired of it. <laughs> <laughs> then uh, the next two are 
also great wrestling venue books. It's a two-volume set of Amarillo. Uh, Chris Knight, uh, actually, I mean, he did unbelievable amount of research, sent me all the results from Amarillo. The first volume will be 1911 to 1950. The second volume, 1951 to 1982. And we're adding ads and newspaper clips. We got all kinds of information about the promoters, how wrestling got started in Amarillo, who the first promoters were. You know, we even get into where you know information about uh, Dory Funk Sr. when he took over Dory Funk's first match, how, when Terry got, and we still have stuff about Dory and Terry playing football, and just really behind the cool stuff. You know that uh, really has been mentioned in passing, but this is all going to be in two books. And I also have programs from, I mean, a huge stack of programs from Amarillo for the 1940s and the 1950s. And I'll be putting a lot of the covers and pictures. They had great pictures yeah. uh, of the of the matches. And I'll be taking a lot of those pictures. And, you know, if we list a match for January 5th, 1952, I'll probably have a picture in there from one of the matches from that date. Uh, so it's going to be a, you know, a nice look back in history. Uh, I really haven't talked to Dory or uh, Terry about it. I, I really thought I might interview Terry and get, uh, you know, just everything he can remember about the promotion to put in there with it. To me, it wouldn't be a book without that. So uh, that's to be turned. But, but I'm hoping to have that out sometime this summer, early summer. Uh, then my first book that I've ever had anybody else publish, I'm very hands-on when it comes to what I publish, and I don't like anybody messing with it. I like, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> so I've never asked anybody else to publish a book, but Rocky Johnson called me about a year and a half ago and said he was looking for somebody to write his book and he had been asking around and he kept hearing my name. And so we now have the Rocky Johnson story will be out published by ECW Press in September. Uh, Dwayne Johnson, you may have heard of him. He's a little movie star. He wrote the foreword for the book, and uh, he, we had an advertisement in the uh, Colorado Alley Club, and I'll send you the ad later on for it. But uh, that comes out by ECW Press in September, and I am really excited about this because it's getting a lot of a lot of press. And uh, of course, Dwayne, all he has to do is mention it on his blog, and you know, uh, you know, it's gonna it's gonna be. Well, well known. It's going to be so. best-selling author Scott Teal. Is, is what it's going to be. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> oh, buddy. But anyway, yeah, it's Soul Man, the Rocky Johnson story. So uh, we're 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 excited about that. Uh, if you want me to go on, I can be real quick. If you want the other, yeah. um, uh, another great wrestling venue that's pretty much done. I just have to go through and just edit it. Just check for you know problems is Mobile, Alabama, 1932 to 1974. Michael Norris and I compiled work together on this one. Uh, my stuff came from the Mobile uh, University of South Alabama Library in Mobile. I spent five years uh, there, uh, two days every year for five years, spent about $500 on microfilm copies to get, all the, get ads and results and all kinds of stuff about the Mobile, Alabama promotion. And that's going to be 1932 to 1974, every match ever held in, in Mobile, plus in, interesting things, you know, that took place behind the scenes. That's in the fall, also in the fall, Wrestling Archive Project number three. I've got so many people lined up for interviews, just finding the time to interview them, but uh, some, some real old timers that 
I want to get to before it's before it's too late, you know, because these guys are dropping away so quick, and I want to get their stories down. And I think it's important that we preserve their their memories and their heritage. Yes, it is. So, uh, Wrestling Archive Project Volume Three and probably Volume Four and Five as quick as I can get them out after that. Uh, the one I'm really excited. It's another two volume series. Is the Frankie Kane interviews Volume One and Volume Two? Yes, I've been uh, waiting, I've been waiting would, for this one. I, I, you know, and I've been working on this for probably 12 years and Frankie and I, every time I get with Frankie about once a year, he, he comes up with more and more new stuff. And I have got so much stuff. It's unbelievable on him. So, but I, instead of writing, rewriting everything like Oli's book, JJ Dillon, Ivan Koloff as a book, I'm presenting them simply as interviews because people come up to me at uh, Colorful Alley or places and they say, you know, what book would you recommend? And I always tell them, I can't recommend one. I said, because I, I don't want, or they say, what's your favorite? And I never answer that question. I'm not going to be in that position. <laughs> but but they say, what would you recommend? And my number one, not because I'm the one that really wrote it or them, wrote them, but I always recommend my Wrestling Archive Project because to me, they're not like reading a book. It's like you're sitting across the kitchen table from these guys and they're telling you their stories. Now, I try and make all my books feel that way because I don't want people, you know, some people don't like to read, but if they're engaged in it, it's like they're having a conversation with, with a guy. It makes it all that much more interesting. And that's why I feel about this Frankie Kane thing. Frankie is so engaging in the way he tells his story. And I even, I mean, he, he, he doesn't use great grammar a lot of times. He'll say, instead of saying, uh, we were going to the house, He'll say, we was going to the house. Well, I leave it like that because that's how Frankie Kane talks. I'm not going to have him talk like Shakespeare. I, I told Tony Atlas the same thing when I wrote his book. I said, I'm not going to change. You know, we're going to have bad grammar in here, but I want that in there because that's how you speak. You know, and he, he agreed with me. So I'm presenting the Frankie Kane books, the two volumes, as the Frankie Kane interviews. I was going to call them the Frankie Kane tapes because that's how we started out, but kids today picking it up they have to look up the word tape to find out what it meant well scott as we begin to close out this segment once again i want to remind everyone crowbarpress.com scott's books get the highest possible recommendation from the 605 super podcast but scott any closing words for the listeners i want to say one more thing about the cultural alley club okay we have got the best team in the world. One of the things I was determined to do was pull a team together that would work together for the betterment of the CAC and at the end result, the, all the wrestlers that we're trying to help. And I'm telling you, everybody in the Colorado Alley Club that, that, that has a position there is just absolutely great. We, we have five photographers, six photographers, and... There's been times in the past that I've been told that they argue, they get up there pushing each other out of the way, trying to get the picture at the you know end of the award. <laughs> but these guys this year, I put up a set of rules and some guidelines. I had schedules for everybody. These guys work together so unbelievably well. We have the biggest, biggest ever collection of pictures from this year's reunion than we ever have ever had. Uh, but But if you go on the CAC website and look up, Go to meet the team members. It's one of the drop-down boxes and see the people that are that are helping. Uh, it's just unbelievable. Uh, everybody is so willing to help, and and we're adding more as we go. Like this year, the social media administrators, Roy Lusher, what a great guy he is, and he jumped right in there. Great guy. When we needed the the videos run, 
you know, I'd never done that before. So I got with the hotel people, the guy that handles the audio and the video. And I said, what do I do? I need to know how to run this thing. And so Roy came in there and uh, Dave, the guy at the hotel, the Gold Coast, he showed, showed us how to do it. And Roy took it and ran with it. You know, after the first two or three videos, I sat there the whole time. I said, okay, start it now. But after two or three, I thought, why am I telling him to start it now? He knows when to start it. And he was, he, he, he was just great at it. But I could go down the list. I'd, I'd say go to the CAC website and just look up the te- CAC team members and see who, who's on our team. They used to call it the board and the associate. Well, we still call it the board and the associates. But to me, it's it's the team because that's what it's all about. And, and these, the, the, I, I couldn't have picked a whole bunch of better people to do, to do all the things that were done this year. But other than that, go to crowbarpress.com. Anybody has any questions about it, don't hesitate to email me. I'm on Facebook. I've, I'm finally today just started back doing the uh, Crowbar Press archives on Facebook. I haven't done a thing to it in probably over a month because of Colorado Alley Club taking so much of my time. But I'm back to posting three articles a day now, and I hope everybody enjoys that. So uh, if you're not a member, just send me a, a request to join the uh, Crowbar Press archives, and I'll add you on. There he is, Scott Teal with the State of Crowbar Press. I'm very happy to have Scott back on the show. I always get requests from listeners to have Scott on the show, and I always look forward to this annual segment that we do, and I look forward to all the books that he's putting out, and there's some really great ones, and on that topic, it's a little earlier than we normally do this in the show, but it's time for Book of the Week! Book of the Week! Book of the Week, and this week's book is one of Scott's great books. It is The Fall Guys, The Barnum's Abounce, the annotated edition, the annotated Fall Guys by Marcus Griffin, and of course the annotations by Scott Teal and Steve Yohe, the inside story of the wrestling business, America's most profitable and best organized professional sport. This is the original insider account of professional wrestling. Before the Wrestling Observer, before even whatever happened to Gorgeous George, there was the Fall Guys, the Barnum's Abounce by Marcus Griffin. And of course this annotated edition expands upon all of the original work, in many ways clarifies and shows the truth for the very first time about some of the things that Marcus Griffin put in this book. But this is a must-have for anyone who cares about wrestling history, any budding wrestling historians, or anyone who just wants to set the record straight about one of the legendary wrestling texts of all times, of course, that being The Fall Guys. I highly encourage everyone to check this out. It is something to really geek out on. If you're into wrestling history, you can open it up, and just lose yourself on a page. I was actually just recently speaking to wrestling historian John Boucher, who said he got it, and he couldn't put it down, and it caused him to start researching things. He would pick it up, he would read the original text, he would read the annotations by Scott Teal and Steve Yoey, and then he would start researching more stuff that was talked about in there, and that's what it's all about. It's a lot of fun to read this, a lot of fun to go through this, and once again, our book of the week, The Annotated Fall Guys, The Barnum's Abounce by Marcus Griffin, and Scott Teal and Steve Yohe for the annotations in this edition. You can get this book, as well as all the other books that Scott mentioned in the State of Crowbar Press segment that just aired at crowbarpress.com, and I very much endorse all of Scott's products. These are the finest in professional wrestling books. He puts a lot of work into them. He researches the heck out of things, and I could say that I uh, have a great admiration for the work of Scott Teal, and I think if you check out his books, you will too. Once again, this week's book of the week, The Fall Guys, the annotated Fall Guys, The Barnum's Abounce, and you can get that at crowbarpress.com. But for everything else, whether it's a book, whether it's multiple books, whether it's movies, music, clothing, stuffed animals, kitchen utensils, 
gardening equipment. I'm just trying to think of random things that I've not said before, but all of those things and so much more are available, of course, at Amazon.com. And if you're going to go there, we encourage you to use our show referral link, tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. By using that link, you don't do anything different than you would normally do. You don't pay any more than you would normally pay, but we get a little bit of love and support for every item you purchase from those fine people at Jeff Bezos's Amazon.com. So for all your purchases, for all of your wife or girlfriend or boyfriend, for everyone you know's purchases, use tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. Lots of other shows have links they want you to use. Lots of other shows, let's be honest about it, really suck. Awful audio quality, awful interviews, awful hosts, awful guests, really just lazy garbage. People who just want to jump into the fray because they hear other people doing it, but really have nothing to contribute. They want you to support their shows. You need to ask yourself, does quality matter? Does quality count? Do you want to support something that's banal and insipid? Or do you want to support the mothership? The best wrestling podcast on the planet today. This is a question you need to ask yourself. And I think if you are a reasonable person, if you are at all intelligent, you will stop. You will think about it for a split second. And the answer will be rather apparent. When it comes down to it, when it comes down to them or us, fuck those guys. Support the super podcast. Support your super podcast. And with that, let's go to our next segment. We have more classic audio from 1983 in Philadelphia, this time from April 26th, 1983 in Philadelphia at the Ribbit, Dennis Carluzzo's favorite place, with host Rod Luck, this time on the show he's speaking with Captain Lou Albano and Don Morocco, and of course, many of the drunken patrons of the Ribbit. Let's go to this audio right now. I want to thank Richard Vicek for sending it in, and of course, a longtime friend of the show, Jamie Ward our postal inspector here at the Super Podcast, for sending this into Richard a long while back in the 1980s. We appreciate everyone that contributed to this content ending up in our hands. Let's go to this right now. From April 26, 1983, Captain Louis Albano and the magnificent Don Morocco at the Ribbit with Rob Luck. Johnson will be here to be with us at 7 o'clock tonight to... Uh to uh, talk about his career right now in football since leaving the Eagles and the reasons why leaving the Eagles, what have you. But first of all, would you please welcome to the ribbon, Lou Albano, the captain, and the magnificent Morocco. Come on, guys. Lou. These people, uh, Lou Albano dressed up tonight for you, all for those of you at home. Lou is dressed in black silk and a, uh, and his usual, uh, and his usual decor. Watch out, three of us are sitting up here. Lou, we got about 700 pounds sitting on this uh, on this platform here tonight, on this little balcony overlooking the bar. We may end up on the bar tonight. First of all, uh, Mr. Morocco, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. And also, Captain Lou. Pleasure to be here, brother. Let me ask you a question, Lou. First of all, you got your hair done well, but your your goatee is done with a rubber band. Well, those are special custom-made rubber bands. They cost about $45 a piece. Yeah. We have the number 365. 4100, 365-4100 in Philadelphia to talk to Lou Albano and the magnificent Morocco. And again, at 7 o'clock, Charlie Johnson will be with us right here on the talk station. Again, 215-365-4100. Let me ask you people, first of all, Mr. Morocco, if you don't mind, uh, you people are always good size. We've had Rocky Johnson here. We've had Naturally Gorilla Monsoon. 
but we've had others too. You people, do you spend a lot of time in the gym? Do you, do you work out a lot? Do you spend a lot of time on the weights? That's uh, uh, relative, uh, depending on the travel. You weren't you were really born this way, though. I mean, you're big and you're small. I've been on a diet for about uh, 32 years. <laughs> really? Does it get away from you something? Yeah, a little bit. How do you stay in shape, though, really, besides just not eating like maybe you expect to, uh, like most people would diet? What do you do? Do you, do you since you are traveling, what, about five, sometimes six days a week? Yeah. Well, you got to watch it. you got to uh, attain any, any type of level, any type of professional level. You have to maintain a uh, uh, workout routine. It just uh, goes hand in hand with, uh, with, uh, with, the, uh, with the whole thing. You know, you have to train. Yeah. If you're going to put it in your body, you got to take it out. You're going, you're on the road, you're eating, you can't eat the right food sometimes. You know, the right time, the right balanced diet, uh, drinking or moving, whatever happens to be. You have a lot of trouble with people in, in, in public. I asked this of Rocky Johnson and he said, only until you, you, you let them know that there's not going to be any baloney. But do you have people challenging you constantly? No, not really. Uh, maybe him. Uh, you don't like him, do you? I'm not wild about him. <laughs> a very staid and laid-back remark about a guy who almost knocked off at the second might almost knock your head off with your own belt. Huh? Got lucky. Yeah. I stole my belt. Lou, you, you have a, you've made a name by, by, doing, by being who you are, Captain Lou. Well, I've been the maker of 14 tag team champions, and I'm the proud manager of the one and only Magnificent Morocco, the Intercontinental Champion. And you made a statement about Rocky Johnson almost doing something, but he wasn't capable of doing it. Rocky Johnson's got a big mouth. He goes out and he uh, likes to sound off and say what he can do and what he thinks he can do. But it remains to be seen. We still got Magnificent Morocco as the Intercontinental Champion, and I, I am here to say that he'll be champion for many a day. We got the whole neighborhood down here with you tonight, Lou. They're all we've, got to, we've got to be truthful. We're here. To, we're here to start around We got all our fans. People I believe appreciate great talent. And when you look at Morocco in that ring, it's like poetry in motion. You see a man that stands some six foot three and weighs some 252 pounds and possesses the athletic ability. Forget not only being a great surfer, a great pro football player, but a great professional wrestler with wrestling balance and leverage. The man has it all together. Well, not because the man is here, but I'll match his athletic ability up against any athlete in the world today. I got I got a thousand dollars that says anybody here. No, I'm just kidding, guys. Really. All right, but before we move on, let me let me add something that was just handed to me. Fifth round, Eagles Byron Darby, a linebacker from Southern Cal. Eagles have taken Byron Darby, a linebacker from USC, in the fifth round. They have now taken six ball players. Okay, we have our calls again. Three six five forty one hundred. If you're calling from out of state, it's area code two one five. We are at the river. We have some room. Come on down. And uh, we have Charlie Johnson to follow around seven o'clock tonight. Let's take a first call though. Good evening. Welcome to the river. Hello. Good evening. Yes, sir. Hello. Yeah, I got a question for uh, Magnificent Morocco. When's he going to fight uh, Rocky Johnson again? Is he scared of him or what? It's almost like he's uh, making up excuses for not fighting. He's all big in the interview and all. Are you going to fight on this Saturday? Have you been paying attention? Uh, I, where, are you live in a closet? or? I, I watch TV every Saturday. Have you, have, you, uh, have you been outside lately or bought a newspaper or anything? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, if, if you've been watching, uh, you probably stand out in front of a store window and watch the TV because obviously you haven't been anywhere. Uh, it was just Saturday night myself and John started wrestling uh, Andre, uh, Andre the Wimp and... Uh, <laughs> 
and uh, and then Bonehead Johnson. So uh, Burhead, where's the Burhead? I like I like Burhead. Good wrestler and all, but uh, the challenge is there for Rocky Johnson. Why don't you take him up on it? I took him up on. I still got my belt. Yeah, but uh, hold on. Uh, Albano came in the ring when you were wrestling him. No, not that. We're talking, we're talking history. Now we're talking about Philadelphia now. Yeah, well. Where he wasn't uh, just in the spectrum a couple weeks ago. And uh, he couldn't beat me, couldn't pin me, couldn't make me give up. Uh, had me ble bleeding profusely. And uh, somebody, he was hitting on top of him with your own belt. That hurt, you know. I did. believe it hurt. So, see, me and the chef never said we ain't been knocked down. Yeah. We never said we've been, never been knocked down. But see, we've always gotten up. That's the difference between us and the rest of them that have come and gone. Okay, thank you for calling. Again, 365-4100. We have, again, a microphone downstairs here. Walking around behind that bar there for you. We also have some people upstairs. Let's go upstairs first at the river. Good evening and welcome. Okay, first I have a question for Don, and then I have a question for Lou. Don, what was the reason why you didn't show up for your scheduled match back in September at the Omni against Roddy Piper? Uh, the Omni in Atlanta, right? Okay. Yeah. Not a uh, first place, not enough money. Second place, I've been double-crossed by a uh, complete... Uh, uh, they have the galleries here with a network, uh, network stage by a satellite network. Um, it goes into uh, a big financial uh, money, 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 yeah, money talks and everything else. Why? Okay, captain. And I walk right back to Hawaii. Another question for the captain. Captain, is it Nine. true that you are a linguist and you can speak seven different languages? Well, and it's true. Seven you... languages fluently. And from anything you want, brother, I can English, Spanish, Spanish, French. Yakshamai. Yakshamai. Could you give us an example? You know what he just said. Well, what do, you want me to, what do you want me to say? I mean, uh, you want to hear a little of French? Yeah, French. You want to hear a little bit of French? Yeah, French. You want to hear a little bit of French? Yeah, French. You want to hear a little bit of French? Captain Lou Albano, everybody right there. All right, thank you very much. Okay. All right, before we go any further with Lou Albano and also Don Morocco at the Ribbit Live, we're going to pause for the cause. Hi, it's the boss's daughter for Atlantic Transmission. That noise you hear might be the transmission self-destructing. Yes, the heat of the summer and the cold of the winter all take a toll on your transmission. So if you hear strange noises, see Atlantic for your free transmission checkup. Remember, when your transmission is out of condition, don't get frantic, call Atlantic. Hi, the boss's wife for Atlantic Transmission. Atlantic has a special transmission cleanup for most domestic and imported cars. We will road test your car, inspect the transmission, remove the pan, clean the pan and screen, adjust the linkage, replace the pan gasket, and refill with new fluid. All for just $8.95. You save up to $10. For this special, see your nearest Atlantic Transmission Center. For the Atlantic Transmission Center nearest you, call 546-9100. That's 546-9100. I got something for all of you in case you haven't tried uh, going to the racetrack. Liberty Bell Racetrack has the Dynamite Twin Trifecta. Yes, they do. The Twin Trifecta. Any of you ever played the Twin Trifecta Liberty Bell? You haven't. You probably lost or you wouldn't be here tonight with, uh, with 50 cents in your pocket. But all kidding aside, everybody, the Dynamite Twin Trifecta is simple. The eighth race of Liberty Bell, you go in, you lay your money down, you pick one, two, and three in the eighth. How they'll finish one, two, and three. If they win one, two, and three, they fall the way you thought they would. You pick them the same way in the ninth race. If you win that, you can win up to, well, whatever the pot is. Last week, somebody won $14,000. And each week when there's not a loser, each night, 
the pot gets bigger the next night. Liberty Bell Racetrack, everybody. The Dynamite Twin Trifecta and much, much more. Hottest racing at its best. 8 o'clock post time, 7 o'clock Sundays. Liberty Bell Racetrack. It's not easy being sensitive. But at Royal Order, we are sensitive. We do more than just sell oil filters, spark plugs, batteries, and fan belts. We care about our customers. And we also realize that you don't know how to tune up your own car. They even had to change the windshield wiper blades. So we'll explain each item we sell, and we'll even give you installation pointers on hard-to-do jobs. In this macho business, it isn't easy being sensitive. Oh, by the way, we have great prices, too. Did you know that a dirty air filter wastes gas? Why not change it now to a Fram Extra Life air filter? Fram's unique double filter system lasted 50% longer than a regular Fram filter in lab tests, yet it doesn't cost a penny more. So why not save money on gas by changing to a Fram Extra Life air filter? Now through Sunday on sale at all Royal Auto stores. We're sensitive at Royal Auto. And we're back again at the Ribbon again. Thanks for coming, everybody. Have some room left. Charlie Johnson expected to be here at 7 o'clock. Also, we have right now Don Morocco, the magnificent Morocco, Captain Lou Albano. Lou, where did you ever get the title Captain? Well, it's a self-dubbed uh, uh, name that I gave myself. I'm the guiding light, the maker of champions. Therefore, I thought the captain guides the ship. So being the maker of champions, I call myself Captain Lou Albano. Captain Lou Albano, you got the... I see you. Oh, and I saw how I was at the spectrum a few weeks ago. Julia Serving sat with us. We're up in the press box watching you. And you had, uh, you jumped in the ring. You jumped in the ring. You were in there. You were part of the tag team. Right? Well, I'm merely there as a technical advisor watching my troops move on. <laughs> I'm filming matches in entirety. I don't have to do it, brother. I've got the magnificent Morocco. I've got the Samoans. And by the way, Saturday night, I've got uh, my main man here. Now we're talking about Iron Mike Sharp against the Worldwide Wrestling Federation champion, Bob Backlund. I contemplate a victory, brother. I figure we're going to have a victory. All righty. Okay. all the gold. Let's take another call. Good evening. Welcome to 96.5. Good evening, Bob. How you doing? Fine, thank you. Listen, let me, let me close this up. I'm, I'm here with a friend of yours. You know who. And he's just got a big hand. Listen, I want to thank your producers. They were very courteous. We had a bad line, and I got through. I want to say, can I talk to the captain, please? You see, it's your time. the captain, baby. Go ahead, talk. Captain, I want to say to you, right here on the live, on the radio, with all my friends, listen, you are the idol of the wrestling world. Let me tell you, Rod, with this man's articulation and articulation of any given situation puts him head over heels on everyone in the profession. He is a class A student, of course, of Fred Blassie, and the magnificent one I want to say to you, you are without a doubt the champion of all champions, and there is one other who calls himself champion, Howdy Doody, who's afraid of it. You know, my good man, to hear words of wisdom and to hear a two gentlemen speak does my heart good. You're, you're a brilliant man. Thank you, Colonel. Get him out of here. Get out of here. Let's, let us take another phone call, please. Good evening. Welcome to 96.5 with Lou Abano and Don Morocco. Yeah, man. I got a few questions for Don Morocco and a few for Lou Abano. All right. Make it quick. I'm Don. What are you for, Jimmy Snooker? You scared him? You scared Jimmy Snooker? Oh, no. Why should I be scared of Jimmy Snooker? Because I'll beat him. Because what? Because I'll beat him. Oh, he won't beat me? Why should he beat me? Hasn't anybody beat me yet? I want to talk to Lou Albano. Hey, Lou. You got him? Yeah, go ahead, brother. Uh, how come you ain't got to keep bragging about your championships? Nobody beat Pally Duty yet. Well, let me tell you something. We're ready right now. We got Saturday night at the Philadelphia Spectrum. You got Iron Mike Sharp is going for the gold, baby. And I contemplated victory. You be there watching. And uh, you're right. Uh, Jimmy, uh, Lou, how come Pat Patterson got 
in an exceptional range of sizes. Sizes 36 to 54, regular, shorts, longs, extra longs, and portlies. <laughs> Captain, you can get a suit at this place. They sell portlies at this place. Oh, they do sell portlies. Well, Captain, be there in the morning, brother. All right, my man. I'm ready to go. Flax outerwear and furnishings in all sizes. Everything 35 to 50 percent below the regular retail cap. You can afford yeah, it. Yeah, he might have jacked them up before. I want to see what the man's doing. All right. <laughs> well, we're going to lose the sponsor in the morning. They have a women's factory stock room, too. It has designer labels 35 to 50 percent off. Dresses, suits, coats, and sportswear. Two midi shade locations, 16th and Callow Hill in Philly, the 9900 block of Frankfurt Avenue. Both stores open daily from 10 in the morning till 9 at night. Hi, folks. This is Big Al of Al Rubin Appliances, in Wyoming, here to tell you that Mother's Day is May the 8th. Now, we all love our mamas, and to help you give mama a break, Al Rubin Appliances, in Wyoming, has assembled a spectacular array of values for you so you can show your mama just how much you love her. Tell them, Ken. That's right, Dad. We have all brands of microwaves from 139 to keep your mama cooking. A 13-inch color portable TV for 188 so mama can watch her soaps. A Eureka Upright Vacuum Cleaner for $58 to help mama really clean up. Buy mama her own phone for just $13 so she can sit chat with all her friends. And all kinds of radios from 199 so mama can listen to WWDB. Get it, Dad? That's right, Ken. These values are so good, you might buy them yourself. So take advantage. Come on down to Al Rubin Appliance. In Wyoming, Sini Big Al, Sun Ken, Manager Smiling Bennett, Swingin' Ed, Nature Skate, Hilarious Harvey, Generous George, Jumpin' Jerry, and Blazing Ben, so you won't be ashamed of yourself. Don't forget, Al Rubin Appliances is the place to go, everybody, so your mama won't be ashamed of you. Get your mama something for Mother's Day right around the corner. You got a mama, Lou? Oh, I wish my mama were here, brother. My mama's done passed away. Really? But for Mama's Day, all you mamas get out there and get yourself something good. Yeah. Yes, sir, Mama. Would you consider yourself something good for some mama out there? I'll be very good for any mama to want. Okay, let's go. <laughs> let's continue right along, everybody. Again, we have a full board of calls. That patient, you'll get in the talk with Don Morocco and Lou Albano. Let's go live again at the Ribbon Upstairs. Good evening. Yes, yeah, gentlemen, I've been following wrestling since I was a child, and I'm 18 years old now, and I've studied the sport very carefully. I'd like to say, Captain Lou, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Let's tell the truth. You've had, what, 14 tag team sessions? That's right, brother. Well, listen, sir. I, I mean, we all know. Let's be honest here. You've gotten every title by cheating. You stuck your hand in the ring. You tripped someone. Uh, oh, no. God, God, God. You, There's your answer from the fans out there. They can tell you. It's merely an optical illusion, brother. The captain does not cheat. It doesn't matter whether you win or lose as long as you cheat. Remember well, let's say something. Right here, In other words, the main thing, baby, is the captain got to go some 14 times, brother. So you can say what you want, you can think what you want. It's merely an optical illusion. I, I have never interfered well, right in that in any way whatsoever. All right, all right, all right, I got that. But my buddy and I want to challenge you to a ribbit death match right here. Uh, okay. With barbecue sauce. Give me a favor, son. You won't make your 18th and a half yeah, birthday. The best thing you better do is go back and have another drink and wait for your 19th birthday. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, if you don't mind, uh, let's take another call here on 96.5. Good evening. Rod, before I uh, ride into, let me get my questions in here. Okay. Um, I have one for you and one for each of your guests. All righty. First of all, Don, I heard about your unfortunate uh, count out last night in the garden. But um, can you tell me if, what your next match is going to be in the garden? Will it be a tag match or will it be one-on-one -on -one with Rocky or what? No, it's a return. It's a it's a return one on one with uh, Rocky Johnson. This is last chance. Texas death or anything like that, or is it just a street? Uh, we haven't really gotten the stipulations yet, as of yet, what it's what's happening on it. But uh, yeah, he's got a chance. He gets uh, everybody will get their chance. Look, will get their chance. Uh, 
everybody's got their chance. Some people accuse me of dodging people, but I only have you know one body. It can be in so many towns at one time. We're going from uh, Africa all the way to Japan, and I, I I got a lot of places to be. So everybody just got to stand in line and wait. I, thank you very much. Okay, let me ask something of uh, of, of Captain Lou and also Morocco, if I may. Hey, it's a lucrative business, but I, I remember Billy Robinson telling me one day that you people have to pay for your own insurance. It's nothing, I mean, it's tough, so it's a tough... Yes, you've got your own hospitalization, and uh, you're on your own, and uh, throughout a year's period, I'd say that every professional wrestler working some four or five times a week has got to lose two to three months with either a broken ankle or a cracked wrist or a, a cracked vertebrae. There's always got to be something from a bad fall or yeah. from uh, outside the ring, and you've got to get hurt, so it's a, it's a lucrative business, yes, but it can involve money on your part because the insurance is so high that uh, probably it's, it's really uh, it's going to run you into a big buck. Are you ever looking for new talent? Well, you're also always looking for talent. Yes, say. I'm always scouting for talent. I've got some of the best in the world today, but I'm always looking for top talent, uh, fellas that have been uh, amateur champions or national AAU or uh, great athletes in the in sport and did no wrestling. I'd be glad to look at anybody. How about uh, you, do you take women wrestlers? Uh, that's not my field, but there's always a first. <laughs> so we, might, we can give it a try. Okay. Again, three. 365-4100, the number to call. We are Dan with calls. Be patient. Let's go downstairs here at the River. Good evening and welcome. <clears throat> Two things. One. <laughs> so Morocco, just like to say, you're the best thing to come to Philadelphia since the soft pretzel. <laughs> Number two, I'd like I say to Captain, what do you do to keep yourself in such good a shape? Well, it's, it's, it's not too much to Captain keep it in shape, brother, because uh, my wrestling days are gone. The Captain, uh, uh, let's be honest, I wouldn't put myself up against any fair wrestler. I'm merely a manager. I'm merely the guiding light. I'm merely very elusive. When I get into that ring, it's surprise, surprise, but I don't consider myself a professional wrestler because there's no wrestler in the business today that the Captain could compete with. But to be in professional wrestling, you've got to be a top condition, top shaped athlete. You've got to be at it all the time. And a man of my age and with uh, uh, my weight, I would not consider myself a professional wrestler. Merely a mental strategist, a genius, and the maker of champion. Thank you very much. Let's take another phone call. Good evening. Welcome to 96.5 in the Ribbon. the offensive tackle, he, 
He's rowing boats or anything. He says it's a, it's a game of winning. That's how you get to the top. And Andre the Giant, whether he's got 87 teeth or 112, it's not known yet for sure. But uh, regardless of, uh, of what it is, yeah, I'd wrestle Andre the Giant. I'd wrestle his mother, his brother. I don't know. I'd wrestle anybody. All right. Thank All right. you so much. Thank you. Did you have one more question? Make it yeah. quick, then, please. And Captain Luke. Yeah, both. If um, Mike, if Iron Mike Sharp got that um forearm and uh, problem, and he used that protective arm pad for um help, why has he been wearing it so long ever since he came into professional wrestling? Well, I said he doesn't need the protective arm pad, but merely as a protective device, so he doesn't re-injure the arm. We put that arm pad on, just like uh, Jimmy Snooker wears knee pads, and uh, certain football players wear shoulder pads, even though they don't have shoulder injuries, they'll still wear them as a protective device. All right, thank you so much. Let's take another call. Good evening. Welcome to the Rivet. Hello? Yes. Hello? Go ahead. Um, when, when is Ray the Crippler Stevens going to wrestle Snooker? When is what? Ray the Crippler Stevens. Crippler Stevens? When is he going to wrestle Snooker? Uh, he's already wrestled uh, Jimmy Snooker in several spots. Yes. In several places, and he's uh, waiting for a Spectrum match. We're uh, negotiating at the time, and there's nothing definite. This Saturday night, you've got the Magnificent Morocco and... Big John Studd with Sweet Hanson, a special referee, against Andre the Giant and his partner, Rocky Johnson. So this is going to be a great one. You've also got my man against Bob Backlund, and that is Iron Mike Sharp. And you've also got the Samoans against the Indians. So that's going to be a big one in the spectrum this Saturday night. Little wagon. Thank you. All right, go ahead. One more question, quick. Good luck. All right, get out of here now. Thank you, you very much, brother. <laughs> go do your homework, okay? Let's take one more call, if we may, right now. Good evening. Welcome to 96.5. Oh, yes, I have two things. First, Mr. Rocker. Yes, I would like to wish you the best of luck with Rocky Johnson. I think that guy is a bomb. We just found out that Michael Haddock's number one draft pick of the of the Eagles will be with us at 7.05 tonight right here at the Rivet via the telephone, it looks like. And uh, we've had him on already by way of a, a, uh, an interview we did earlier today. But Michael Haddock live by way of the telephone. Again, Lou Albano and also right here, John the Magnificent Morocco, they call him. We have microphones downstairs. Also, upstairs, we got we got a microphone situation down there. We got somebody. Let's go downstairs at the Rivet if we may. Okay. Uh, I have a question for you, Mr. Luck. Yeah. My name is Fitz. Yeah, Fitz. Okay. Now, since you didn't uh, wrestle Gorilla Monsoon because he was retired. He didn't want to. Okay. Because yeah. he was retired and he didn't want to. Why don't you wrestle Lou Albano? <laughs> I don't like fat people. Now, he'll kill you. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't listen to Rocky. Ronnie's he's hallucinating a little bit, so we, we can't go by what he said. Get the little words in front of him are screwing his mind up. Lou? He's very close to me. Go ahead, Lou. Lou. Make sure you use them rubber bands I gave you. There now, you okay? go. Maybe we got them all together. All right. Thank you very much again. Hello, you do wear rubber bands, or you wear this around you. See, people at home, you have the well, rubber bands. It's merely to look neat and tidy. I like to keep my beard together at all times. You know, I like to keep myself well groomed. You notice the attire. I like to dress well. And uh, I spent about seventeen dollars last week. <laughs> I like to keep it that way. <laughs> okay. I, you know, I, I, I got to answer a question. There's somebody again stopped me today, and they said, what are you putting the wrestlers on the radio for? I said, you know, I've gone out this year, it's been twice now to the spectrum, and you have not done less than 16,000 people yet. You people in the audience program this program, and uh, we want to bring you who you want. 
And I've got to tell you right now that these people, the times that they have been here, and we have everybody. We've had Jaworski, we've had, and we've had them all. We bring you to the, the sports makers and the newsmakers. But believe me, the night that, uh, the night, the night that they, that, uh, that tonight Lou Albano is here and also, uh, Don Morocco and Grill Monsoon's been here, of course, and, uh, and went all the way down the line. We have not done good crowds like this, but yet for these people, and I want to again say it's a compliment to you. The people love you. Well, it's a compliment to us, but it's also a compliment to the people of Philadelphia because they're very sports-minded and they're great fans, whether it be football or wrestling or boxing or hockey or uh, Dr. J or whatever you call it, brother. They're great, great sports fans. All right, now, if somebody comes up to you and says, I don't think wrestling's a sport, I don't believe it, it's nothing, it doesn't do a thing for me sport-wise. Well, all I can say is this, they're entitled to their opinion. But let me tell you, there are wrestlers I've bobbed back with, Magnificent Morocco, uh, Rocky Johnson, you can put them all. They're open to challenges in the gymnasium. Anyone willing to sign a contract? They're open waivers, anyone would like. If they feel it's easy money and they can do it, we'll go in there and do it. Last year in professional wrestling, we had 19 deaths. This can be authenticized throughout the United States. Seven in New York, one in Pennsylvania, three in Colorado. It's been all over the talking about in the crowd. People having people passing out. They hate let me, let me say people watching them. Them. getting excited. See what we, what we are. See what we have, and, and you watch, you have football, and you have base, and, and everybody does their part, and, and maybe people don't like to give wrestlers credit for, for what they are or what they have, but what we do give the people, and we, we, we've never we've never cheated anybody, but we do have people like myself have, people like uh, the captain have, we have charisma, we have excitement, we have everything, and we deliver. When the time comes, we deliver, and it doesn't go, that's why you can't buy tickets to the Spectrum half the time. Yeah. You can't buy tickets to the garden. They're, 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 they're uh, scalping tickets. No reason to defend yourself. I sat next to Julius Irving at the last time you were here and we sat there and we talked about an event and the fact that it's good. It's the greatest Dr. J came down and said, Captain, we love it. We love what you're doing. We appreciate it. That's you nice. can talk to Ernie Ladd, a good friend of mine, who is eight-time All-Pro with San Diego and with the Kansas City Chiefs. And Ernie is a professional wrestler. And he said, Captain, they're the finest athletes in the world today. Men like Andre that weigh 450 pounds, brother, can move and groove and can do it all, yep. put it together, can suplex, can chicken wing. They have a balance, wrestling balance and knowledge. And then they added showmanship. The magnificent Morocco is often imitated but never duplicated. <laughs> hey, man. Hey, hey, man. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, brother. Okay, let's take a call again. 365-4100. Good evening. Thanks for waiting. Um, I got a question for the Magnificent Morocco. Uh, why haven't you used your Asiatic spike in the, the last couple of uh, you know, months? Your Asiatic spike. I prefer the... Uh, I like that, but uh, I prefer uh, using uh, that... Uh, Moroccan hammer, that new type of the inverted pile driver, I I kind of picked up, I kind of invented when I was in Japan, because that uh, you can really you can really hear somebody's head roll, you can really hear <laughs> you can really you can really hear the, the you can really hear the bones crack and the <laughs> and the neck the neck pop and uh, that kind of makes me feel good when I drop somebody on their head. <laughs> And, I, and that's what it's all about, feeling good and having a good time. That's what everybody else, everybody here is doing. Thank you for calling. Okay. Again, we're at the Rivet, uh, 1709 Walnut, everybody. Charlie Johnson to come our way. 
around 7.10. We have Michael Haddock, Eagles number one draft pick, will be on the phone with us at 7.05. Got a final for you. Houston 2, Montreal, nothing this afternoon. San Diego just now defeated the Chicago Cubs 10-8 in the American League. Cleveland 7, Minnesota 1, and more as they come in. Eagles draft picks, I will uh, update for you at 7, uh, well, right after we get done with uh, Haddock's, I guess, or before, while we're waiting for him and before Charlie Johnson. We're going to have Don Morocco and also Captain Lou Albano now. Let's go uh, back downstairs again at the Ribbon. Good evening. Okay, Captain and Don, I'd like to congratulate you on being the true champions that you are. And outside of Mike Sharp, Jimmy Snooker, or Buddy Rose, when are we going to see some new wrestlers in this area? We keep on getting the same guys, great like Ivan Koloff that they are, but we'd like to see some new blood here. They're, they're, they're over the cream rises to the top. That's why I'm back here as soon as I am. That's why Sergeant Slaughter is back here. That's why you have, because you have men that can perform, men that can deliver. Sure, there are other guys. Sure, there's, there's time. Sure, you're talking about little, nice little, cute little Tommy Rich in Atlanta. He's sweet. They have nice. Uh, but but he, he, has, he has arms like a straw. See, and, and if he got a ring with, with a man like Bob Backlund or the NWA champ like Ric Flair with arms like this straw, I think Bob Backlund or myself would would happen to would just uh, would would uh, would would probably up for uh, some type of criminal indictment that we heard him so bad. So uh, so only the uh, only the top talent. Comes here. The cap, uh, the cap looks around. He finds the Samoans. Have you ever seen any two people any meaner, uglier than the Samoans? <laughs> Very interesting. Okay, let me let me get this young gentleman right up here who has been yeah, here. Yeah, I'll give it, give it to me and I'll pass him on. Wrestling. You mentioned the Samoans. That's going to be something special, brother. The Samoans against the Indians in the Spectrum Saturday night. And when you look at the Samoans, you got to realize the Samoans are very ugly only, people. They're not ugly in my book. They're they very ugly people. When I you them look, like look like pretty good. Huh? What do you think you look like if you weren't the Samoans? You, you don't look too good right here. I've been a big old Samoan. You don't look too good right here. You don't look too pretty right here. What do you think you do to the Samoans? They walk around with them big machete knives trimming the grass. Maybe they can take care of my snides. You got the face that only a mother can love. You mother, you are right. Let's take another call. Good evening. Welcome to 96.5. Hi, I have a question for the captain. Okay. Go on, brother. Yeah, when's the last time you took a bath? <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. Uh-huh. And Tom Rocket. The last time you had water in your house. All right, let's Ask your mama. <laughs> All right, thank you. Let's get him off the air. All right. <laughs> Before we go any further, I have to ask a very important question of these gentlemen. Do you know what I'm going to talk about right now? Bill! That's right. I got to this is very serious business, okay? And I'm reading a telegram sent to me from your commissioner. To a lot of men, impotence is an embarrassment or a tragedy. A lot of pro wrestlers suffer from impotence. Before, after, and during your matches. I'm not just talking about older wrestlers now. Young wrestlers, too, Mr. Morocco. Nothing makes a man feel less like a man or a wrestler less like a wrestler than the inability to have a healthy sex life. You know, this guy sounds a little squishy to me, brother. <laughs> they say that 10 million men in America are struggling with the problem. Are you one of them, Mr. Morocco? Let me say right now. <laughs> if there is any doubt... <laughs> In any lady's mind, before, but, during, gotta, or after. <laughs> let, me, let me shut that microphone off, please. But in all seriousness, somebody pays for this commercial. <laughs> they really do. And they do say that, again, uh, the, the malfunction in your system is due to a poor diet. Well, uh, <laughs> like in my case, I can't be true, brother. Because <laughs> there ain't nothing that the captain won't eat. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, wait, wait, this this location will be a parking lot tomorrow. <laughs> let, me, <laughs> let me tell you one thing though. Again, a balanced diet is very important. And to add to your balanced diet, Bison Products newest creation, what is it called? That's right, Viral, everybody. The man's formula. Viral can help you. 30-day supply costs only $18.95 delivered. Call right now, toll-free. Visa and MasterCard accepted, as well as checks, money orders, COD, or chicken. The toll-free number is 1-800-441-7626. You're rubbing on your hair. All right, 1-800-441-7626. If the lines are busy, hang up and try again. 1-800-441-7626. Come around with some of them clubs after the wrestling matches. You won't need no Viral. <laughs> we'll be right back. There's never been a better time to own the road on an exciting new 83 Honda. As Keystone Honda in Westchester has them in stock and ready to go. Just see how you fit on the new Shadow 750 or the Nighthawk 650. Keystone Honda guarantees customer satisfaction and stocks everything for the motorcycle enthusiast. Certified technicians take care of your new Honda after the sale, keeping you out front and pulling ahead. 705 East J Street in Westchester or call 436-6400. Keystone Honda believes motorcyclists deserve respect. All right, everybody, back at the river. We're live again. Charlie Johnson will be with us around 7.10 tonight. Charlie Johnson around 7.10. Again, I'm Rod Luck, and we have Lou Albano and Don Morocco with us. Let's take another call. Good evening. Welcome to 96.5. Lou, I have three questions for you. I'll make them fast. Um, what I'd like to know, how come every time you're in a match and and you're trying to come in, you get tagged to go in, you either jump right out or you never even bother to um, get into the match? Well, what are you, what are you getting at? Well, you're always checking it out. You never even bother well, to get Well, I'm really there. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm there as a, uh, a device to distract my opponents if it, it works out, baby. Yeah, well, you like to cheat a lot, too. I don't yeah, know. well, I mean, that's what, that's what you call cheating. That's what I call mental strategy. <laughs> thank Making you. money. And thank you for calling. We've got another guest here live upstairs at the River. Good evening. Uh, good evening. My name is Zachary. My comments are directed to the captain. Go ahead, Zach. I care. You so don't mind if I call you Zach, do you? Thank you, Lou. Okay, so we're both enjoying a great meal at the Ribbit. Thank you. And I would like to share this meal with some of the dapper, sophisticated, bon vivants, the moon dogs. So I have in my hand a plate of leftover bones. Could you please forward that to Rex and King for me? If the moon dogs were close by now, I sure would. You're a pretty intelligent man, but they happen to not be at hand at the time. But perhaps we can put them in a doggy bag and save them for the Samoa. <laughs> and we'll trade those two for a couple of tickets to Saturday Night Wrestling at the Spectrum. Thank you for coming. Let's take a phone call. Good evening. Welcome to 96.5. Yeah, well, how much am I going to get this week when I go down there and slam Big John Stud really easy? What did you say? How much am I going to get when I go down there and slam Big John Stud? You're gonna. How much you gonna get when you slam big? You're gonna get about a six thousand dollar doctor bill for a couple of hernias. <laughs> okay, okay. Let's take another call. Good evening. Welcome you're gonna to get a couple of acres, brother. That's what you're gonna get. A couple of acres, and I'm not talking about land. <laughs> Good evening. Blue. Go ahead. Billy is the number one drawing card in wrestling. Blue. These people don't realize that you were a tag team champion, and you and your farm were just as good as any of these guys out 
Uh, we're talking about the past, brother. That's all downhill. Right. right now, today, the world champions are the Samoans. They're the finest combined effort in the world today. Blue, and blue. singly, Don Morocco is never duplicated. Blue. Do you feel that uh, the best tag team champions you ever have with the Valiant Brothers in pride? I cannot say the Valiant Brothers because the Samoans are the only tag team champions that have won it three times. Three times. So they're the only ones in history. All right, one more question. Yep. Don Morocco. Don, make it quick. Don, did you ever get a good match with uh, King Kong Mosca for what he did to you at the special? Uh, no, I didn't. You, are, are you looking forward to wrestling him? You know, I'm looking forward to wrestling anybody if I get paid enough. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, please, let's see. Downstairs, we have somebody here at the river. Good evening. Hey, Mr. Morocco. Brother, how are you doing? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, sir. Okay. Well, we're running short on time. As an avid surfer, I know you know what a 20-foot swell can do to somebody at the pipeline. And I'd like to see you do that to Rocky Johnson Saturday night. Yeah. Break his back. If you're a real surfer, you wouldn't know that they don't, they can't, you can't surf pipeline over around up to 20 feet. But thank you anyway. All right. Let's take another call from somebody at home. Good evening. Welcome to the river. Yeah, right. Let me, all right. Uh, let me tell the cat. I'll be up there Saturday night. I'm going to see him, all right? Okay. Goodbye. Let's take another phone call. Good evening. Welcome. Hello? Okay. Yes, sir. Hello. Uh, uh, Make it quick, okay? Yeah, okay, I will. Uh, Captain, about 12 years ago, you, you managed Ivan Cora? That's right, brother. What? Yeah, and uh, so you led him to the World Championship. So uh, how come you're not managing him this time? I didn't have time to the didn't have time this time, and Freddie Blassie is my good friend, so he devoted the time, and I thought that it would be a better deal on uh, for Blassie and also for Ivan Kolov's career. All right, thank you so much. Quickly, our last guest tonight at the River for Lou Albano and Don Morocco. Good evening, miss. Hello. Captain, I have a question for you. My name is Claire Mack, and I am publisher of In Action Magazine, which is sitting right on Rod's table right now. Can you tell me why? Vince McMahon and those people will not allow us small independent magazines to get interviews with you fellas. All I can get is these uh, um, guys from the independent companies. Uh, uh, I would love to interview. I believe that the, that perhaps there is a mix-up because I don't feel that Vince McMahon uh, cares who interviews who. It is open enterprise. Anyone can be interviewed. I will give interviews to anyone that wants. Morocco will give interviews to anyone who wants. So will any other wrestler at any time. Can so I, I would not, the... even though I dislike the Vince McMahon Jr. We cannot say Vince McMahon. We cannot say uh, Mickey Mouse. We cannot say Charlie Brown. We cannot say anyone. Anyone who wants an interview can have it at any time from myself or any of my men. Is that possible to get your phone number so that I can get interviews? Well, uh, uh, she heard the viral commercial and got excited, Lou. <laughs> okay, again, we have a minute before we before they have to go. Please, again, before they do go, let me ask them one question. Gentlemen, Saturday night is a big night again, as usual, Don. And uh, every time you come to the spectrum, you do very, very well. Well, we uh, we like to do well. It's uh, it uh, the crowd really. When there's electricity there, when when everything's happening, when there's 19,000 people screaming at you, 19,000 people trying to trying to spit on you, yeah. telling you telling you how much they hate you, then it's got to turn you on. All right, so you have Bob back on Iron Mike Sharp. They're also going to Morocco and Big John Stedigan, Rocky right against Rocky Johnson, Andre the Giant. It's all Saturday. Lou, thanks for coming, and you, Don, thanks for coming. Oh, all right, everybody. Right here in the 
There it is, more classic audio from 1983 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania with Captain Lou Albano and Don Morocco on Rod Lux Radio Show. Big thanks to Lou Kippelman for helping me clean up that file, and I do apologize for anyone who had any audio issues. I think it's okay, but it wasn't perfect, and I kind of want everything to be perfect, and I apologize that it wasn't, but there was only so much we can do. The original audio on the cassette wasn't the greatest, but we felt the content was so good that we just needed to share it, because it's not every day you get to hear Albano and Morocco in a bar hanging out with bar patrons, and a wild radio host, and that's what we got right there with that classic audio. But from there, let's go to our next segment. I had a ch- Oh, no. Hey! Hey, Lastor, are we on the air? We are on the air, unless I uh, edit this out. Long time no see, my brother. I've been rebranding myself while we've been on this brief hiatus. Rebranding yourself? Yeah. Going forward, my knee-slapping humor is going to be a lot more sports-centric. <laughs> well, what do you mean? I mean, each punchline, whether it kills or merely shits the bed, is going to mean something. <laughs> I, yes. I, it sounds a little singers familiar. Singers and bombs are going to count. <laughs> I, think I've heard, I think I've heard someone talk similar to this recently. Fascinating. It could have been me. But uh, the big news, that isn't even the big news. The big news is that your old buddy, old humble hot dog here, uh, y'all ready for this? Oh, God. It's big news. This is bigger than Too Cold Scorpio on some of those boogies, big blue boner pills. We're talking big. <laughs> and I'm giving you the scoop, my post office Hawaiian brother. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, what's this scoop? What are you working on, Hot <laughs> I have just been signed to a tremendous exclusive three-year contract to continue... The Hot Dog and Lasto Show, right here on this station, and, drumroll please, all right, <laughs> I have been named Executive Vice President of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast well, hold on, Network. hold on, hold on, let's, let's not go yeah. crazy. No, you haven't. There's no, I, there's no contract, and you're certainly no Executive Vice President, I will say that. High five me, Brian. How am I going to do that? All right, then, self-high five. <laughs> you know, your listeners can't see this, but this studio is like a sea of confetti right now with this big announcement. Is it a sea of confetti? Maybe it's a, maybe it's a cloud of confetti. Yeah. <laughs> freak out, freak out. You're on a roll today, Hot Dog, I'll say. Well, I don't want to just gloat and run here, but I'm so busy with my new executive VP duties. I guess the next time I see you is going to be on the red carpet before the... Uh, Great big 605 Super Podcast, big 100th episode, right? There's not going to be a red carpet, and uh, uh, the next time you talk to me, we'll certainly be on the 605 Super Podcast 100th episode. Well, no red carpet, ah, uh, but we're still going with matching sequin jackets and hi-hats, right? <laughs> we are not doing that. No hi-hats. Well. <laughs> as some may say. We'll talk about that off-air. Well, I just can't wait, Lasto. Hey, Lasto. Or should I say President Lasto? Yes, hot dog. <laughs> we gotta go. We do, but this isn't the top ten, so you don't get to sign us out. We do have to go, legitimately, to our next segment, and this is a segment I was really looking forward to recording for quite a while. I've been trying to get this guy on the show, and finally, our schedule's worked out. And that is Chad Austin. Chad has a really interesting story. If you watched ECW in 1994, you saw a lot of Chad Austin, and you realize he was getting a pretty interesting little push and then it kind of just went away. 
Chad is also a major wrestling fan to this very day. So this is a really fun conversation, and hopefully Hot Dog doesn't interrupt it any further than he already has this show. But with that said, let's go to this conversation I had with, I was about to say Stone Cold Chad Austin, but I'll just say this conversation I had with Chad Austin. I am happy to welcome to the Super Podcast today someone I've actually wanted to talk to for a long while. I know a lot of old ECW fans remember him. I know a lot of fans in Maryland remember him, and they saw him first. And that is Chad Austin, or dare I say, Stone Cold Chad Austin. But Chad, welcome to the show. You make it sound like I died. Like, people remembered me. <laughs> like, like, literally, I'm done? <laughs> That's it? Well, you'll be the one to answer that, I assume. Well, I'm talking. Well, you are talking, and we are very happy to have you here on the show today. And Great to be here, Brian. Before anything else, and I want to talk to you all about your wrestling career, but let's go back to you as a fan, because that's one of the things about you. When people watch you wrestle, when people hear you today on the show, you've always been a fan. You're not someone who got into the business and wasn't a fan, or someone who got into the business and stopped liking wrestling. You are a hardcore fan. When did you first start watching wrestling? What was the first wrestling you watched, and what were the first guys that really reached out and connected with you? Uh, well, I would say in 1977, my father said he took me to the Bruno San Martino, um, Billy Graham match. I would have been five. So obviously I wouldn't remember it, but probably my earliest remembrance is, uh, the chief J strongbow when, when Greg Valentine broke his leg. Were you a big strongbow fan? No, I was just not. (laughs) I was like, well, he broke his leg. (laughs) <laughs> and he wore a shirt that said he broke his leg. <laughs> he bragged about it. Of course, that was something he did in Mid-Atlantic with Wahoo. I broke Wahoo's leg. Yeah, I can't wait to get that shirt. As soon as I find this stupid little place in the mall that does a screen print, I'm getting a Wahoo. I broke Wahoo's shirt. <laughs> so you grew up in Maryland, correct? All my life, man. Because obviously you have, and you and I briefly discussed it off air, you have a Wikipedia page, which is kind of out of control. It claims that you were from New Jersey. It claims that you were trained by Don Owen. Not not to mention that I was also known as Pat Patterson Jr. (laughs) I I have absolutely no idea where that came from. So when did you first break into wrestling? Who did train you? Honestly, to tell you the truth, nobody trained me. If anybody, it was a group of people. It would have been Axel. It would have been Ian. It would have been Nick Caratino. Them guys. The guys that were there, like... You know, at the time, Dwayne Gill, Barry Hardy, who's my uncle, by the way. Oh, wow. Oh, no, don't. I'm not bragging. So wait, was this like 1990, 1991, around that period of time? Yeah, I started training in 1990, but it was 91 where they ran a show, like literally like two blocks from my house. And I sold like 100 tickets. So I, I got on the show. I mean, that building was sold out with 75 people. You should, have, you should have seen all the hot dogs that were just being slung out the window there at the Stony Creek Democratic Club. How would you describe Maryland independent wrestling at this period of time, the early 1990s? In the early 1990s? It was ridiculous. Nobody was any good because nobody knew what anybody was doing. Like, nobody was, nobody was good enough to teach anybody how to be better. Does that make any sense? Like, everybody was at the same level. So there wasn't anybody... Until, like, um, MTW came along. That's when, like, Maryland started getting better. When they got, like, Joey Mercury, Alita, people like that, when they came along, then we started getting better as performers. 
So I mean, that's much later. Well, it would have been it would have been more like um, around ninety six, ninety seven is when they started bringing in the ECW guys, and then around ninety eight and ninety nine is when we started cropping our own guys. And then, like once two thousand came, we were like we, we were rolling. We had a great crew of guys. Like everybody could work. You know, you could put anybody in a match with anybody any given night, and we could all dance. One of the names I remember from the newsletters and even the wrestling magazines, his name got in there, was Morgus the Maniac. Tell me about Morgus oh the Maniac. Oh, boy. Uh, I, I love Morgus the Maniac, but I don't love working Morgus the Maniac. <laughs> Why is that? Um, there's no calling spots. It's just, you, it, I mean, just imagine, Brian, and this year, like, like a Bruiser Brody, no matter what you say to him, it doesn't matter, but, but he, he wouldn't hurt you. He would just dominate the match. You understand? He, he, you know, he wouldn't like kill you, but he would kill you. But we, at the end of the match, he would hug you and be like, brother. Yeah. He's still a good friend of mine as, to, to this day. As a matter of fact, me and my girlfriend wandered to his house because his pool, his pool fucking fell apart <laughs> and we helped bail him out. Like the side fell out of it. Remember that? Yeah, the side fell off the pool because it was like raining or something, and it over and it overfilled, and it just collapsed. And we went over there to help bail his yard out. When you look at this period of time, though, the early 1990s, before you even got to Philadelphia, who did you enjoy working with? Who were the first guys that you felt you really clicked with in the ring? Oh man, Shane Shamrock. They still have a Shane Shamrock Cup in Maryland every year, and Shane Shamrock, somebody you don't even know about. You have no idea who Shane Shamrock is. Well, I know a little bit about him, but let the listeners know about him and tell me more about him. Well, he was a uh, he was a kid that went to MTW. He was an incredible talent. Like he was a natural for the business. He could do anything, like flip wise. He could work, whatever. But he just unfortunately he was killed. What they said, suicide by police. It was an unfortunate incident. Yeah, that's what I remember. I remember that story, and it's always just so crazy when you read about something like that. It's not big enough that it's going to be covered by by whatever beyond the ring story, but there is still some questions behind the story that I don't know about. Well, maybe at some point we need to dive in deeper to that. Well, maybe sometimes we can dive in deeper to that. (laughs) There's something for a future conversation right there, but let's go back to you. Let's go back to you in the ring. I remember starting to see you in 1993, so if we go a little bit before that, 91, 92, into 93, what influenced you as a worker? Because you took really good bumps. What were you watching at the time? Were you getting Japanese tapes? Eddie Gilbert. It was all Eddie Gilbert. Well, tell me about Eddie. Tell me about your relationship with Eddie. Uh, he was, he was kind of like my, because of, because of my body type, the size that I was. I wasn't a big guy. Neither was he. So I, I watched him and I saw how he sold and I said, I'm going to sell like that. I sell big, right? You know, you know, how when Lawler would punch Gilbert, he'd take that big bump or, you know what I mean? Like that's the way I would sell. So if you watch like any of my matches, when some guys throw me into the turnbuckle or whatever, that I take the big, the big bump or it takes three punches to put me down. And that, that last punch is the one that's brutal. You understand? How long, though, until you realized that Eddie was bumping the way he was because of the injuries he sustained in that car accident? I, have, I, I never had any idea about that. 
that that wasn't the way I looked at it because it didn't affect me. You understand? Like I, I I didn't get hurt by doing that. I just thought they were good bumps, and it really kind of all depended on the ring also too. If it was Larry Sharp's rings, <laughs> um, it, it wasn't the greatest bumps in the world. I, I looked like I was Jose Estrada taking that little rolling bump kind of kind of thing. Did you work much for Larry? Uh, yeah, I did a bunch of yeah, I worked a bunch of them guys, Larry and Dennis. I mean, just undercard. That was pretty much the loop, I would assume, for guys coming out of Maryland. It was basically Maryland, Delaware, Pennsylvania, Southern New Jersey. Yeah, because well, Carluzzo would have a show on Friday and Saturday. There were two ball shows, and then Sunday Maryland would run. So it'd be like it'd be like some little shitty town in Jersey, another little shitty town in Jersey, and then you drive back home to Maryland, and then you have a show in Maryland. And was Maryland starting to pick up at this period of time? Was it still a nice sellout at 75 people or going into 93 yeah. with the crowds getting bigger? No, you got you got to you got to kind of fast forward past 93. You got to you got to go into like 97. It's when it's when the it's when the booker finally decided and, and it's it's funny cuz the, the guy's name is Dennis Whipwreck and that's how Mikey Whipwreck got his name because Dennis Whipwreck promoted the show for ECW in Maryland. And Paul claims that he fucked him on money. And so when Mikey got his job, they asked him for a name. He didn't have a name. And then Ian Rodden said, Whipwreck. Because and Paul goes, yeah, that's it. It was a period of time where any other promoter in that area got named because also there was a jobber, Joel Hartgood, instead of Joel Goodhart. Yeah, Dino Sendoff. That's right. I mean, I mean they, all of them. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I was a rib somehow. <laughs> Maybe I just haven't got it yet. Well, how did you, obviously, Chad Austin's not your real name. How did you get your name, Chad Austin? Like I said, we ran, there was a show, like, in my neighborhood, and I sold, like, 50 tickets. And because I had put the ring up, and I had done enough, like, been around long enough that they figured I could work. And I sold so many tickets, and the guy said, "What's your last name?" And I said, "I don't have a, I don't have a gimmick. I don't know." And the dude says, uh, "It was Whipwreck that said it." And he goes, "Who's your favorite wrestler right now?" And I said, "Out of the class that's coming out of this era right now, I think it's Steve Austin, because it was like ninety ninety one, whenever Steve Austin just broke through." And he goes, "Okay, we'll call you Chad Austin." I go, "I don't fucking care. What do I care? I, I got anything better." You were a big fan. What were you seeing with Steve Austin? Was it just when he got to WCW in 91, or had you seen the stuff with him out of Texas and out of Memphis? In general, were you seeing tapes of other areas? Were you watching Japanese tapes? Well, not. Well, yeah, I was getting Japanese tapes, but I wasn't so much into it. I was more into the territory. So, yeah, I was seeing him in Texas, and I was seeing him in Memphis, but I was learning how to work. But I, when I was watching somebody who was in my class who could work, I recognized that. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Like, I could see this This guy is, like, better than everybody else coming out this year. Like, he's above and beyond, you know, besides Dustin Rhodes, who, you know, who'd probably been in the business two years. But he was the best guy that was coming out of that class in, like, 91. And so I, I recognized that and was like, that's the kind of guy, guy I want to be like. But believe me, I'm no stone. I'm no stone cold guy. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, might, I might drink the beer, but I don't fucking do all the other shit. To go back to Eddie Gilbert, he came into ECW in 1993 to become the booker. I remember you in ECW after Paul took over. I want to say October or November of 93. but October. October of 93, okay. So 
in terms of you and Eddie, were you close with Eddie? Did you know Eddie? And how come you didn't work there before October? Oh, as a matter of fact, oh my God, man, you're, now you're killing me. And now I got to think, um, we had an independent show in Maryland. Uh, Ian Rod ran it. As a matter of fact, we called it the WrestleMania of independent shows because he spent like $4,500 and drew like 1200 And nobody got paid. And Paul Lee, I think, was, was, was on the show. And I walked into the locker room. I mean, this is what I remember. This is how I recall it. So, however. And I walked into the locker room and I told Ian, I said, listen, me and Shane, we're going to have our match, Shane Shamrock. And I said, I'm going to put him in a chair and I'm going to moonsault him. And then I heard Paulie go, you're going to put a guy in a chair and you're going to moonsault on top of him? <laughs> and that weekend, the Bad Breed was hired for ECW. So they asked Bad Breed to bring up a couple of job guys. And, of course, who are they going to pick? The best bumper in the business. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they brought me up and they brought another guy up. And we did two set of tapings. So they got jobs. But for one reason or another, eating can't keep a job, whether it's at Rural Farms, because I can ride chicken or a wrestling company. I don't have any idea. But um, I, I ended up, me and Axel ended up getting pushed, more or less. Like, you know what I mean? That's one of the things I remember, and that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. And I've said it before on the show. Obviously, Mikey Whipwreck, everyone knows who he is, and everyone knows who the character was and the evolution of the character. But I've always said on the show, that I felt it was me as someone who watched ECW in early 94. I saw every episode, you know, from when Paul took over, I saw every episode until at least 97. I felt like you were originally getting that push. Is that the truth? It was me. Yeah, it was me. So what's the story? How come they moved the push to the man who would become well, Mikey Whipwreck? Can I, uh, can I cuss on your show again? Feel free. Um, I fucked up. <laughs> What'd you do? I, um, uh, I, I honestly, I really didn't do anything. I just forgot. Paul, Paul was not a guy you talked to a lot. So it was kind of hard to know when shows were, or you kind of had to like go out of your way to find out when shows were. And I was visiting a friend like two hours away on the beach, you know, and I get a call from my mom and says, Hey, this guy, you know, before cell phones, this guy, Paul's been calling the house. And he's saying there's a show in Philadelphia and you're supposed to be there. And literally I got my car and drove to Philadelphia. And that was the same night I wrestled Sabu, Chris Benoit, and um nine one one, I think. And, and turn babe turn heel. Like it was my push night. And here I was, almost didn't even make it because I hadn't I had no idea the show was going on. But then when we're going out there to work, Paul gave me this promo to cut. Uh, I think it was, uh, yeah, this was Heat Wave 94. Paul gave me this promo to cut after me and Mikey had our match. And I booked the match. And that's the night that you announced that Jason was your new manager. So you had really turned heel by that point. Yeah, but if you if you listen to me say, I, I was it, I hate you, or whatever I said. But um, Paulie tried to tell me that this is the best, that he was going to make me like a brother love like character. And he gave me this promo, but I totally forgot the promo. The only thing I could remember out of the whole entire thing was, I hate you. And, and, 
And, and, and then when you watch Heat Wave 94 and you hear me say, I hate you, and I do it in a brother love voice. And I'm going, I totally forgot what I was supposed to say. So I think that fucked it up. And, and not only that, I think me going to Smoky Mountain didn't do any, any business for me either. <laughs> well, I want to ask you about that. But before we get there, to go back a little bit, like I said, the way I remembered it, you were originally getting that push. And to go back a step, for those who don't know, Paul E., after he left WCW several years earlier, I think in 1990, for a brief period of time, booked for the Savaldis for ICW, later IWCCW. And one of his characters during his brief period of time was the wrestling school dropout. And it was one that a lot of fans remembered, and it was so unique, a lot of fans really liked it. So when he took over the book in ECW, a lot of us felt that he was trying to recreate the wrestling school dropout. It would become Mikey Whipwreck, but based on especially in the winter and spring of 94, it seemed like you were in line for that push because you would have these matches and you would get your ass kicked. I remember a bump you took. Tell me if I'm wrong. I think it was off a backdrop. You did a 480. Dude, Cornette loved that. Trademark. <laughs> but again, you wrestled 911. You could take the choke slam. You were getting your ass kicked, but getting over in the process because of the bumps you took. And that's why so many of us thought you were going to get that wrestling school dropout push. And then, like we said, it switched. It went to Mikey Whipwreck. It- it's a, it's really honestly all because I was kind of done. Like they were killing me, man. I mean, they were killing me and I was getting just beat up to the point where you guys are really killing me and you're not taking it easy on me. And then I literally decided I was going to go visit my mom. That's how I got in contact with Cornette. That's how everything started. If you, if you follow the end of my ECW career, when I would put over other companies, and it all Did you ever see any that. of that stuff? Yeah, so it all stemmed from what actually happened in real life. Well, yeah, it was basically, I'm just, I'm done getting killed. I was the first guy to ever take the chokeslam. And I was the second guy to ever take a chokeslam. <laughs> I was the third, fourth, fifth, seventh, and eleventh guy to ever take the chokeslam from 911. And the first one's always fine. Oh, yeah, it'll put you down fine. But this big piece of garbage, uh, after the third one, he's blown up, and he's just slamming you. And then you see my knees hit my face. You, know, you see that kind of stuff. Yeah, but um, the backdrop gimmick, you know where I stole that from? No. Jimmy Backlund. Oh, interesting. Jimmy Del Rey. J- yeah, watch old Florida tapes from like 1984, 85, or NWA tapes. He would do the backdrop where he would just flip over. And then when I did it for Cornette, Cornette said, I haven't seen anybody do that in over 20 years. So let's go to that. I want, well, I want to ask you a little bit more about ECW before we get to Smoky Mountain Wrestling. When you start going in sure. there in October, you've been working in Maryland for a few years and you've worked for Dennis and Larry Sharp and various independent promotions in that area. But when all of a sudden you're in the locker room and when Paul took over as the booker, it was a lot of local guys getting their first break. It was a lot of guys who people didn't yet know, but were becoming big hits on the indie scene like Sabu. And then you had established veterans. Those early days, Terry Funk, Kevin Sullivan, Abdullah the Butcher. What was the it like? Sheik. The Sheik. What was it like being in the dressing room with all of these guys? Because it must have been a brand new experience for you to be around that level of talent. Uh, ridiculous. I remember I, I kept my chair as far away from the Sheik as possible. <laughs> he wore that he wore that same suit you see in any picture that you Google him in and he sat there like literally by himself, like in this little space and nobody sat next to him. And I was like, dude, 
there's that little butcher. And like, oh, this is fucked up. <laughs> like, this is not good. And and check this out, man. Um, I look at the lineup, right? And I look at this on the door, and I say, I see Stan Hansen versus Chad Austin. And I literally went, oh no, <laughs> this is this is this is not going to be good, right? Oh no. So I walk over to Mr. Hansen, and I, I I tell him, I said, hey, I'm Chad. I'm I'm the guy. I'm your meat. And he goes, I just want to tell you right now, son, I can't see what I'm hitting and I don't hit what I'm seeing. And I just went, <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, this is lovely. And literally right before the music hit, they scratched it out and wrote Herve Ernesto. So if you ever if you ever watch the opening of the old Eastern Championship Wrestling shows and you see the guy getting the chain wrapped around his head around the uh, ring post, that would have been me. Herve Ronesto. Whatever happened to him? Uh, Stan Hansen. <laughs> I think Stan Hansen gave him another another alternative for life. What do you think from what you saw it was like for a lot of those guys who had worked for Goodhart? Those old school, I shouldn't even say old school, but the guys who had been around Philadelphia for a while. Johnny Hotbody, Tony Stetson, J.T. Smith. What was it like? What do I think about them? Well, what, well, you can answer that if you have something you want to say about them. Sure. Oh no! I know. I, I was. I, I. I guess I jumped upon your upon your question. Would you? Would you want to know? What was it like from them? From what you witnessed, what you saw, to be there? Because Paul got rid of them as fast as possible. There you go. I guess that answers it. What yeah, did you- I, I didn't. I, all you needed was a period, and I had the answer right there. Yeah, Paul got rid of them as fast as possible, and in in my opinion, there's a couple of guys you could have kept. Who? Um. I mean, for the pay scale, to tell you the truth, guys like Tommy Cairo, I, I didn't think Rebel was bad, and Stetson was decent. J.T. Smith, I mean, that motherfucker, he, he needs to stay on the top rope. <laughs> well, that's a, a famous incident where he fell and got that giant contusion on Dude, his head. you have no idea what the locker room did when he did that. What did they do? They just grabbed, they just, everybody just grabbed their forehead. <laughs> and was like, oh, my God. And everybody was wondering who was going to run out first just to see if he was okay. Now, I'm talking about when Mike Awesome hit him. Oh, you're talking, oh, oh, when he hit him with the dive and he bent in half backwards over the barricade. Yeah, that. Like, the whole locker room was like, damn. And everybody was, like, so scared. And nobody knew if, if we could run out there and see if he was okay. What do you remember about that night? That is a famous night. That was the night the line was crossed. That's the famous three-way dance. Shane Douglas, Sabu, and Terry Funk, and then they do the post-show angle at the hotel afterwards where Shane Douglas, and this was revolutionary at the time, cursed. Yep. You know, it was, it was that simple. All he had to do was say, Terry Funk, you're a piece of shit, and they bleeped it, and that was so unique for wrestling at the time. What do you remember about that night? I believe on that night you worked. I'm going to say you lost a 911, but I could be wrong. I was there. I was at that thing. Well, you worked. You worked against 911 that night. No, no, I was in that video with uh, Terry Funk and Shane Douglas. I was doing, I was part of the pull apart, yeah. Well, tell me about that night. Tell, that was also the night the Sheik worked. What memories do you have of that night and the pull apart afterwards? I, I don't know because literally I was a kid and I just sat there and did what I was told. But I do remember this is this is the best part of that night was like at three o'clock in the morning, I was still at the bar and Ian Rodden sitting in the, in the, in the lobby with a whole bunch of fans, like just marks. 
they're hanging out. And Paul comes down and Paul looks at Ian. He goes, go to your room. And he's like, <laughs> why? And he goes, because if you're a friend, they're not Mark's. They're not buying money to hang out. You know what I mean? They're not buying money if they're your friends anymore. So I literally heard that and I was like, oh, cool. So now I know not to hang out at the bar. Nobody knew who I was. Nobody knew who I was because I wasn't Ian who was doing the blood. And, you know, I was just getting choked slammed. Fuck. Well, tell me about the bar. Tell me about the scene at the Travel Lodge. What was the Travel Lodge like for people who never got to experience that? I don't. <laughs> Why we we you don't even have enough time. Um, <laughs> it, it 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 is what it, it is what it was. Whatever you know about it, it is what it is. That's what it was. Now that's how you don't it, answer a question. That's I mean I, I don't know what to tell you, man. <laughs> Honestly, I mean I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, it's what whatever stories you heard about that place is exactly what happened at that place. All right, let me ask it to you in a different manner. What's the wildest thing you witnessed at the Travel Lodge? Um, me, holy mackerel. I honestly can't say this, but I'll tell you, I'll I'll give you a roundabout answer. Um, a certain promoter for a small time company that was getting fucking a lot of recognition. He was getting fellatio from a certain person when the uh, uh, elevator opened in the lobby with a, with a bunch of people watching. And that's all you're going to say. That's I I can't. There's no chance I can say anymore. <laughs> I mean, I, I know my career in the ring is done, but my career in life isn't, and I'm afraid if I say anymore that I won't see like Tuesday. All right. Well, the guessing game begins for the six o fivers. Figure out what promoter and what I'm assuming a wrestler. Uh, a, a ring girl. Oh, a ring girl. Okay. Okay. What promoter and what ring girl? We're in the elevator. This should be a very interesting guessing game that begins now. But you are an ECW. You are doing these things. Like you said, you're a part of the scene there. What did you witness in terms of the relationship backstage between, if you witnessed anything, between Todd Gordon and Paul Heyman? And also, did you see Jim Crockett at all while you were there? No, my my first night was the night that Doug Gilbert smashed the whole entire locker room up when Eddie got fired. Eddie got fired in September. However, even though he was fired, Doug still worked the show. It was a scaffold match. The Dark Patriot versus J.T. Smith. Of course, J.T. took the bump. And then Eddie, unbeknownst to Paul, Eddie got permission from Todd to do a surprise run-in and say goodbye to the fans and tell them to continue supporting ECW. What was it like backstage? I've heard a lot of stories that Doug flipped out. I heard a lot of stories. Oh, he did. well, Well, tell me about it. What did you witness? Like, literally, because Paul needed somebody for Public Enemy. So they went out to the crowd, and it was me, Axel, and Ian. And they grabbed Ian and me. And we went backstage, and we were just, like, I was just on standby in case they needed somebody to work. So they chose Ian. But Doug grabbed the baseball bat and started smashing everything and was like, anybody try to, because Eddie, Eddie went out to the, to the ringside and was selling his gimmicks. He was selling his boots, his tights, <laughs> That's right. all his merch. Like, he was getting the fuck out of there, you understand? And he was selling all his shit. And then Doug was so pissed off that he heard, I, I'm assuming that he heard what happened, that he just started going bananas and started swinging a baseball bat and everything. And I, you know, what, what am I, 22, maybe, at the time? I'm just going, what the fuck? You plucked me out of the crowd for this? 
Yeah, that's that's what it was like then. There, there was no like uh, the locker room was so big, Brian, that like everybody had their own little area because it was a, just a warehouse, is what it was. Who did you sit with in your area? I don't think I sat with anybody. I don't think anybody liked me. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't they like you? Come on. Well, I mean, I didn't. I, I you know, I did. I did my business. I walked in. I shook everybody's hands. You know what I mean? I just didn't like make any friends. I mean, like, what, what am I going to do? I don't know. These guys have nothing in common with me. Look at Taz. He looks great. I look terrible. I mean, you know, look at the, look look at the pit bulls. They're all steroids. I'm not. Um, you know, look at the Sandman. He's drunk. I wish I was that drunk. I don't. You know, I we just it just wasn't a thing. But I tell you, when you hear about um locker room or curtain sellout, whatever. In ECW, one thing I can tell you for a fact is that when ECW had that crowd, there was more curtain sellouts than I've ever seen in my entire life. Plus, up on the uh, the stage in ECW Arena, I know from sitting in the crowd in the bleachers, you would see wrestlers up there with Paul watching the show. Well, we had a we, we had like a thirteen inch in the locker room, and I I don't remember the exact match, but I think it was Raven. And somebody versus the Pitbulls and the double dog collar. Raven it was and the Stevie that- Richards. Raven and Stevie Richards versus the Pitbull. One of the great matches in ECW history because they tied a bunch of things together in this two out of three falls match, including finally the first bump Raven, that Alfonso took. And then, and then Tommy Dreamer pinning Raven. That, to me, is the greatest match that I've ever seen live. And I... I am I am not even a fan of Stevie Richards at all. He can go fuck himself. Um, <laughs> I, I I love I love Stevie. Uh, no, but I mean um, that that the way like you said how he tied all them stories into that one into that night like that was forty five minutes of compelling wrestling, and I can just sit there and tell you that I was one of the first two three people that were sitting in front of the monitor, and by twenty five minutes into that match. Shane Douglas had his hands on my shoulder, leaning over, watching it. And then here comes, you know, everybody else. Just, it, it was, a, it was, a, that to me was the greatest match that I've ever seen live. And I don't even like saying it, honestly. <laughs> we talked a little bit about some of the Philadelphia guys that have been longstanding wrestlers there who had worked for Joel Goodhart and now we're working for ECW. Paul got rid of most of them. It was the Sandman, one of the guys that stayed around. Of course, the Sandman was close with Todd and Todd was the owner slash money guy. So I'm curious, were you surprised that out of of all those guys, Tommy Cairo, Tony Stetson, Johnny Hotbody, everyone else, that it was the Sandman that ended up getting the push and becoming a completely different type of wrestler than he was previously. He wasn't wearing a wetsuit coming out with surfboard. (laughs) Surfboard. (laughs) Yeah, I, I really don't know. I mean, I don't know whether that was Todd's guy or Paul's guy. I mean, nobody's gonna, I mean, if, if, if heck dies, gets, um, whatever charge would be in a great worker that he'd hang it in as a man, you know, he's not a great worker, but apparently he got over and I, yeah, I don't know. Like he's something different. He never was, he never, he never was the surfer guy. That's the best. Like if, you know, he don't even, he don't even have water at his house. So he got rid of that gimmick and got his real gimmick. He really was a guy who drank beer all day and said really crazy things. Dude, yeah, he used to show up, like, in this conversion van, and he would drive, like, Todd and most of the boys, and they'd park it out back, and they'd just open the side door, and it'd be a cooler, 
and he'd be like, oh, same answer. Party's on. Before I get to you and Smoky Mountain, I want to ask you about that, because also that ties into another big story I want to ask you about that you were involved in. But I do want to ask you about two other names from this period of time in ECW. Jimmy Snuka, because you worked with him, and also, oh boy. do you have any Metal Maniac stories being from the Northeast? Jeez, oh, whiz. <laughs> yeah, you're going back. I mean, I was trying to suppress them memories, man. <laughs> uh, with with the metal maniac, but you're. Uh, I'm gonna have to ask my therapist if I can bring if I can bring these stories up. No, but um, <laughs> metal maniac, I'm fucking, I'm cool with. Yeah, we're friends. Um, I, I don't think I wrestled him. If I did, I'm 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 assuring that I wasn't good. Jimmy Snuka, worst match I've ever had in my entire life. Uh, you can watch it on the network. It was completely embarrassing. I can't believe that Jimmy Snuka thought enough of me to do not that. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Why was it so and embarrassing? I, listen to this, man. I go into the locker room and I go, all right, Jimmy, I'm Chad. I'm your guy tonight. How are you going to pin me? The big super fly leap? Nah, brother. Oh, um, the headbutt for the middle rope. Nah, brother. Um, the double leapfrog chop? <laughs> um, nah, brother. Then I go, well, how are you going to pin me? He goes, I was thinking, suplex, brother. I said, you're going to pin me with a suplex? <laughs> and, and if you look at the match, he didn't even cover me. He put his foot on me. Did you have heat with him? What, what the hell is that? Ah, uh, he apparently, it was a day off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming he didn't bring his working boots, and he didn't wear shoes. <laughs> it, it, it literally is the worst match I've ever had in my entire it, it, it's embarrassing and I don't mind like reposting it every time it shows up on my timeline just to go look at how hard I worked how hard How hard do you think it is to sell for Jimmy Snooker when he throws you into the ropes and gives you a chop to the throat how long do you sell for that you know he's walking around this is walking around and then he's not a very fast walker to begin with, so he's not walking fast. So I, I, somebody should have gave me the Heimlich over. Let's fast forward a little bit ahead. You mentioned the match Heat Wave '94, you against Mikey Whipwreck, but it's around this period of time where, like you said, you went down the Smoky Mountain Wrestling. I remember when I went down the Fan Week when I was 14 and '94, you were actually there for like the first few days of fan week. I remember you being there and someone saying that's Chad Austin from ECW. And I was like, why would a wrestler be here with us fans? Like, it didn't make sense to me at the time. Yeah, and how dumb is this guy for even knowing who the fuck I am? <laughs> <laughs> well, talk to us. How did you get into Smoky Mountain Wrestling? You mentioned that Jimmy liked that bump. Talk a little bit about that. And uh, Yeah, my, my mom lives in Knoxville. So I was kind of like done like with ECW, like I was kind of like just burnt out. Like, you know, I wasn't going to go anywhere because after I, I fucked off and Paul didn't use me. He would just have me come to the shows, but he wouldn't use me, but he wouldn't pay me. So then I was just like, well, Raven was like, keep coming to the shows, keep coming to the shows. And I'm like, I can't afford it. You know, they're two or three, four hours away. So I decided to go visit my mom and there was a, sh I was uh, already booked to start with, um, oh, Jesus Christ, Burt Prentice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was Burt Prentice slash Lawler. 
and I was already booked to to start working for the, for them. And but Knoxville was the stop that was along the way. So I, I went to a show in Johnson City. And remember Tommy and Noe? Tommy Noe, sure. Yeah. Well, wasn't he the timekeeper or something or the ring announcer? He was the ring announcer. Yes. Yeah, I walked up to him and I told him who I was and I said, "Look, I'll be in town for a couple of days, for a week or so, if you can get me work." And that's how I got in touch with Cornette. And then Jim told me to meet, uh, I don't know, whatever it was in Carolina. And I was in charge of taking Bruiser Bedlam. Listen to this shit. This motherfucker. There was a, um, there was a, tra- a tractor trailer turned over on the on this little highway on the way to the, onto the show. And it was a, like a 200-mile backup. And Bruiser Bedlam tells me that if I don't get him to the show, he's going to kill me. And, I, you know, when somebody tells you they're going to kill you, you just kind of laugh it off. Not him. Well, it was Bruiser Bedlam. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you think I did? I drove on the shoulder. <laughs> I got his ass to the building. But I only did one TV taping. That's all he used me for. Now, obviously, with you and ECW, it kind of ties into a bigger story. And let me tell you what I know, and then I want you to tell me what I have wrong and... Finish the whole story, but the story is, I think, 1996, you're in a tag team match, you and the Blue Meanie versus the Gangsters. And part of the story is, uh, and I saw something that the Blue Meanie said once, where he said that New Jack told him that you had gone down to Smoky Mountain Wrestling and told people that you were an agent for ECW. And (laughs) that that was the cause, I guess, or at least one of the causes for why New Jack had a problem with you. Talk about that infamous night. Talk about whatever you think caused New Jack to have an issue with you, and tell us the I story, homie. I don't even think I had been to, to Smoky Mountain yet, honestly. So I don't think that that's the – I've never heard that, honestly. I mean, I, I don't well, think had, I was even had, there. You had, because Smoky Mountain had closed down by this period of time. Uh, so I said it was an agent? But what did it what, – what, what did it have to do with him? Well, I don't understand. Well, Again, I don't know the whole story, but I saw an interview clip that someone sent me. It was the Blue Meanie and a few other ECW guys, and they were talking about this night. And according to the Blue Meanie, and, and I'm not doubting him at all that this is his story, but he said... No, I believe, I, I believe the Blue Meanie. New Jack came up to him in the locker room and said, Meanie, stay with Mustafa tonight, because if you come near me, you're going to get hurt. And he explained that you had heat with him and according to this, you had heat with Bruiser Bedlam, too, and maybe that ties into you driving on the shoulder. I don't know. But you had heat with New Jack because you had gone down the Smoky Mountain Wrestling, said that you wow. were an agent for ECW, and then asked New Jack to get you booked for Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Wow. Uh, I, honestly, I didn't even think I was that smart. Fuck. <laughs> whoever, whoever came up with that, give them fucking credit for that shit. Because I, I didn't think I was that intelligent to come up with that. Are you kidding me? So what happened that uh, night? Tell, I, tell us what happened that night, you and New Jack. Here's exactly what happened. You look at the you look at the paper that's taped to the door. Blue Meanie, Hot Property, Chad Austin. That's when Paul had me shave my head. Or, or whatever, where was it? Stone Cold Chad Austin versus the New Jack, or the gangsters. And here was the whole entire conversation. Uh, are you ready? I mean, get miss the microphone. Get ready. It was Meanie, you go with Mustafa. Chad, you come with me. Period. That was it. And now, before this period of time, had you ever had words with New Jack? Has there ever been any? No, I I, I've never even. I've never even wished him a good morning. Uh, how you doing? Salutations. You know, to do. 
thank you, fuck you, go fuck, you know, bye. I've never even done any of that. You know, trademark. <laughs> so what happened? What happened when you guys got to the ring? Nothing. It's, it was all work. There well, wasn't. Well, let, let me stop you there, because a lot of people are going to hear that and go, what do you mean it's all work? Because part of the story is that New Jack started shooting on you. New Jack, you were working, and the story that people tell, including Meanie, the story is that New Jack started shooting on you. You're saying that's not true at all. Well, if he did, he did a terrible job of it. <laughs> I'll tell you that. <laughs> because the only chair shot, if you watch the match, is when he caught me in the side of my knee, right by my kneecap. And that was the only one that I sold, because that's the only one that hurt. But he claimed that he broke my leg. I've, I've seen shoot tapes where he said he broke my leg, blah, blah, blah. And, 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 and I've seen shoot tapes where he said that it's because I wanted to do all these spots or whatever, and I told you the conversation that happened. Like, seriously, what more kind of, what, what more kind of a conversation am I going to have with New Jack than whatever he tells me to do? You, you know, you go with Mustafa, you go with me. Fine. So you didn't say, That's New the, Jack, I got some ideas, I got some cool spots I want to do in this match, I take some cool Why? Moves. Why would I? What position was I in to do that? There's no fucking chance that happened. And then, how about this? After the tape aired and he said he broke my leg, I flew to Memphis and started working for Lawler like the next two Thursday. So, I mean, either either he's the worst world's leg breaker or um, I have the greatest healing power ever. Was there any incident in the locker room after the match where any words exchanged between you and him or anything else happened? Yeah, I'll tell you what happened. He fucking, um, he went to the hospital. New Jack went to the hospital. He had some sort of like, um, uh, I don't know what it was, like some sort of aneurysm or a heart thing or something. Where I go back to the locker room to thank him, you know, because he, he didn't hurt me. So I go back to the locker room to thank him, and he's laying on a table, and they're getting ready to put him in the, an ambulance for whatever reason. I, I, don't, I don't know what it was about, but yeah, he went, he went on an ambulance. So to set the record straight, you're saying that you never got into a shoot while in ECW. Not with anybody that I know. Oh, Sam, man. But I, but I was on the I was on the other end of not knowing it was a shoot. Well, let's go there then. So that's the story about the New Jack incident. I don't even know the Sandman story. What happened with you and the Sandman? He beat the shit out of me. That's <laughs> what he did. He beat me into being a man. I'll tell you that. <laughs> At Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, I have no idea what my heat was with him. I had none. To this day, I don't have any idea. But we go out to the ring, and, you know, he's just Sandman. You know, he's going to be drunk, all that shit. And he's like, I'm going to punch you, but it's going to be in the forehead, and it's going to be stiff. Yeah, fine. He punches me in the face and blackens one of my eyes. Ooh. <laughs> and then he goes, don't flinch. And he punches me in the face and punches me in the other eye. <laughs> and I'm just going like, oh, geez, a whiz. Like, this is not going the way that I hope it was going to go. Um, he bashed me in the corner, and he starts chopping me. And I flip him around, and I start chopping him like, motherfucker, you know, fuck this. And he throws me in the corner, and he goes, take a boot. And I run in, and he's got his leg cocked. If you know anything about working, you have to run in short enough for that leg to be uncocked. 
And where do you think that fucking leg was uncocked at? Right in my fucking face. And, and and literally, if you if you watch the tape, you can see that I'm knocked out, and I stumble backwards. And he throws me out of the ring, and Nancy's beating me with the fucking with the cane. And I'm going, what the fuck, you know? And I get in the ring, and Sandman finally beats me. I don't know whatever he did, he beats me. But then he starts beating me with the cane, and then I realize I have one more cane shot left, and it's from Mikey. Mikey was supposed to make the save for me. Remember, he was doing that whole, he was doing the Sandman gimmick. So I'm standing in the ring after Sandman beats me in the face, breast, chest, neck, and head about 42 fucking times. And I'm standing there, I go, I still got one more left. And then Mikey comes in, chases him out of there. And I'm standing there like going, please, just don't kill me. And there's not much you could do with a kendo stick. (laughs) How painful is that? How painful is the kendo stick? It sucks, man. It's it's like a, it's like a bite. That's what it feels like. It's like a bite, but it's like a real quick bite. So this is around the period of time where you stop working for ECW, right? You eventually leave ECW again the second time because WCW called. Oh, what happened there? Uh, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, well, I mean, I get a call from um Jody. I'm assuming you know what I'm talking about, right? The assassin Jody Hamilton, sure. Sure. All right. They were starting up um cruiserweight division in like whatever, ninety five or something like that. Because at ninety five I was all over the place. You know, I was in Arkansas, I was in Tennessee, I was everywhere. And and, and I love what Bo James talks about me because he always like, This guy worked for everybody in like the in the mid nineties. <laughs> and I did have a show will travel and uh Jody calls me and they were starting the, um, the cruiserweight division. And, uh, I was like, okay. So I went to Atlanta and my first night in, I worked Vader. And then I realized this wasn't for the cruiserweight tournament. I don't think so. Or at least somebody didn't get the memo. that This was for the cruiserweight tournament. Cause I didn't think Vader fit the bill unless they just like, you know, rescaled the cruiserweight title to 450 pounds <laughs> or less. <laughs> And I worked Vader, and after that, they didn't use me the whole entire rest of the week. And you know what's funny is when you hear, like, Bischoff, you, do you ever listen to Bischoff's show? Oh, God, no. Well, I, I, I quit, like, a long time ago, but there was a show where he mentioned that he didn't know anybody from ECW. Like, he didn't watch it. Well, I was walking down the hall. Dude, I was, like, 23 years old wearing a pro wrestling torch T-shirt. And Bischoff walks right next to me and goes, how the fuck did you get here? And he knew who I was. And I'm like, you're, you're telling the world on your podcast that you don't know who Taz is, but you know who Chad Austin is? Get the fuck out of here. So, yeah, they, they, they didn't use me the rest of the week. There was no cruiserweight thing. They just wanted somebody, I mean, I guess in my opinion, I don't, I don't know how that works, that they saw, somebody saw me on ECW and if they could squash me on TV, like it would hurt me, I guess. But Paul took that and turned it into a positive. Let me ask you a couple more things before we go. And I definitely want to talk to you more about Stone Cold Chad Austin the next time we talk. But you have been, you and Roy Lusher, a great friend of the show, have been a part of what is probably the biggest archival project happening currently when it comes to wrestling on video. 
I hope so. You guys have been transferring as much content as you can get your hands on from VHS to the digital format, really doing what you can to help document all of this stuff, to help make sure that this footage has a home, that this footage is labeled, that we know what is out there. Talk a little bit about what you do now with wrestling content and how you got started doing it. Uh, 1982, a Fisher top load v- VCR was the first one I ever got that had a wire remote. <laughs> and my mom would buy tapes because in Maryland we would get we would get um, WWF and I could get on channel 54 UWF world class Florida on home team sports. And I just started recording shit and my mom wouldn't stop bringing home tapes. And then 86, maybe I found the Observer, 87, somewhere around there. And then I started trading with people. And then literally I just got bigger, 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 bigger. And to the point where Roy's doing all the legwork for me. Like he, Roy Lucer is really doing like he's scouring the internet, finding people's collections to send to me so I can record them. And, you know, I, I, I don't throw anything away. Why do you like doing it? Why do you think it's important? Uh, honestly, I love wrestling, and I'm going to watch wrestling in a few hours. But when I go upstairs and I walk into my room, my man cave room, and I look into the, into the bedroom and I see Eric Embry getting beat up by Telly Blanchard, I smile <laughs> and go, wow, this is why I do this. Or I see Coco Beware, you know. Or actually, I, I really laugh when I see Rufus R. Jones. <laughs> but, that's for a, but that's for a whole different reason. Like, he, he sucks me in. <laughs> like, I got to see what he's going to fuck up next. His promos were certainly something special. Well, he's, he's a, a genuine talent. <laughs> I can tell <laughs> you that. I, I, love, I love Ric Flair's definition of Rufus R. Jones. What is that? It's not much of a definition. He just he just gives you the whole, well, you know, some nights are harder than others. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, as we wrap up this segment, Chad, how can the listeners get in touch with you or Roy if they have collections they want to get transferred, if they have VHSs they're getting rid of, whatever it may be, if someone out there has content they want to make sure isn't lost to time that's on VHS, how can they get in touch with you? Just go through Roy, because I wouldn't even know what to tell you. I mean, my you can go to my Facebook, and I'm Chad Hoover Demira, or Chad Idol Demira. It's me! You were going to get that in during this spot, weren't you? <laughs> of course I was. <laughs> I'm glad to be on. Like, I'm, you know, Scotty Astro is the guy that probably got in touch with you to, to tell you to get me on, and you said you planned on it, and I just couldn't wait to be on the show. I, I love the show. I listen every week, or every... 20 days whenever you put one up <laughs> and I, I i love the magnificent one i walk around the house the, dude the luke graham jr just broke me when he said pick a family and he said you said the grams and he goes oh luke graham and he said not luke graham luke graham jr i, I just said that's enough I'm 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 stopping this. <laughs> this insanity. Your top ten's my favorite, man. Well, there he is, Chad Austin, and I'm sure you'll be hearing more from him on the Super Podcast in the weeks and months ahead. That was a really fun segment, and there's still so much more I want to talk to him about. But from there, let's move on to our next segment. Woo! Mercer. Is, is that you, Boogeyman? Oh yeah. Ha <laughs> ha. Well, how are you today? How am I? I'm in, oh, I'm in up. 
I've been down. Take my word. Book his way around. Mother chippers. I ain't asking for much. Ha <laughs> ha. Just vote for not handsome boogie. I'm just looking for some touch. Ha <laughs> ha. Trace Ombre's Brian Lasto. Ha <laughs> ha. That little old band from Texas. ZZ Top or Quattro Ombre's. If I, I am included, you know that uh, handsome Jimbo is well known. Brian. Are you still with me, Brian? I, I don't know if I am. Quite frankly, Boogie Man, where are you going? Well, I, I think I'm known, well known as the fourth member of ZZ Top, that little old band from Texas. Ha <laughs> ha! I'm the one that convinced them to grow those long, lush, luxuriant beards as a tribute uh, to uh, to me. Ha <laughs> ha! Who else? ZZ Top, Billy Gibbons, <laughs> Dusty Hill, and uh, uh, the drummer. Yeah, ha-ha. <laughs> They've headlined Boogie Jam on many occasions, including later this summer in Shawsville, Virginia. Details and pre-sales to come. I briefly wanted to ask about the 605 Top 10 Title Tournament. Have the votes been tabulated, my brother? Well, the votes are in. We can't reveal them. The only two people who know them right now are myself and the director of show research, Jace Nakarado. No one else knows the final results from the Top 10. They will be revealed so they- on Episode 100. Mm, so there's still a chance for me to be uh, elected as the Super 605 Top 10 Champion, or possibly I've already been uh, uh, besmirched and overruled by Apnea Hayes and hiccuping fabulous Morocco, right? Well, whatever the results are, they are done. The results are in. I just don't remember if you were in the title match or in the Top 10. But either oh, way, man. there's still a chance, I guess, technically, but... Well, I guess there's not a chance because the votes are in. I just don't remember what the end results were, and I'm not going to reveal them right here. We will uh, reveal them on episode 100. Well, if I lost, uh, to coin a phrase, fuck those guys. You know, I've got other other extra fry. I just signed a huge exclusive new contract with AEW. What? Which stands for Awfully Emaciated Wrestling. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you should see their roster. I'm going to head up their super heavyweight convention. What? <laughs> Who else is on the roster there? <laughs> I wasn't prepared for you. <laughs> All right, Boogeyman. Well, I think we've had enough of you uh, here this week on the show, but we will be featuring you next time for the top 10 oh, on episode 100. You may be asking for too much, Boogeyman, but from there, let's go to our next segment, the final segment this week on the show. I had an opportunity to speak with someone I've been wanting on the show for a very long time, and that is Fredo Esparza. Many of you may know him from LuchaWorld.com. He is the foremost Lucha Libre historian out there, an expert, someone who I've wanted to talk to about various things, and unfortunately, the topic could be rather sad because we're talking about the recent passing of Silver King, but we tell a much bigger story about the world of Lucha Libre that Silver King grew up in and around. I think everyone will really enjoy this segment. Let's go to this right now. My conversation with Fredo Esparza. I am very happy today to welcome to the Super Podcast a man I've really wanted on this show for a long time and someone who's probably been mentioned more times on the air than almost anyone who hasn't appeared on the air because Kurt Brown has name-dropped him left and right on almost every single appearance. You may know him from LuchaWorld.com, but today we're going to have a really interesting discussion about Silver King and that is Fredo Esparza. Fredo, welcome to the Super Podcast. It's great to be on your show. Um, I've heard a lot about it, 
And I'm, I, I'm, am I the infamous Fredo that I saw mentioned <laughs> on, on some posts on Facebook recently? You may be. I don't know which post specifically <laughs> you're speaking of, but I assume that would be you. I just saw my name, Infamous Fredo, and I was like, okay, I guess I am infamous. I don't know. It would either be you or Fredo Corleone. Those are the only, there you go. Those are the only two I can think of. <laughs> Fredo, before we get too deep into this, and we're going to talk about the life and the career of Silver King, but give a little bit of your background. I mentioned LuchaWorld.com. You are, in my eyes, one of, if not the single best Lucha Libre historian out there right now. Give the listeners a little bit of an idea of who you are, your body of work, and how they can find out more about what you do. Well, I've been a wrestling fan since the early 80s. Uh, really, Lucha, Lucha even longer before that, since, you know, as a growing up in a Latino family, we grew up watching a lot of those Santo movies, Mel Mascaras, Rio de Jalisco, Sombra Vengadora, you know, the list goes on and on, Lou Demon, and I constantly watched those movies, became a big fan of Lucha Libre, and then later on, I started watching more American wrestling as I grew up in El Paso, Texas, where I got to watch, you know, Mid-South wrestling, uh, world-class, post-David Von Erich, unfortunately, because I, I, I didn't really get into American wrestling until like about 84, 85, but um, all this other stuff with WWF and all the, just a lot of stuff that I watched as far as American wrestling went, but I continued to love Lucha Libre, um, and that kind of continued into my later years when the internet started and I started a little website called luchaworld.com. You know, I've been reporting on Lucha Libre and not only current Lucha Libre, but also a little bit of the history of Lucha Libre, just trying to keep, you know, a little bit of that in people's minds just because it gets forgotten. So by a lot of people, um, and maybe a lot of people don't really know about it because, you know, there's so much that doesn't even uh, get mentioned, you know, like, you know, the early days, the, you, you got so many years. I think a lot of people think it started in, at a certain point, Lucha Libre started at a certain point, and they kind of find out that it started even before Salvador Lutero even bought a lottery ticket and, you know, started making EMLL into this big dream of his. But, you know, it's it's just something I've always enjoyed. It's been a hobby of mine. And uh, at some points, it's been something that, you know, I've really loved. And some points I've really kind of like, you know, felt really sad about just because there's so many, you know, deaths in Lucha Libre. And I think the thing that's kind of brought me a little more of a recognition over the past couple of years has been a lot of the obits that I've written on, you know, unfortunately, the Villano 3, um, Silver King, so many guys. And it's like, that's, I think that's the hard part about being a wrestling fan that the longer you're a fan, you kind of start seeing a lot of the, your favorites growing up, you know, pass away. And, you know, I kind of, to me, it's kind of like, I'm here to like keep their, their, their name around alive. And, you know, I think that's what LuchaWorld.com has tried. I've tried to do with that website, you know, keep that that memory alive. At the same time, you know, reporting on the current news. And unfortunately, this past week, both things crossed paths as we saw Silver King pass away, unfortunately. Fredo, I'm curious, how has his passing been covered in Mexico, in the press? And specifically, what has the reaction been amongst his fellow luchadors? Well, the reaction with fellow luchadors has been, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of people don't realize that death is kind of viewed very differently in the Mexican culture. So the way it happened, I think in the, in the myself being American, all of us in America, we would probably look at what happened and think about how it could have been prevented, the things that could have happened. And in Mexico, a lot of the wrestlers, a lot of the luchadors have this saying about how they would rather die, you know, in the ring. It sounds horrible, but that's kind of like their belief. And um, or they'll say like something like, you know, it, it's you never know what you're, what's going to happen when you climb into the ring. And this is something that just to them, it's part of their um, 
what they expect could happen. It's a risk that they take. Uh, the reaction to it, a lot of people have said that sort of quote. And then there's been a lot of people that are from that region that he's from. He's Silver King is from a very um, wrestling uh, heavy region in Mexico, which, you know, is they're known as Laguneros. It's the Torreon, Coahuila region. Which, so you have a lot of guys who are that region. Those guys are very tight. They, I mean, these are guys who cry when guys drop their masks. They cried when Blue Panther dropped his mask. I mean, think about that. And this was not in like the 1970s. This was just a couple of years, like 10 years ago that this happened. And these guys cried. So, you know, their opinion of what happened is that they kind of felt that it could have been something that could have been prevented. Uh, much like we thought that, you know, there were a little bit, there could have been a little more preparation on the end of the, you know, the promoters. So you do have that. At the same time, there's not as much of a negative reaction to it as the in-ring passing of um, Paraguayo Jr. That was, I think that got a lot more of a reaction. A lot of people in the in, in, in Mexico, not just the wrestlers, but the commission, um, they were talking about how there had to be changes within how promotions um, had to have doctors and paramedics and ambulances be better prepared. Um, this time around with Silver King's passing, it hasn't been that way. And I think there's a lot of that is because one of the people who was promoting that show was Hijo de Santo. And Hijo de Santo is very highly regarded because of his father at Santo. They're held at a different level in that in that country so there's more of a negative feedback towards Juventud Guerrera and the referee who is Black Cherry who's another guy who's been in the wrestling business for a very long time they've gotten more of the, of the negative feedback because their reaction to it wasn't quick enough in their opinion and you know if, if you have not seen the video for one I don't I don't blame you for not watching it but there is at least several minutes where nothing is there's nobody there besides those two in the ring and there's no real um, attempt to help them at that point. So that's really been the, the reaction that a lot of the wrestlers there. Um, uh, Mysterioso Jr. was very negative towards the reaction time and the referee because he felt the referee wasn't a qualified referee. I don't think he realized it was Black Terry. But at the same time, like I think Black Terry being a wrestler, I think, and he doesn't officiate that often. He basically just officiates on these shows, um, Hijo Santo shows. So he's basically doing it once a year in London and maybe like whenever he does the Todo for Todo shows in Mexico. So I don't think he's as uh, prepared. I think there, I, don't, I, I just think there was just no preparation. I think, it, I, I do wonder what it would have been like if there was a legitimate, you know, referee who does this, you know, every single week that's constantly around it, has been around in dealing with an emergency situation. Maybe this would have been something that they could have handled a little quicker. I think that's really all that they basically focused on. Um, they haven't really focused on the promotion and and whether or not they were negligent or anything like that. It's basically been right now. It's basically just been focusing on on Silver King's death and how the the reaction was so slow to getting him help. You bring up Eo Del Santo, of course. Lucha Libre is known, amongst other things, for having these amazing families that have multiple members who get into wrestling and excel at wrestling. The Santo family, the Casas family, the Guerrero family. There's so many different families. We know that Silver King was part of one of those legendary families. His father was Dr. Wagner. Can you talk a little bit about his family? Before we even get to Silver King, I think we need to tell a little bit of the story of how we get to Silver King. Talk about his father. Talk about his brother. Let us know about the stature of his family in Lucha Libre. Well, his family is one of the bigger wrestling families just because Dr. Wagner, as you mentioned, Sr., uh, we could call him Sr., um, he was a huge star in the 60s, 70s, early 80s. Just a guy who like was considered one of the top workers, one of the bigger big names. Um, he was part of La Ola Blanca, 
for several years, one of the top trios in Mexico in the 60s before they broke up from Solitario. And he was also in one of the sadder moments in pro wrestling. He was in a horrible auto accident in, I think it was 1986, early 86, when he was in a car accident driving from Monterey, I think, where he actually, for a period of time, he was unable to walk. Um, I think the last couple of years he was through rehab, he was able to walk a little bit, but that basically ended his career. There was a couple of wrestlers who passed away in that automobile accident. It was one of those uh, horrible moments, but his dad was really one of the legends of Lucha Libre. His brother, Dr. Wagner Jr., current star in Mexico, just lost his mask just within the last two years. One of the all-time greats in Mexican. I think he might have just made the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame or something, or he was on, on the ballot or something. But he's somebody who... He's a star in Japan, in the United, in, in Mexico. He's been in the United States for uh, Lucha Underground. So it's a family that is very well known in, in Lucha Libre. Silver King, you know, at a very young age. Yeah, and this is, happens with a lot of luchadors. They, they grow up in the business. Their father's a wrestler. They see, they don't really know what their father does, but they start kind of getting hints when they've noticed that they have a duffel bag with, you know, a bunch of masks and a lot of and wrestling <laughs> boots and stuff like that. And that's what Silver King said. He remembers seeing that because they asked him at one point, Silver King, how did you want to become a wrestler? Or when did you find out about your dad being a wrestler? And he was like, no, you know, I just noticed he had a bag and there was a mask, there were boots. And I figured he was a wrestler from that point forward. And he is, um, I think Dr. Wagner Jr. would hide the fact that, he, you know, he would kayfabe kids when they were younger that he didn't want people to know he was a, he was a wrestler. Silver King didn't care. He was like, you know, my dad's a wrestler. And, and you know, people would pick on him for that. But he was okay with it. But, you know, they were around wrestling at a very young age. You get this with a lot of the luchadors. They'll tell you about the first time they, they found out about their dad being a wrestler. And then the other thing you find out about them is that they go to shows with them. And then you hear the stories about these young little kids playing wrestling around the, the arenas. And they tell you about, oh, yeah, I wrestled with these other little kids. And these other little kids would later on become, you know, future superstars in Lucha Libre. And you're like, wow, this is like, this tells you the, the how great the business in Mexico is where you're, you're just getting all these families. You know, you hear all these families that end up uniting and stuff. So, um, yeah, they, they were just, I mean, like I said, they were, they're, they're one of the biggest families in, in Lucha Libre. And they're a lot, like I said, they're Laguneros. They're from that Torreon region. So they are kind of regarded as kind of like the, the guys who kind of introduced Lucha Libre to that region, showed it to the younger guys. And then you had these younger guys from that region who followed their footsteps with, you know, those guys, Blue Panther, you know, there were so many other guys. And then from that group, that's where these other guys came. They were kind of like the, the example, you know, they were the example that said that, you know, you could actually make it in wrestling as well. And Silver King at a very young age was already very talented and, there's so much you could talk about his career. It's, I just know from from looking back at his career, it was it was really an amazing career. If we go back to the beginning of his career, I think he debuted at the end of 1985. Yeah, give a little bit of the lay of the land because obviously this is several years before Antonio Pena breaks away and starts AAA. This is just a couple years after the retirement of El Santo, and actually the death of El Santo was just I think 1984. So it's yeah, right before yeah. this. What is the lay of the land in Lucha Libre? in 1985 as Silver King debuts? Well, at this point, there's really your two major promotions. And really, there's a third one that's kind of like popping up. But the big promotions at the time were EMLL, uh, which is the Luteroff family. They've been around since 1933. At this point, you have, um, I think at this point, Pac would take, was, was already in charge. And then you had the Benjamin Mora promotion, which is the UWA. 
known to us as UWA, but you also it's also known as Lucha Libre Internacional. That actually becomes the official name down the road, but it's mostly known to people outside of Mexico as UWA in, in, in Japan, the United States. That's what it's known for. The third promotion is actually this promotion called, it doesn't have a name, but they're known as, that the, the group that wrestles in that promotion are called the Super Libres. And the Super Libres are actually where you get the, the infamous Trio Fantasia, you know, the Super Muñecos, uh, Super Pinocho, Super Raton, Darth Vader. So you, <laughs> that's the group that started all the crazy kid characters. Archie. Uh, Archie? So the Super Libre. Yes, Archie. There was a wrestler named Archie. There's so many guys at that point. But this group ran from Pablo Azteca. So they were the third group. They were the ones that actually kind of had a rougher time in the business because they actually had a lot of guys who did a lot of con, uh, cartoon characters. They had a lot of exoticos and stuff like that. But they actually had a lot of critics at that point from their fellow wrestlers, from other promoters. So they actually had to be a little bit of a, of a tougher group of guys, which they had a really strong trainer at that time. So they learned uh, to defend themselves. So Dr. Wagner and Dr. Wagner Jr., they were part of the whole UWA group, which was the second big group, which at that point actually was still neck and neck with EMLL as the big promotion. You know, the, the difference, I think a lot of people view UWA as the bigger promotion because EMLL was more of a, you know, it was more of a Mexican promotion where most of their stars were from Mexico and they would bring in maybe one or two foreigners. Whereas UWA, if you look at the cards that they would have in the 80s, they had a lot of wrestlers from Japan. They had a lot of wrestlers from the United States, from all over the world. Yeah, they had a relationship with New Japan and the World Wrestling Federation. So they were yes. able to get talent from Vince McMahon Sr., and from Antonio Inoki. That's why you're able to see those shows with Kinect versus Andre the Giant, for instance. Yeah, and you know, the other thing was that you also had the WWF, the junior heavyweight title that they created, or the light heavyweight title was actually created uh, more so for that promotion because, you know, they didn't, the WWF and the, and I think at that point they were starting to like stop using that. So it was more of a New Japan UWA thing, but you saw it more often in UWA, which is, you know, that was a huge title in that promotion. Uh, so basically, at that point, you have Silver King starting out in what is the his region of uh, it, where he grew up in, Torreon. So he starts wrestling in, uh, you know, the smaller pro shows. He started off as a, as a wrestler named Invasor. He later changed his name to Silver King. Uh, what happened with his name was that one of the guys who was promoting at that time, his trainer, Grand Marcos, and uh, Francisco Flores, who's best known for being the promoter of the UWA at that point, they had a guy no-show, and they needed somebody to move up higher on the card. So they decided to give, um, you know, Cesar Gonzalez, that's his real name. They gave him the name, they gave him the mask and the gimmick of Silver King. They could have gone with Dr. Wagner Jr. at that point because he actually, despite him being younger than um, Dr. Wagner Jr., he actually was already like a bigger, he was moving up a little faster than his brother at that point. He could have gotten the Dr. Wagner Jr. name before his brother did. Well, he used uh, it. Didn't he use that name yeah. when he wrestled for All Japan? Yeah, he, he ended up using it like a year later. Like in, I think it was the month before he dropped the Silver King mask. He wrestled as Dr. Wagner Jr. In, in on a tour with All Japan. I think he teamed up with Angel Blanco Jr. Uh, or, yeah, I think it was Angel Blanco Jr. And he did use the, the, the mask. He could have continued with it, but um, he decided he liked using the name Silver King a little more. His dad had told him he thought he could make it under that name, no matter what, just because he saw that he had a lot of talent. And, I mean, I don't know how many people saw Silver King as far as his career went. He pretty much looked the same, exactly the same. You know, a short, stocky guy who was tremendously athletic. Uh, which was amazing. I think you see that a lot in Lucha Libre. You see a lot of stocky, short guys, very creative in the ring. He was really good from at a very young age. 
By age 19, he was touring all Japan, which is amazing. And he actually dropped his mask to a Hijo de Santo in, um, in Tijuana. So they actually thought a lot about him. Hijo de Santo thought a lot about him just after beating him in that mask match, where later on, he actually became one of the first opponents to his son, um, Hijo de Santo's son. In tours of London, he actually wrestled him later on, Santo Jr. So let's go back a, a few questions about all of this. One, when it comes to the mask, what is his history with the mask? Because obviously he debuts under a mask as Silver King. I would become aware of him when he was unmasked. Yeah. When he was teaming with El Tejano. He would go to WCW, no mask. When he passes away, he's wearing a mask again. So what is actually the history of Silver King and his mask? Okay, so he dropped his mask in 1987 in Tijuana. And one of the things that happened is that that show wasn't actually taped. So I get the feeling that he must have assumed, you know, this happened in 1987. And he's actually said it a few times where he said he didn't. It happened in 1987. And in 2008, he started wearing the mask again. And he said it was because he figured people didn't even remember that he had dropped his mask. But of course, we saw him unmasked, right, for so many years. And he didn't understand this. Like his whole thing was like, you know, I dropped it years ago. What's the big deal? Well, later on, while he's in AAA, he ends up getting a, a complaint from the commission, you know, because the Mexican Boxy Lucha Commission, they're basically, you know, like most of these type of um, commissions, they're not really going to like be all out, you know, defending or, you know, following certain rules and guidelines. They only pick certain things that they're going to kind of like stand for. And at this point, they were kind of in a little bit of a war with AAA. Um, they had issues with them at that point. So their first thing that they decided to do was that they were going to complain about Silver King wrestling wearing a mask. And he had already been wearing it in AAA from 2008. I think it was about 2010 or so where they started. Um, it really got into a point where they kind of demanded that he unmask. I think at, I think he had one match where he just painted his, his mask onto his face. You know, he did like a one of those, uh, you know, the paint jobs where, where it looks like he's wearing a mask, but he's not. And then he switched his name from Silver King to Silver Kane because he was feuding with his brother. Well, let me stop you right there, because I think uh, it, it may be hard to discern the difference. You said he went from Silver King to Silver Kane? Yes, Silver Kane. C-A-I-N. What happened was he was feuding with his brother, so he figured it's a Kane and Abel type of relationship, so he decided to change his name to Silver Kane. That was a storyline reason. But the real reason was that the Boxy Lucha Commission was upset that he went back to wearing a mask again that he had already dropped in 1987. His whole thing was that you know, he dropped it so many years, people didn't even remember that he had worn a mask at any point, uh, which, you know, I get it. But he wrestled and had so much success without a mask that, you know, people already knew what he looked like. Yeah. So that, I think that was my whole I think that was the whole issue that everyone had with it. But he had already done um, at that point. He had already he started wearing masks for other things that I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit. But um, he had already started wearing masks. So I think to him, it was like, you know, I'm wearing masks again. I might as well just wear it. And he even dropped his mask. He actually dropped other masks prior to that. So it's like, I don't really get why he didn't just, you know, stay in mask. Um, he said it wasn't for merchandising reasons, but I think everybody just assumed that was the reason to sell masks and stuff like that. I mean, that must be the main reason. I mean, what other reason is there besides money in wrestling? In terms of losing his mask to Elio Del Santo in 1987, this is relatively early in his career as yeah. well. How many masks had he already taken by that point in time? I don't think he's actually known for taking a lot of masks. Um, he's mostly known for winning titles. He's not a he's not a big uh, mask guy because I don't think he want. I, I don't remember if he actually won a mask at that point. Um, I think he might have won a couple later on. But I know he wore hair. That, that's the year he yeah. wore Negro Casas's hair. 
Yeah, because he's mostly known hair matches. He's had a lot. He had one with Emilio Charles. Um, he's had a, he's had several, but it's mostly he's not he's not really known for mass. He's mostly I think like I said I think he's he's mostly known for winning titles and actually making titles mean something because he actually had some really good runs as a tag team champion as a, and as a CML World Heavyweight Champion. But he's mostly known for that. So in losing his mask to Elio Dos Santos, nineteen eighty seven, Tijuana. Did they have a program? Was it a hot feud? What built up to that point? That's one of those. That's one of those things where it's just. I think they just wanted somebody to like build up Hijo Santo because they were trying to build up Hijo Santo as, as you know he had already taken out uh, Nero Casas here also. So he was kind of being built up as the next big star in um, in Lucha Libre. So I, I think that was more. That was more about Hijo Santo than anything else. I think everybody kind of figured when they saw Silver King Russell that they knew his success was going to come in a different fashion than just as a masked luchador. I brought up briefly his tag team in El Tejano, Los Cowboys. That yeah. was when I discovered Silver King. I saw some of those matches coming out of Japan. They had the best matches I've ever seen the Headhunters in, and they had other mm-hmm. really good matches. They, of course, them against Crawford and Furnace were some fantastic matches. And like you said, short, stocky guys that could move. I mean, he was the first guy I saw do that move. I think it's called the Silver King Dive, yeah. where you know you jump from the ring over to the floor. Chris Jericho would later copy it. But they were so impressive. Talk a little bit about this tag team. Talk about how did he first get hooked up with El Tejano and how big were they in Mexico? Well, as you know, Tejano was part of one of the legendary trios in Mexico. Los Misioneros de la Muerte, you know, with Nero Navarro and El Signo. Those guys, that trio got their reputation off of a heart attack to El Santo, uh, where they were basically credited with causing the heart attack. And that kind of became like their whole reputation. That's where they got the death missionaries on their name. That's where they got the name from that whole incident. They were kind of the most feared trio and they were really excellent wrestlers. So what happened was at one point they decided to break off the trio and they actually had Nero Navarro and Signo. I think they were at that point teaming up with another wrestler. I think it might've been Black Power at that point. And Tejano was on his own and they pretty much just put Tejano and Silver King together. They, they noticed they looked you know, they had the similar builds and they were both huge fans of Japanese wrestling. That's one of the things that you'd learn about these guys is that they constantly, at that point in their careers, Tejano and Silver King were nonstop. They would watch Japanese. They were known as, they were known as um, cassette. It was, it's a Spanish term for like VHS viewers, cassette play, because they, over there it's called cassettes. So they were known, they were known as just frequently watching wrestling videos. They, they were watching all the Japanese wrestling nonstop, American wrestling as well. So a lot of the guys would wrestle them that weren't Mexican, and they would see that they could work with them properly. It was because they were watching a lot of video, and they were familiar with they were familiarizing themselves with all different styles. They were huge fans of all that stuff. And um, as a tag team, they were amazing. I think a lot of people, the first time they actually watched them was in the Hamada's UWF in Japan yeah. shows, the VHS tapes that were very expensive to get a hold of. <laughs> uh, I think most of us who actually got those early videos probably got copies of them. But those things used to cost 120 bucks just to get one, just the two-hour version of one of those. And um, those guys were just amazing. I think also the variety of guys that they could work with, if you just watch it, because they, they worked with luchadors, they worked with um, a lot of the, like, like you said, Crawford and Furnace. They wrestled the headhunters. I mean, they were just wrestling all this variety of guys. And yeah, they, they stuck together for, I think, eight years off and on. By that point, Silver King was already one of the top workers. I mean, you could ask guys from that time period, and they will tell you how great he was in the ring, how much they thought of him. 
Um, I think he was one of the top five guys in Mexico at that point. So I think at that point, that's why they also didn't, they didn't make that much of a big deal about him losing his mask because I think at that point they saw him as somebody that they were going to build a promotion around or somebody they could build something around. And, you know, at that point, UWA is kind of like at that stages where they're kind of starting to like fall apart. So you kind of have, that was probably the good thing for um, Tejano and, and Silver King also because all of that was going on and they got to work with a larger variety of opponents. So, you know, they got to show their style against, you know, it wasn't just like this, you know, oh, it's Lucha, you know, they, they got to work a certain side. Um, no, these guys could work other people. I think they made a WCW appearance also at, in the early 90s, which, you know, that just came out of nowhere as the Silver Kings. For the tag team title tournament. Yeah, I mean, that that just came out of nowhere. I remember when that happened. And, you know, honestly, at that, when that happened, I just thought it was weird. And looking back now, I just think you just look back at it and you just think about all the stuff, you know, you just you could just add that to the list of stuff that WCW screwed up with. because <laughs> You know, they had the Silver Tejano and, and Silver King as a tag team. And I think they ended up losing to Michael Hayes and Jimmy Garvin, who, yep. you know, weren't, weren't that great of a tag team by that point. They were so, awful as a or, tag team anytime. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I was trying to be nice. <laughs> Well, you brought up that they did have some plans for him, and he was a big star, of course. In 94, and this is a period of time where AAA is just blowing up, not just in Mexico, yeah. but specifically in America. 94, La Revancha's 93 in LA. 94, you're building up to the pay-per-view in November. This is peak AAA, 93, 94. And he is not working there. He is an EMLL or CMLL. A lot of people always are confused, me included, what to <laughs> properly call it, but he does win the World Heavyweight Championship in the summer of 94. Talk a little bit about that. Was that a big moment? Yeah, you know, it's one of those interesting things was when AAA started forming. Um, they were trying to get as much talent as possible. So you kind of saw them get a lot of the EMLL guys, and they were also getting a lot of the UWA guys. So what happened when AAA was formed, EMLL and UWA started working to, working together, and they were able they were able to, I think this is where EMLL really benefited it. They were able to get, you know, Nero Casas, Silver King, Tejano, really those three guys. Once you get those three guys, I don't, you know, you could pretty much forget about it. Everybody else is just, you know, taught, you know, additional like. Those are three top, top flight workers. Yeah. Yeah. And it changed the style because at that point with, with, with EML or CML, however you want to call it, they were very slow at that point in 92. So when these guys came in, in, you know, 93, 94, and they started working more frequently, the style started getting more of a, a, a Japanese feel to it. They started being a little more faster paced style. They brought in the independent style in, in Mexico, which is a little more of a rugged, faster style of wrestling. So you don't have a lot of the, you know, it's not, you know, headlocks, pausing. It's not just the, 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 the it's also not a, a lot of just the uh, dives and stuff like that. You're actually doing a little more, a little more psychology in the matches. So you bring in Silver King and make him your your heavyweight champion. He, I think he beat um, Brasso de Plata, Super Porky. And, you know, he, I think at that point, he just was, that was the year when he was basically the the, the main guy and in, in one of the main guys in Lucha Libre as far as heavyweight workers. He might have been the best heavyweight at that point. He was just an outstanding worker. And, you know, I think a lot of people at that point were thinking, because AAA, like you said, was far more known outside of Mexico. I think a lot of people were kind of just thinking, you know, AAA, they're the most dominant promotion. They must be just destroying everybody in Mexico. But you had EMLL, CMLL, and they had Silver King as their champion. And I think it brought a little more of a credibility to that promotion. Something that CMLL has always like wanted to continue to be known as is they like to be called um, 
In Spanish, it's, it's called serie, seria y estable, which is serious and stable. And they want wrestlers who are considered serious, they're reliable, and Silver King kind of fit that. Um, Nero Casas, all those guys fit that style, and they were able to continue to work that style. And they brought a little bit more of a reality to their style that the fans could appreciate. So you still were able to get, you know, the hardcore fans and a lot of the fans that attended, they got to see that. You know, you still got some of those, you know, foreigners that you were just wondered about showing up in Mexico. Um, your vampiros. Uh, I think Haku was there around on the time that Silver King was a champion. I think John Tenta was even there for briefly for a while. So so you kind of, you, you were able to get somebody who could work with those type of guys. And it was still going to look real. It was going to look good. He was going to sell. He was going to do whatever necessary to make the match look good. And he was really, really a, a guy who a lot of the foreigners, he was one of those few guys because he, he, since he traveled a lot to Japan and he knew enough English where he could actually communicate with the guys. So he was one of those guys who was a little bit more approachable. It wasn't this whole, like the whole, uh, you know, Mexicans don't want to talk to this guy, but it's really more, you know, it's a culture, you know, they don't know who you are. They don't speak the language. So it, it was more of that. Whereas, with Silver King, he was able to like interact with everybody, which helps a match. And he, as him being the the main guy in CMLL, I mean, it, it was able to keep that whole heavyweight division and the whole roster. It was able to keep it like the top of the card was still strong enough, believable enough, where you didn't like you weren't thinking, oh my god, I, this show is horrible. I'd rather watch AAA. There were still some really good CMLL shows at that time. You know, I remember at that time, a lot of the fans who were trading tapes, we always used to say that. AAA was the WWF and EMLL was the NWA. Not just yeah. in terms of the differences in style, but even the looks, the production, when you would watch them. CMLL was darker. AAA was more glamorous, more well-lit. Uh, no yeah. one will ever accuse Antonio Pena of being serious and stable when it comes to his product. <laughs> but, you know, it was completely different styles. Let me ask you, though, because uh, just to clarify something we said earlier, what is it? Is it CMLL or EMLL? When it first started, it was EMLL. But what ended up happening was, I, you remember the whole issue with the NWA, right? From like the early 90s, whole title thing. Well, a lot of the NWA titles were actually part of the whole um, EML, and they still are. That's a whole other issue because of the titles, that the, chain, the name changes and everything. Well, they were part of the whole NWA thing, but they also realized that they had to be something else besides, you know, just being part of a, they were under the umbrella of the NWA. They realized the NWA had pretty much died off at that point. So they had to create their own, what, what would be considered the umbrella, the, the main corporation or whatever you want to call it. And that was EMLL. What is the wrestling promotion is now CMLL. So that's the whole, um, they created the CML World Heavyweight title, the, the CML World Tag Team titles. That's how it all came to be. Because the whole, they were also, just like WCW and all these other promotions that were dealing with the NWA at that point, they also experienced the same issues that were going on with that whole situation. They they just they just went around. They just never gave them back their titles or anything. But, you know, the whole name thing, it was basically EML is considered the corporation. And then you have the the wrestling side of it is CMLL. That's the that's the easiest way to explain it. So he wins the world title in 94. It's just a short time after this a few years where everything goes crazy. Triple A had been riding a wave, and everything was going swimmingly. They had Ron Scholar, John Arezzi, his partners in America. They had a lot of things going on. CMLL, maybe a bit under the radar, but like you said, they have a lot of things going on and great matches that are taking yeah. place. You know, the amazing thing was that they brought in Hijo Santo also, so that actually even got them even hotter at that point because 
you know, with all the stuff that was going on with um, AAA in the United States, Hijo Santo ends up leading and joins, you know, CMLL. And I think it was 90, around 95, 96 also. So, yeah. you know, that just lit up, that just made CML even more attractive. And it became even more attractive to us as fans at that point, because, you know, all of a sudden you had the guy who everybody considers the main star in Mexico at that point. He's there. And that just that just the work rate in CML was off the charts at that point. But there's so much that happens within a short period of time. You have a lot of defections from AAA. You have the death of Art Bar. You have Conan being influenced by ECW and ECW's booking. You have a lot of luchadors coming into America for non-AAA events. Conan brings Psychosis and Rey Mysterio Jr. and Juventud into ECW. So they're now getting exposure to American fans. WCW is getting ready to build up Nitro in 95, and they want to start incorporating lucha guys. I know Kevin Sullivan always had this in mind. And you also, more importantly than anything else, more destructive than anything else, the devaluation of the peso. Yeah. Talk about this period of time. Talk about, because it must have been really weird when all of a sudden, like even the promo Azteca press conference, when all of a sudden all these guys are there announcing, you know, we're leaving AAA, AAA's garbage, we're doing this. And of course, that wouldn't work out in the end. But there's so much chaos, to me at least, to an outsider in Lucha Libre from 95 into the end of the decade. What, is it, what was it really like? What was the situation? I think a lot of people like were counting AAA's number by that days, how long they were going to be around just because as soon as that happened, everybody just assumed, you know, AAA's gone. You know, they lost so much talent. Um, they not only lost talent with Conan, um, when Conan, with th that left with Conan, but then you also had guys who just were returning to CMLL or just wanted out of the promotion. And, you know, it just tells you how, you know, the cyclo wrestling just, you know, you think one promotion's dead and all of a sudden they find their second win and they continue on. But at that point in time, I think really it was more so the, the influence from American wrestling that these guys kind of realized that there was no money to be made in, the, in, in Mexico with the devaluation of the peso. A lot of guys, I think most of the guys who probably stayed in Mexico were more about not wanting to leave, leave their families because everybody else was starting to leave, honestly, because at that point, WCW started bringing in everyone. I think at one point, I think they had about 17 or 20 luchadors on the roster. Um, and then um, WWE also, you know, started to do their whole um, Super Astros thing at that point also. Yeah, 97. Yeah, they want to do Lucha as well. So you had a lot of talent at that point um, just picking sides. Um, you know, I think a lot of people, like if you hear Conan and Rey Mysterio talk about WCW and they talk about how, you know, they'll point out everything that went wrong in WCW, um, how they were kind of never pushed and all that stuff. And you talk to, as you go down the list of the Luchadors, um, the guys who really don't, didn't really think about ever making it in the United States, you know, like your Silver Kings, El Dandies, and guys like that, who yeah. never thought this was even possible, they kind of look at it differently. They look at it as like, you know, this was a great opportunity. We've made lots of money. Uh, we didn't get pushed or anything, but, you know, we actually got to wrestle. We got to travel. We got to see a lot of stuff. We got paid better than what we would have been paid in New Mexico. So they actually look at it a little differently. They look at it more as a positive. And, you know, honestly, at that point in time, you're just you're just kind of seeing all these guys going to the United States and you're really seeing um, AAA starting to figure out Antonio Pena's like looking all over the place to find guys to wrestle. And he had uh, some really bad workers at one point, you know, credit him for continuing to maintain AAA during some very difficult times. He lost so much talent. He wasn't paying talent to begin with. Uh, you know, it's you know, it's the, it's the promoter's way. You know, you try not to pay too much. But he figured out how to continue doing it. Uh, CMLL 
I think they were kind of a little more uh, smarter about it because they ended up working with, um, you know, the, the American promotions realized that these guys wanted to continue to work in Mexico. And I guess they kind of thought about possibilities down the road, Mexico being an option because they had Promo Steca, as you said. But Promo Steca, I mean, that was a total disaster to begin. I mean, that was just a horrible disaster from the beginning, just because the main stars in that promotion were guys who were not going to have time to be in Mexico at the amount of time that they needed them. And the people in charge of it were just, they did not know enough about wrestling to understand that this was going to happen. Um, so that just fell apart rather quickly. So then you had, what who's left? CMLL. So they end up working at one point for about a month or two months. They were actually working with WCW and WWE. And this actually shows up in, um, I think it was November and December 1998, where you actually get a couple of shows where you actually see luchadors in WCW, like Silver King, the Vianos, El Dandy. They're on shows featuring WWE-signed luchadors like Mr. Aguila. I think Zorro was there at one point, Tarzan Boy. Hijo Santo Nero Casas, who had just gone to work for uh, WWE. So that kind of was one of those weird periods of time where you're just trying to see when that's gonna, what's going to fall apart. And sure enough, it fell apart later on. And like all wrestling things, good things come to an end rather quickly. And But it was really something... I think I think it just kind of showed you at that point that the, Mexico was totally in disarray at that point, and you kind of had more of a everybody else was more focusing in the United States. So you kind of saw, you know, the luchadors, even though they weren't pushed, they were working. Uh, what was it? Nitro, Saturday Night, the the weekend shows. So they were getting a lot of work in the United States. They were still working independent shows in Mexico, but it was it was a totally different atmosphere compared to what it was previously. The first wave of luchadors that WCW signed were Conan's guys. They were AAA guys, formerly yeah. AAA guys. How did that crew, the Silver Kings, the El Dandies, how did they get booked in WCW? How did that happen? And you said that a lot of guys said, hey, this is a great opportunity. We made some money. But in terms of the way they were used on WCW television and in WCW, how much coverage did that get in Mexico? Were the Lucha Libre fans aware that these guys weren't being treated as main eventers? You know, I don't think they thought that. I think they actually viewed it as a as a positive that they saw Mexicans on American, you know, a, a wrestling show in America, you know. To them, it was like, these guys made it. It's kind of like the whole um, Sin Cara thing. I think there's a completely different view of what Sin Cara did in WWE. He's the most recent guy that kind of flopped in the United States. And in Mexico, they kind of looked at it as, well, he made it to WWE. Uh, you do have some people who, because now, you know, kayfabe is kind of something that's even in Mexico. It's starting to die down, so you're kind of getting a lot of people kind of trying to point out that he kind of flopped. So, but back then it wasn't like that, and um, they kind of viewed it a little differently. They viewed it more as you know guys getting an opportunity to make money. I mean, yeah, you know, I think as long as they were pushing a handful of guys and they were pushing Rey Mysterio, Conan, and Juventud Guerrera, so you kind of had certain guys who were getting pushed with the cruiserweight division and stuff like that. That I think it kind of was enough for them to be satisfied. And, you know, you got to remember back then, the Internet in Mexico was pretty non-existent. I mean, I think we are about five to ten years ahead as far as, you know, the fans online, you know, complaining about wrestling uh, or talking about it. Yeah. Uh, I think we're a couple years ahead because at that point, I mean, it was very kayfabe. I mean, people were just happy to see people like the luchadors on WCW or WWE television at that point. And again, to my previous question, how did those CMLL guys get booked into WCW? You know, Conan, you know, I think it was a combination of Conan and Eric Bischoff. I think it was also that um, World Wrestling Peace Festival that actually kind of opened up a lot of the, the doors for those guys because they kind of, 
Bischoff had that whole situation where he was working with New Japan. WCW was working with New Japan. And obviously, if you're going to work with New Japan, you're going to work with a promotion that's aligned with New Japan. And at that point, the promotion that was aligned with New Japan was CMLL. At the time that you had the the, the guys going to w, uh, WCW, you actually also saw a lot of the luchadors from CMLL show up in New Japan. So I think Narokasa's worked a couple of tours around that time. And then you also had Dr. Wagner Jr., who actually became a big star in Japan at that time, right around the time that his brother was, you know, working obviously as a jobber in WCW. You had Dr. Wagner Jr. kind of like becoming a, a very popular luchador in, in New Japan. So you kind of had that connection for, through New Japan and CMLL. And at the same time, they also, I think because a lot of the luchadors would work a lot of independent shows, um, a lot of the guys, like if you go back and you watch Lucha Libre shows or you look at results from that time period, you see that they're working in Tijuana, Monterey, all these different places. And I think what WCW kind of wanted was they wanted somebody to oversee you know, the entire, um, you know, the roster, give them a place for them to go. And I think at that point was when they decided to get like some of the CMLL guys as part of that whole relationship. That didn't work out either, obviously, because, you know, like I said, CMLL was trying to work both sides. You know, they were trying to get WWE and WCW at the same time. And what ended up happening is, you know, money talks, WCW had money. They were able to just bring in these guys, sign them to contracts. So they brought in Silver King. I think they brought in Silver King, El Dandy, and I can't remember what other guys they might have run in from that group, but um, those guys didn't get as many opportunities as the Conan-led group. I think that was the only unfortunate thing that I think, you know, you look back now, and I think that's what I noticed looking back with all this news of Silver King's passing was that, could you imagine bringing in Silver King and El Dandy, which is a really great ready-made tag team that they could have had, and they did nothing with them? Nothing. Uh, which is crazy. I mean, it just it just not even realizing, because I think that was around the time Bischoff was also against tag team wrestling. You know, that whole thing was just something that completely fell apart. We've all heard stories about the, for lack of a better term, stubbornness of Paco Alonso. How did he react to this? To the idea that his guys were leaving to go to America. Did he welcome everyone back right away afterwards? Uh, no, he didn't. El Dandy has never been brought back there's been a few guys who have been brought back that he's kind of been okay with, but that's also because they actually have somebody who's connected in the promotion. That's been what helped Silver King get back, because as I said, his brother, Dr. Wagner Jr., had become a big star. Uh, not only was he a big star in New Japan, but in CMLL. And really, Silver King's return into the CMLL fold really came through New Japan, because he started working with New Japan. He started tagging up with Dr. Wagner Jr. in Japan. Then they were looking for a, they wanted to revive the character on um, the Black Tiger character at that point. This was going to be the third version of that character. And, you know, they, they basically told CMLL that they wanted to use a luchador for that. And they had Silver King on it. And not only, you have to remember with, with CML at that point, not only do you have Dr. Wagner Jr. with a little power, but you also have a lot of the, the guys from that era who are from that region had gained power. Blue Panther, Ultimo Guerrero was now a guy who was like one of the main guys in, on that promotion. That whole region had finally gained power. In the past, CML was more about the Guadalajara and uh, Mexico City luchadors that had power. But now the Laguneros, the Laguna guys had power. So they were able to, like, they were a little bit easier to get um, guys to come in. And they were able to bring in, the, you know, get Black Tiger, Silver King in there. And he brought in the character Black Tiger into CMLL. And, you know, you I don't know if you ever saw that, um, that, that skit that they did when he was feuding with Dr. Wagner Jr., um, there's this really infamous skit. Um, I think David Dixon's fan um, tweeted it recently where um, 
they they were feuding and Dr. Wagner Jr. grabbed this little kitten and throws it out of this fake window. And it became like this one, because they were doing skits at that point. Um, CML loved doing skits and they loved doing anything that involved uh, whatever they used to make uh, their, their latest technology. And that was one of the things that they had. They, they wanted to have a, they had Black Tiger since he's a cat. They wanted his brother to like have this feud with him because they were the, the, you know, the, that was the other thing. Black Tiger, everybody knew it was Silver King, but his whole thing when he returned was he did not want to do any interviews in Spanish because he only spoke Japanese. So he kayfabed <laughs> everybody into believing that he did not speak any Spanish. And, you know, when he would say it, you knew it was Silver King. So he did the Black Tiger character for like the longest time because he was still doing New Japan tours. And that's how he got into, um, he got back into CMLL. It's a little bit after this where maybe the thing that he's now most famous for in America happened and all the newspaper coverage. And I got to admit, I was kind of blown away just how much coverage it did get his passing here in America. Mm-hmm. In New York, it was in all the major papers. Wow. But he would end up being in the film Nacho Libre with Jack Black, and he played Ramses. What can you tell us about this? How did he score that role, and what did that role mean to him? He was in CMLL at that point. He was in between doing the Black Tiger character, and he was about to be regimmicked. Because um, at that point, New Japan was going to give somebody else the Black Tiger character, which was going to be Rocky Romero. But he was still doing Black Tiger around that time. He later regimmicked to a character named Bronco, a total disaster of a gimmick. The Bronco character, they debut him when they debuted a guy who jumped from AAA to CMLL by the name of Electroshock. I do not know if any of your listeners have ever seen Electroshock, (laughs) but he is one of the worst wrestlers in the business. Although if you ask luchadors, they all say he's good. I don't know what they're watching, but he is a horrible wrestler. And they decided to debut him at a point in time when at that point in time, you know, nowadays it's very different. Nowadays you'll have a AAA guy show up in CMLL. And it's kind of like, you know, okay, big deal. Because you still have Cibernetico show up in, on CML shows now. And it's like, he's horrible in the ring, but they kind of accept it because they have horrible wrestlers as well. But at that point, they kind of had a completely different view of what wrestling was, where they were the serious ones. They knew about wrestling. They did not respect anybody in AAA. They looked down on everybody in AAA. So they bring in Electroshock, who is one of the worst wrestlers in business, a guy who doesn't fit the style. And they have him team up with the newly re-gimmicked Silver King as Bronco. And another, a third guy against the girls del Inferno, who are um, Ultimo Guerrero, Ray Bucanero, and Tarzan Boy. Well, these guys did not want to make Electroshock look good at all. So they basically gave him the worst. They did not do anything with him. One of the worst matches, main event matches you'll ever see. And um, unfortunately, Bronco was in it. And that gimmick just fell apart. It ended up being like a, a mid-card type of... Uh, a gimmick that he kind of kept going for a little while before he left. Well, the good thing for him was that around this time, he shows up at the CML office, and there's a CML employee by the name of um, Sandra Granados, and she tells him that they're um, they're actually, she asked him if he, if he brought his mask along with him. And he kind of said he wasn't sure if he was going to say yes or no, because he's like, I don't really care. I don't really want to do anything with, I don't want to wear a mask right now. But he was like curious why she was asking. He said, yeah, I brought my mask. Why do you ask about my mask? And she said, oh, they're having a casting call for Luchadors for a new movie. So he was like, okay, I'll, I guess I'll do it. So he shows up. He later finds out that it's a, it's a movie called Nacho Libre. And they're looking for the lead role of a, of a bad guy in, in, the, in, in the movie. So he's there. He gets a couple of calls. He's still wrestling. 
And like most wrestlers, one of the first things he mentions is that they tell him how long filming will take for this movie. This, the filming happened in Oaxaca. So um, he's kind of trying to figure out, you know, can I actually film this or should I continue to wrestle? But he, he gets the first casting call. He continues to wrestle. He gets a second call. He gets a third call. And he mentioned that on the third call, he wasn't the only wrestler. He noticed that there was a couple of other wrestlers still. This, the first couple of calls, he noticed there was hundreds. Then the last one, he noticed there's 30. He actually says that he saw Shocker, Universal Dos Mil, and he said there was a, a couple of other guys that he was familiar with that were in line. And he shows up, he does his poses, and they asked him uh, at that point to come in for a fourth call. So he comes in, and the producer, one of the producers asked him, can you do anything besides whatever you're, we've had you do already, posing with your mask on and stuff like that? He's like, yeah, I could do other stuff. Um, do, you need, do you want me to show you something, like a wrestling hold? He's like, yeah. So he's like, bring me a guy. Let me see. Let me do a wrestling hold on someone. So they bring in one of the, some guy. He does the hold, and he says, later on, I found out that the guy I actually put the hold on was one of the producers. And the <laughs> producer ends up saying he's got the job. So he ended up getting the role of Ramsey, which actually was pro- very popular for him. Um, you know, the movie itself, I don't know how people thought what they thought about the movie, but he, I mean, he did well. He brought the he brought the character actually to do um, wrestling shows. That was one of the other characters he started using in wrestling shows, uh, which I'm surprised he didn't get sued over it. But, you know, he was Ramsey's in the movie. Did that film have traction in Mexico? You know, I think it, it, it was popular because, you know, the story is actually from Mexico. It's the it's the story yeah. of Fright Tormenta. There's a wrestling priest in Mexico. It's a priest, a Catholic priest. And to make money for his orphanage, he wrestles. I don't know how much money he was making at that point, but he was doing it. Because um, I remember watching him in Juarez. In Juarez, he actually feuded, get this, he feuded with a wrestler by the name of Freddy Krueger. He had a feud with Freddy Krueger. So you had Fright Tormenta. I told Conan this. I go, one of my first matches I watched when I was a kid was Fright Tormenta teaming up with Eddie Guerrero versus Conan and Freddy Krueger. So that was actually something that, you know, you never think about this becoming a movie down the road, but they actually made a movie out of it. And, you know, I think a lot of people liked it just because it's more of a comedic movie. But I think there was also a lot of critics about it because, you know, it made Lucha look a little silly. I think a lot of people, that's what their feeling was about it. But I think for the most part, people thought it was just another movie that was about Lucha Libre that was funny. So coming out of that film and his various appearances as Ramses all over Mexico, yeah. What was the last decade of his career like? How was he still in the ring, and how was he used, and where was he working? By that point, I think his last really great run was that Black Tiger run when he was in like around 2005, 2006. Because afterwards, he was still pretty good. He wasn't great. Um, just a good wrestler at that point. You know, a good hand to have on a show. A guy you could fill a spot with. He wrestled a lot of independents. Um, he also wrestled in all Japan pro wrestling. He actually had one last run there. I think it was around 2000, 2008. He had a run. I think he was the junior heavyweight champion at one point. And he also had a second run where he came in because they were doing the, the Mexican Amigos gimmick. The Mexican Amigos were a, a, a group of Japanese wrestlers who decided they were Mexican. And they would call themselves Mexican. So you had um, Kaz Hayashi was Miguel Hayashi. Um, Nosoa was El Mas- Nosoa Mendoza or something like that. You had Taka Michinoku as Pepe Michinoku. Ah. And they were feuding with uh, Mexicans who were pretending to be Japanese. So you had Kendo, who was, I think, Akinori, and then you had Pantera, and they brought in um, Silver King as one of their Japanese guys. Kendo's another guy, a really wonderful guy. I mean, he's, he's a really interesting guy. But he, he worked all Japan. He was working independence. He worked IWRG a lot. 
the now Kaufman promotion. And then he got the call from AAA and started working with AAA in 2008, where he actually had the, I mentioned the whole feud with his brother, Dr. Wagner Jr., changed his name to Silver Kane. He had to deal with all that craziness of working with AAA, where he was part of the Foreign Legion one week, then he was gone from the Foreign Legion. The Foreign Legion would fall apart. The Foreign Legion was basically this group that was run by Conan and had all the foreigners and any Mexican who decided he would rather be a foreigner than a Mexican. <laughs> so you had Conan, Dorian Roldan at one point would, would join the group, everyone. So there would be like six months where they would be all, this group would be the big feud. The group would break apart. Conan would disappear. And one year later, the big angle was the formation of another foreign legion, which was, I think, for about four years, that was the big storyline. They'd break them apart. They'd come back under a new name. And that was basically where, where Silver King was at. He would form factions with that. He joined the Wagner Maniacos with his brother, Dr. Wagner Jr., and a bunch of other guys. Then they would break up that group. And he'd start another group called those, like the Maniacs, whatever group they were calling themselves. Then they actually had a group of guys who left CMLL, and they called themselves El Consejo. He joined that group. Then he would just end up turning on his brother. A third. I think he turned on his brother about at least four or five times in this final AAA run. I think that run with AAA lasted from 2008 to 2014. And then afterwards, he was basically just doing independent wrestling and um, doing the London tours with Miguel um, Santo. And I think he was also doing a little bit of promoting and training as well. But that was basically this final days as far as pro wrestling goes. Well, that kind of brings us full circle here, Fredo. And as we begin to wrap up this segment, once again, I want to encourage everyone Visit LuchaWorld.com. It is your one-stop shop for Lucha Libre news, history. Fredo's articles are really, really good, and they're not just obituaries. It is Lucha Libre history. <laughs> Anything you want to know, that's the place to go. Once again, LuchaWorld.com. But Fredo, as we wrap up, what is the legacy of Silver King in Mexico? What is the legacy he leaves behind on Lucha Libre? He leaves a lot just because he's a great wrestler. I think that's his legacy, just a great wrestler who left a lot of... um you know, a lot of great memories for fans and a lot of wrestlers too. I think, I think also the other thing that besides being a great wrestler, being a great person, because a lot of the outpouring that we got afterwards from fans and wrestlers was that he was a really nice guy. And, you know, you had Jericho talk about what a wonderful person he was and a lot of other wrestlers mentioned it. So I think that's his legacy, a great wrestler and a really good person overall. Boom! There it is. Fredo Esparza, a fantastic look at the life and career of Silver King and actually an overall look at Lucha Libre for an entire era and Lucha Libre's place in the world. The expansion of Lucha Libre to Japan, to the United States, Silver King was right in the middle of all that. And I want to thank Fredo, Lucha Libre's premier historian, for coming on the show and spending a lot of time with us to discuss all of this. And I think we're going to be hearing from Fredo again on the show pretty soon. But as we wrap things up, I want to remind you that you can follow the 605 Super Podcast on Facebook, facebook.com slash super podcast of course we are also on twitter at 605 pod you can follow me on twitter at great brian last and you can follow the arcadian vanguard podcast network on twitter and stay up to date with all of our fine shows at super podcast or on facebook facebook.com slash arcadian vanguard i also want to mention our official online store where you can get 605 super podcast t-shirts mothership t-shirts we have baseball shirts we have polo shirts stickers magnets and much more and more to come very very soon we have arcadian vanguard shirts coming very soon you can go to tinyurl.com slash super pod store 
to get all the finest in Arcadian Vanguard and 605 Super Podcast gear. As we mentioned earlier, tinyurl.com slash superpod. Amazon is the place to go to support the show for all of your Amazon purchases. We appreciate everyone who's been doing it. We really, really do. tinyurl.com slash superpod. Amazon. Of course, if you appreciate the production that goes into this show and all of the Arcadian Vanguard shows and are interested in making a financial donation to the production of these shows, you can do so in a couple different ways. You can make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash superpodcast or on an ongoing monthly basis at patreon.com slash superpodcast. Unlike other shows, including other shows that I have here on the network, we do not give you anything for the 605 Patreon. You may get some stuff, but we guarantee nothing. It just may come in every now and then, but you never know. It's really the worst deal in wrestling when you really think about it. But thank you to everyone that's on there, especially those secret millionaires who keep this show afloat. We really do appreciate it. Patreon.com slash super podcast. The 605 Super Podcast is sponsored by our friends, the wrestling fans over at Ramsore Records, R-A-M-S-E-U-R. Of course, RamsoreRecords.KungFuStore.com. And don't forget the National Reserve on tour. Check them out when they are in your area. They will certainly be there soon, wherever you are in the United States. NationalReserve.com slash tours. And congratulations once again to Samantha Crane and all of the people, the entire team, over at Ramsor Records, and congratulations to my pal Dolph Ramsor on his success with all of these amazing acts. Great, great stuff. Once again, the Mid-Atlantic Wrestling of the music business, Ramsor Records. Also want to mention that if you want to send something into the show, you can do so. The address, the 605 Super Podcast, P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. That's the 605 Super Podcast, the mothership! P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. And thank you so much. I mentioned at the top of the show to everyone that has sent stuff in. And I'm sure there's more things that have arrived since we started recording this show that I'll have to mention next time. Thank you to everyone. And on the topic of thank yous, big thank you to our superstar producer, Lou Kippelman, for helping out with several segments here this week. Big thanks to Jace Nakarado, the director of show research, and everyone else who has helped out with this show. I really do appreciate it. And of course, big thanks to Scott Cornish for being in the co-host chair today. The 605 Super Podcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For Scott Cornish and all of our guests, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho!